Alrighty, folks. So what we've got going on here is a little bit different kind of a podcast because I'm down here at the Western Hunt Expo in Salt Lake City, Utah, sitting at the SIG booth. And I just wanted to give you all kind of the experience of being at a show, which is largely about conversations, short conversations with people who are really interesting, um, whether they're slinging some kind of a product or they're professional in the industry. Yeah, that's my favorite thing about being at these shows. So uh, we've got a bunch of five to 15 minute long bits here that are consolidated together and going to give you a little bit of an experience with some really interesting people. So thanks for following along and hope you enjoy the show. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. What even is a flip-flop? Um, it's a shoe. <laughs> Open-toed. Okay. I've heard, I think I've seen those <laughs> on the internet. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a style and method of cooking uh, entire deer leg, any, ungulate, any animal that doesn't carry trigonosis. And my grandfather went to a sheep herder's ranch in West Marin County, California, and saw these guys, and they were cooking these sheep legs. And herd sure. sheep, uh, you know. Yeah. And he's blown away by the cooking method. And he was like, oh, my God, I have to do this with deer legs. Yeah. So he started doing it with deer legs. And him and my grandmother kind of perfected this marinade. And from there, it just kind of blew up cooking, yeah. cooking deer leg flip-flops. Yeah. And that was all around Marin County, Sonoma County, California. No one would ever think that a pretty awesome style and method of cooking a wild game animal would come out of california but it did yeah and i mean why not california's got a, a rich culture and it does in, in history why? it's got a ro- it's yeah. still the wild west a lot yeah. of people think that california is like you know this weird buttoned up place yeah. you know or San whatever Francisco, but it's not but like california i would say is like probably one of the most wild place like government corruption you know like just all the gnarly things and characteristics of the wild west just it's the modern day wild west northern california might as well be like kentucky or west virginia and then you're starting to get into, like, the better places of yeah. California. Yeah. 100%. So what are you doing here at Hunt Expo? I am cooking a flip-flop tonight. Okay. I'll be there. Looking You'll be forward there. to it. Yeah. And then I'm cooking another flip-flop tomorrow night. And then I have to fly out to California Saturday, 
to cook a doll sheep leg with the California Wild Sheep Association for okay. a Super Bowl party. Nice. And are we flipping and flopping axis deer? Axis deer. Yep. Love those things. Yes. I sell axis deer legs, full axis deer legs ready to flip flop on my website. Okay. Uh, thanks to the great folks at Maui Nui Venison. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, so tonight that's what we're going to eat. That venison program I think is really interesting and really cool because what Jake's accomplished over there? Yeah, and, and what Axis are doing to, to Maui and Lanai is an ugly thing. It's an ugly thing. Well, you want to talk about, like, grassroots conservation. There's no better way for them to successfully, you know, eradicate the species as well as saving and preserving the island and the plants that grow on the island. Uh, you know, the erosion and everything that happens there is just a tragedy and it's all due to overpopulation of yeah. the access deer. And and without this market hunting style of conservation, axis are not only going to hurt the island, but they're eventually going to hurt themselves very badly as well. Yeah. Yeah, Jake really figured it out. He's super fortunate that he's got USDA approval and everything is going good out yeah. there. They go out with them on every hunt. They inspect every animal. Yeah. Um, they make sure that the animal is treated with the utmost respect. Right. Uh it's, it's, he, he did, he changed a lot of things yeah. as far as, you know, wild game, uh, to table. Sure. You know, sure. and making it available for yeah. everybody. I think it's super cool. Um, yeah. So if people want to order some flip flop sauce and, uh, are they hindquarters? The sauce and the hindquarters yeah. are available on my website. Cool. www.theflipflopguy.co. Um, I'm that, sure that gonna... link will be in the description for oh, folks cool. who want to know. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be a great time. Cool. I'm excited to be here. I'm pumped to come by the SIG booth. Yeah, I think I'm going to see you at a couple more events this year. Yeah. Looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Going to be uh, fun. Jet Tilla. I don't know if you're familiar with him. No. Nope. It sounds like Jet Tilla is going to accompany me out there. Okay. And he is a Food Network TV chef. Okay. Um does like grocery games with guy and yeah. all different kinds of stuff so he's going to come out and and cook with me and we're gonna have a great time awesome yeah. awesome well i don't want to take up a lot a lot of your time <laughs> you're good but uh yeah this is great and i'm looking forward to tonight sweet yeah. thanks man access is some of my favorite meat it's gonna be good awesome all right we got rob gearing you guys heard from rob a little while ago How's your continued tour in the USA? Well, it's it's been pretty epic. Yeah. I'm going to use that one. I won't use it lightly. I've caught up with some great friends uh, that I haven't seen for a few years yeah. because of the dreaded COVID. Sure. But that's all yeah. we need to say uh-huh. about that silly thing. Um, and I've had an epic time. I think I hired an old Tacoma because all the car hire companies have run out of cars. So this thing had like 36,000 miles on it when I picked it up. It's now got... 40,000 miles or just over. So I've been busy tracking around in that. Nice. Um, and it's been wonderful. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it. And I, I, it's really good to see the passion uh, that people have in what we're doing. And it's really nice to get that feedback, frankly. Yeah. I even stopped the UPS man up in Bozeman because I thought his brake caliper was hanging off. And I said, mate, I th- you just check your brakes out. And he said, oh, no, no, that's all right. <laughs> and he said, I know you. And I said, well, I he said you're that Rob Gearing from Spartan and I thought so I phoned up the team I said Tom Cruise eat your heart out (laughs) (laughs) the UPS man in Bozeman knows me we've obviously conquered the world but you know he's a lovely guy isn't that an amazing thing though uh, crazy crazy wild yeah yeah you know dial it back a few years and you're like I think I'm gonna make 
a bipod with carbon that like detaches, and the next thing you know, you go to the other side of the world and a UPS guy recognizes yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, it's hugely rewarding, actually. Yeah. I and mean, we, you, you want to make light of it, but that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just hope we spread like the COVID. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's a pretty I'm, bad... I'm, I'm not going to take yeah, that in bad, any of the directions a, a bad that I analogy. want to. But um, honestly, no, I've really enjoyed it. I feel very at home on this side of the pond. Um, I've lined up with three potential manufacturers as well to ma- start making product in the US, which I'm pretty keen on. Yeah. Um, and I really, they're good small manufacturers and they're all shooting people because for me it's about the relationship. Yeah. Um, and they're excited to be part of this. And uh, so I'm really, really keen to get that running and gunning this year. How do you make a car explode? Oh, that was funny. Well, the team trying to kill me off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got some friends in Vegas, and they luckily they had that, like, what's it, Tenorite or something? Yeah. So they put 50 pounds of that in front of that car, and we said, hey, we could really have a good... The team actually said, we've got an idea, Mr. G, we'd like to blow you up. <laughs> <laughs> I the video was a lot longer, actually. It's a shame they've cut it because it was super funny. But the keenness of the whole team to actually blow me up is, I'm quite worried about going home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're, they're a super bunch. They're a super bunch, and it yeah. was great to get them back out. And there's a lot of eager enthusiasm to sort of get things right. And we don't get everything right, far from it, but we're, I think we're moving in the right direction. And the feedback we get from the customers is so important to us to help us develop. Yeah. 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 As I said to you before, I said at the tender age of 58, I'm not doing it to make, a, uh, you know, clearly we want to be a successful business, but it's far more enjoy the journey. And I thought you said 63 last Yeah, I'm time. feeling like it. <laughs> feel, I, especially after I went out with those mountain tough lads up in Bozeman and they, oh. I went to say hello and they caught, I said, are you going to come back tomorrow? They nearly, they're, look at my they're thumbs. They're mean. They're mean guys. Yeah. 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 Burpees, they're big on burpees. Oh, they did. With, luckily, it was an arm session, but it okay. was an arm, well, a thumb session as well, because yeah. I'm, I'm, you can't see it, readers, but I'm all taped up. Yeah. Yeah. But lots of fun. Lots yeah. of fun. But yeah. it, I feel very at home here, and it's a, it's a great part of the world. Cool. Han Expo. This is a great show. It, it's my favorite. Yeah. It, is it's it? absolutely yeah. my favorite because it's not so big it sort of freaks you out. Yeah. But the right people are here. Yeah. And I think they've got the right size stands and you can walk. The, I, I really wanted to cut. This is one of the main reasons why I stayed back because I just wanted to catch up with a few people. And I, I've literally haven't got very far and I keep running into people I know, which is lovely. And I haven't seen these people for like three yeah, years. For sure. Yeah. One of the interesting things about the demographic here at Han Expo is, uh, like, you see dudes with cowboy hats at every show. Yeah. But if you see a dude in a cowboy hat at Han Expo, he's probably a cowboy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would get that. He knows which end of a cow stands up first. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He'll be riding horses and doing these stuff. This is a real genuine demographic. These are real hunters and real people. And and I'm not trying to drag down any other show, but I do like the feeling of this show. It's a good one. I'm glad to see you. No, likewise. Wonderful to see you too. Okay, brother. Yeah. yeah. Safe travels. Yeah, thank you. And it was really nice that Bam picked up the paycheck. So. Oh, that is yeah, nice. Yeah, I like that. So we have Bam's dad yeah. at the Haunt Expo. Have you ever been to this show before? No, sir. Yeah. No, it's my first time to Utah. And you're from upstate New York? Northern New York, thank you. Northern New York? No, there's northern New York. Okay. Tell yeah. me the difference. I don't know. Well, we don't like to even associate with those boys down around New York City. They're yeah. city boys. Sure. And then you've got central New York. You know, a lot of cities, we're just, you know, and people look at us as though we're rednecks. Yeah, we are, but not in that bad sense, man. We're just folks that have been 
born and raised on the river, hunting, yeah. fishing, trapping all our lives, you know, and my wife, she's got her own boat. We got his and her boats and yeah. every, you know, we got a house, a summer home on the islands and we just live up there and love it. It's free. Are you in an area that gets uh, big snowfalls? Actually, we're north of the, of the lake effect. Okay. We do get our snow, fair yeah. fair snow. Yeah. A lot of ice. January was a butt kicker. That thing was like well over, it was below zero most of the stinking month. Really? Yeah. That was tough. Gotcha. Yeah. And you've ran a trap line for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I've been running traps. I started trapping back in the mid-60s, um, water trapping, rats and various things, you know, beaver otter and all that kind of stuff. Was and that then, was that the time that conibears were starting to come onto the scene? Conibears were coming on. Um, the, the old boy that sold me my first conibear wouldn't sell it to me until I was actually able to set a 110 by myself. I was that young. Oh, really? Yeah, he wouldn't sell it to me because no, because I know what's going to happen. You're going to snap your hand. You come in here, you're going to be snivelling and whining. Your mom's going to be mad at me for selling it to you. So. <laughs> So I had to go. I had to go out and uh, pump up some muscles for that summer to get those conor bears out there. I love them conor bears. What an incredible tool that is! Oh my gosh, it's yeah. crazy. You know, yeah. they're so versatile. You know, it's like the the 330s. You know, you can use and set up um, caster mounts for for beaver. I mean, for everything. It's just it's amazing. You yeah. know, I have floats now. I use for beaver for 330s for floats on yeah. beavers, and they're just versatile trap. It's one of my go tos. Do you use beaver for bait when you're trying to trap coyotes? That's one of the main reasons. Well, the price of beaver pelts right now, you might as well use them for something more yeah. than just the hides. Yeah, I sell the caster. Um, we eat beaver. Yeah. And <laughs> there's some stories behind that one. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a versatile animal. And I've done a bunch of nuisance trapping through the summertime. So, you know, the caster's there. The meat's there for coyotes. And I use the, the beaver meat for coyotes, fisher, you know, everything. Bobcats. It's just a, it's a go-to meat. It's got a lot of grease in it, yeah. a lot of fat, so it doesn't freeze up, doesn't dry out as quick right. as other stuff does. Yeah. One of the biggest reasons why I like it. Yeah. Um, your coyotes are a different coyote. They are. They're a koi wolf. How does that work? What is that? Well, what happened was, from the studies that I have had, um, they got pushed out of the, uh, the true western coyote, got moved out of the Midwest. They went through the south, southeast, came through there. They got hooked up at somewhere down in the south with the red wolf. Okay. And then they also, there's actually dogs in their bloodline, which is really surprising why coyotes, usually when wolves and coyotes get together, the first thing to do is the wolves chase them out and kill them. Yeah. A, their competition for food, and B, you know, they're, they just don't want them in there because they just want to kill them because they're territorial, as you know. Right. And so they came up through the eastern, uh, eastern shoreline of the Atlantic and moved their way right up into all the way up um, in, like, either, like, northeast Canada, the, the islands out there. And uh, ours are a lot bigger because they've also crossed with a gray wolf. Yeah. And so they're a big animal. And I'll, put, I'll post pictures of uh, coyotes that I've sh- trapped. Guys go, that's a wolf, man. I said, no. That's a 50-pound you know, Eastern coyote. One of the interesting things about canines is just the way their their chromosomes and DNA work. It's it's a really long chain, and that's why you can have such a huge diversity within that group. You can have a Chihuahua, you can have a Great Dane. <laughs> like these these shouldn't be the same thing. Like they they should be radically different. Yeah. But but they're still just a dog. Yeah. And when you start thinking about things like a coyote and a red wolf and a gray wolf and you start mix, mixing it all together, it's, it's just really interesting. There are 16 subspecies of coyotes mm-hmm. in North America, oh, yeah. and they're all separated by region because mm-hmm. it's, it's just a continue, continual evolution thing. of it in a sense. Right. So if you look at, say, a coyote in, in New Mexico and one in 
northern New York, they're really different. Mm-hmm. But if you look at New Mexico, Arizona, maybe not that different. Yep. Arizona, Texas, yep. it's just, just this, slight differences. Yeah, yep. yeah, it's a scale. It it's has cool. everything to do with, I believe, with the habitat. I mean, up there, uh, when coyotes moved in, they they were the top of the food chain. Yeah. For a, I mean, they still are basically, and all of a sudden trappers started getting upset because their fox numbers dropped down right you know and again they either they have them for food and they want to take away their territory because they're competing for food yeah and i'll I'll be honest with you last year i was beat up bad by the coyotes they they were i think i had all but three of my fox when i was trapping the island that we live on throughout three quarters of the year um i'd get there and the coyotes would have beat me to my fox and completely shredded it it was just tore up pieces were missing you know, yeah. and so they were actually working my trap line with me. Right. I was catching, I was knocking off the pups and the young yeah. and the dumb, but I know that there were some smart adults that were just looking at using my traps, you know, that make it their food, you know, their food uh, that much easier and more accessible. Yeah. You know? They're yeah. smart. They're a smart animal. They'll humble you for sure. Oh, man. So smart. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm so just, smart. I'm still learning. I'm still on that upper side. I want to say I'm on the upper side of the learning curve, but I don't know. Maybe I'm giving myself too much credit for that. <laughs> Tell me about duck decoys. Duck decoys. Yeah, that was my passion for ever. I mean, we didn't have deer where we, we were up in northern New York. Um, all we had was waterfall. Yeah. And I used to hang out with, I used to work with some of the old time these guys were in their 70s and 80s back in the 70s when they were 60s and 70s growing up. And these guys were gun the, the, the market hunters. Okay. These are the guys that would Like have, the punt guns? Oh, and, yeah, yeah. We're talking guys. This guy goes, hey, DL, you know what the best way to shoot canvas back? I said, what's that, Shaq? And he goes, let them canvas backs get in your decoy spread. Take two rocks, click them together, and they're going to all bunch up and take that 10-gauge, and you can blow channels right through them. <laughs> you know? These guys had contracts, though. They had yeah. to you know, supply 150, 200 birds to this New York City and other areas, and so they had to have birds there. And so that's what, you know, I grew up, you know, in underneath yeah. the shadow of these guys. Right. And decoy carving and decoy painting, um, you know, that to me was the upper echelon of an upper tier of those guys because of the fact that these guys were just, they were my heroes. Yeah. You know. So um, was it cork? No, these were all hard. They were solid uh, cedar decoys. Cedar. Yeah, cedar okay. decoys. And they were, I mean, some of the Sam Denny decoys today, you can't touch them for two to $3,000. Right. You know. And me, I never had, first of all, I didn't have the time. To, and I've got the patience to do it, but I never really had the time. Um, to actually sit and actually develop the carving of it. I wanted to, but that was something. But the painting part of it, to me, I think what it's, it's taken my hunting, it took my hunting up to a level to where I got a deeper appreciation and love for it. it was when those birds would work decoys that I painted. I mean, yeah, anybody can go out and buy them, and, and praise God, some, a lot of guys do, and maybe they just don't have the time to do it. But I wanted to take those cold, windy, blustery days of winter when there's nothing going on. Instead of sitting around the house just strumming your nuts, just being upset because nothing's going on, I go down to the basement, turn on country music, sit there, break out the paints, and start painting them. And I had a cousin of mine who she works at uh, like an Ace Hardware store, and she ran the painting display. And, and she's got pictures of me, and they have them in the store bringing dead birds down the night freeze because I wanted that color. I didn't want something similar. I didn't want some other paint manufacturer's idea of what this would have, like a hen broadbills brush paint. I took dead hen broadbills down there, put them up against that, that camera and that computer, and it would give me that, that color was dead on. Yeah. 
And so, um, yeah, I had a lot of the, uh, the intricate colors actually made up for me that way. And it's, it's like I was telling you, a friend over there, it's like, to me, it was really cool is when sometimes when the birds are flying and those birds would come in and they land in decoys, and I'm watching them in there when I've got guys with me that are new to hunting. And so I would say to them, you're going to shoot that bird? Where is it? It's right there in the middle of our whistler decoys. And they couldn't, they couldn't tell the difference. And I'm not my bragging probably, but at the same time, I, I'm, I'm not painting a decoy. The decoys for anybody but me. Right. I wanted to be able to put out the best decoys I possibly could. And so I would study the, the birds constantly. I put I can't tell you how many countless hours in studying the birds because I wanted to have them look the way I wanted to have them look. And I had professional carver, decoy carvers and painters tell me you're spending too much time in detail. I said, well, I sweat the details, you know, because it's, when I put them out, they look good. And how about the, the actual form of the decoy, the posture? How important is that to... To, to realism it means a lot um the guys that carve the decoys they have they have the uh, uh, an avenue and a way in which to be able to, to carve the decoys where they give them a little bit more detail to the to where they're sitting the way they're postured at rest sleeping or however they want to do it i ran simply i just as a kid i was that kid when the duck hunters would come in I was the kid who would run down to their boat at the boat launch when they're pulling up, right? And I'm climbing all over their boat, asking them a ton of questions, getting, get out of my boat, you know, hey, yeah. come out of here. And, and they, these guys had, at the time, back then in the 60s and early 70s, there was the Herder decoy, Herder 72. Yeah. And I said to myself, when I get older, I'm going to have that decoy. That, to me, was like the pinnacle of the decoys. And now they've gotten so many more, and the, the, the decoys, and they've... They've just evolved to a point now that it's so realistic. You just can't compete with that kind of thing in a sense. But I wanted to kind of go back to that, have that classic Herder 72 style of decoy. And I did that. I bought, I had something like 10 or 12 dozen of the broadbills, camas backs. I have camas back, broadbills, and redheads. Um, I went ahead and bought E. Allen um, cock whistler heads and hen whistler heads. I paid like eight bucks for the heads. The, decoy was like three bucks the body but i wanted that realistic head on there i wanted a cock whistler head i didn't want some generic looking thing i wanted something that actually looked like a good stealthy you know cock whistler and same with the hens and so i put them in there and i would spend the time and and like black ducks you know the detail of that the textures of the of the contours and the colors and the way they blend on a black duck you know as subtle as they are you know i mean if you look at it i just to me, and I wouldn't have straight hard lines. I, I would feather in and just make the, the more of a softer blend because you don't see those hard, crisp lines a lot right. of times. And so, yeah, I would do that. And when I put them out there, it was like, man, we're going to hunt over this. Yeah, these are gun decoys. And yeah. beat them up. I, I never babied them. Yeah. You know, you think that, you know, you spend down. It's like, I got all winter next winter paint on them. Don't worry about it. Well, and real ducks aren't perfect either. No, they're not. Yeah. They're, they're, not. they're beat up. They're missing feathers. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 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 It, it's always funny. If you've got like a brand new set of uh, plastic decoys that are painted just perfectly, and you throw them out there, and some you know real ducks come and land in them, that's pretty easy to tell what's a real duck yeah. because they're the imperfect ones. They're yeah. the ones that don't look quite quite yeah. right. Uh, it's amazing what you've done. I I think that that's super cool. When I was growing up, my first decoys were plywood goose decoys. Yeah. Uh, plywood silhouettes that yeah. had like a, um, a surveyor stake on yeah. it. Yeah. And hammering a surveyor stake into frozen ground, you yeah. know. I'd be like propping them up with cow turds in a field. And I killed birds over oh, them. Yeah. It's yeah. remarkable. Yeah. But there's something about actual paint that you apply that I think makes a difference to birds. And I know they can see part of the ultraviolet light spectrum. Yep. And, and the way light comes off of 
a plastic decoy is very different from the way it comes off of a hand-painted wood decoy. Yeah, it, yeah. it's amazing. It's, uh, it, t it takes you, I don't know, I, I, wanted, I wanted to have my own painted decoys. Yeah. And I wanted to have my own, decoy, my own duck boat. Yeah. And I wanted to have my dogs trained by me. Yeah. And that's what it, I felt like I kept taking my hunt to the next level. Yeah. You know. And so um, in Wildfall Magazine in, in 2015, my, I, had a, I, put, I had a boat built for me, custom built up in Canada. And I built a blind for it. I um, painted it myself. I entered in um, to some blind contest they had at the time. I entered. I took second place in a national contest with wow. this. Yeah, with that boat. That's awesome. And they called it the Beast from the East. If you go to October of uh, 15, you'll see the page. Okay. And that bird, that boat, I just sold it because I, you know, I've lost the passion for hunting goose hunting after my youngest son passed away this year. Right. And so um, duck hunting. I love. I'm very, very sorry for your loss. By oh, the way. I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. We know he's. You know he's. You know his faith in the Lord grew and intensified at, through all this. Um, and I know he's with the Lord, and I'm going to see him again, you know. So I have the total peace and joy of knowing that, and I just praise God for what he did to our family. Um, the night that uh, he passed, uh, we had the whole entire family there in the room when he passed, and uh, it was such a, a blessing. There was a time of peace and that I can't even explain what uh, – what came across that, you know, Bam was there. Um, <laughs> a funny story with Bam. Um, Dave was laying there the day before he passed away, and he says, I'd like to have all the family pay, pray for me. And I said, so we did. Well, it came Brian's turn. And it's the first time I've ever heard anybody ask the Lord and pray to the Lord, and you drop an F-bomb in the middle of it, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I look at yeah. Brian, he looks at me, he looks, Pop, I'm real. And I said, that's what God wants to hear. He wants to hear those real prayers. Yeah. You know, if you're mad, he wants to know it. You know, it's not gonna, he's not going to stop listening to your prayers if you drop an F-bomb in the middle of yeah. him, you know? But it was a blessing, you know, that David, um, he was here for 36 years, you know? He was uh, one of two of my hunting buddies. I, I develop those kids you know and it's kind of funny because it was an old saying we say when marshals hunt together things die yeah. and that's the way it was it was like we were a well-oiled tuned machine everybody had their roles they all had their parts and one of us would be running the boat and the other two would be setting decoys and we're running the boat and picking up decoys or we all knew and you know we we always and i've always been party of three it was either it was brian david and myself or if we take out a friend it was only but the three of us you know and so it was fun i tell you what the, some of the greatest hunts i've ever had in my entire life is watching those boys hunt and uh there was a time when uh we were hunting this, this little island it was called the toad hole and brian and david and i were in a blind we shot two or three bufflehead and whistlers you know and it was like a little cove and it was a western wind it was blown right into the cove i'm out there and i'm reaching for this one bird i was in a kayak and the two boys were over top of the decoy spread and i dropped the paddle and the wind caught it, and it blew it away. I wasn't in any trouble. I could have got out and walked, man. It was so shallow. It was like knee-deep, a little over knee-deep. I probably should have, but I didn't. But I sat there, and birds were working the spread, and I watched those two boys. And it was like I had the biggest, dumbest father's grin on my face. I had My smile was bigger than my face, man. It was like I was so proud of watching those boys sitting there. Those two boys just pounding and just beating up on them birds, man. It was like, yeah. You know, it was like, yeah. You know, there's just words can't describe you know, the, the, the joy, you know, a father gets when he sees, you know, his boys um, actually coming out and, and being in that, but having a passion for it, you know, they didn't feel they had to be there. And I was telling one of his buddies this morning at breakfast, I said, you know, when it comes time to get those boys to get up to go to church or go to school, I had to fight tooth and nail to get them out of their bed. I said, some mornings I'd wake up and I said, man, we're going hunting. I said, wake up, boys, we're playing hooky today. We're going hunting, you know, and they 
would, it's like the three of us would get jammed in the door trying to get out of that room at the same time because they were just so excited to get involved in something like that, you yeah. know, and to be a part of that. And when we were playing football, I have to get them back by 11 or they couldn't play the game. So. Well, now you've got some pretty lethal granddaughters. My granddaughter. Holy cow. <laughs> She's my hero. That girl is phenomenal. Yeah. I, I brag on her more than I do my own boys. And uh, this girl, it's like I look at her and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this girl. It was kind of funny years ago. I love that Blacktail video. Oh, the fun. I sat yeah. there and I shared that and I watched that. I watched that about three, four times a week. I cried. Oh yeah, it was. Well, I didn't quite get that far, but it yeah. was like I was like I had a, I had a lot of joy just blowing yeah. on me. You know, I'm I'm looking to high five anybody at the house or anywhere I'm showing yeah. it. You know, that's my granddaughter. You I, know, Christy's such a, you know. But there was a video yeah. years ago where, or not a video, but it was a something that was a meme or whatever, and it had a picture of Ram. He's up there. He's got a rifle. You know, he's got it scoped and he's all dialed in right and. You've got Christy sitting there in this in this place where they're shooting, and she's laying there, and she's got like a little tutu on. Man, she's got fairy wings on, you know. She's yeah. this little picture of sweet innocence, you know. And she's got the binoculars, and she's doing the ranging and all this stuff. And I think the captain said, "Which one was it, honey?" It was the third boy on the left, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so that hurt her feelings, you know. But now, I mean, she's going for her, you know, world rankings with Taekwondo. Yeah, you know if. She can't kill you at a thousand yards. She can kill you if you get in a fight with her. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, that girl is like she three three rounds and she made a a, a mile shot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, her and Bam out out in the middle of desert shooting at six hundred fifty with a heavy cross win. I mean, it's crazy. This yeah. girl is phenomenal. She's you know? getting along with that cross rifle pretty well. Oh, I'm telling you, that girl yeah. is. Yeah. She. Yeah. She's dialed into it. You yeah. know, and Sig's blessed them and that black tail and yeah. that was great. That was a great video. Yeah, seeing all that. I don't know. I'm I'm not a I'm not a very emotional guy, but um, but I love Bam. He's one of my best friends. Yeah. And and our friendship is different from any other friendship that I have. And you know when when he started talking in that video about you know just kind of like you are, just how proud he was of his yep. daughter, yep. and he kind of teared up. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're kind of getting me a little bit here. There's too. a soft side to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, that's, well, that's him. It's a uh, it's an honor to meet you, and I appreciate your time here. Well, I appreciate today. you. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. Everything that Six doing. Yeah. Hey. Thank you. Yep. Bye bye. What's going on at Dark Energy today? Oh man, Booth has been busy. Yeah. And uh, oh. Yeah, it's been fun. It when we come back to this show, we see so many familiar faces. Isn't that nice? Yeah, and you know we hear like stories about like you know stuff people hunted successfully and unsuccessfully, right? Yeah. And like missed shots and good stories and f familiar faces. So it's man, it's such a good time. Yeah. And so I mean, on top of that, we sell product and answer questions. And so and you guys selling stuff at the show right now? Oh yeah, absolutely. Cool. Do you like where your booth is? I was not sure if I was going to like it, but Alyssa, isn't it, hasn't it been good? It seems like traffic has been nonstop. That's great. And so it seems like, yeah, the show is a lot busier than I was expecting. Yeah. We're kind of in a weird spot right here, but when people finally find us, they're really excited. Dude, you know what? If, if you had a sign, a big old thing that from the rafters, yeah. then, oh, man, it would be a, this would be a, the busiest booth. Like a hot air balloon? I mean, I'm a big SIG fan, man. You know, Me I, too. I freaked out when I, when I saw it over here. I was like, <laughs> oh, yes, finally. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And so, yeah. So what does Dark Energy make? Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, my name's Garrett Ida. 
uh, CEO and founder of Dark Energy, and we make rugged power products. We uh, I like the way you say that. Yeah, we 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 stick to uh, we like products that are you know backcountry tested. Yeah, and uh, more and more so uh, becoming battlefield tested too. Sure. And so, kind of similar to how Sig has approached uh, both those markets. Yeah. And you know, and it's been great. for that matter, right? Yeah, precisely, yeah. right? And so it's it's funny how how much you know the the product demands for somebody who is hunting uh you know in the backcountry for like mule deer or elk or whatever can be similar to what guys are hunting you know people in Afghanistan or wherever they may be deployed. Shockingly similar. And so yeah, the the weather stresses. The collisions that that those objects have with other items, mm-hmm. um, and and having done a lot of both, I I can honestly say that like the stresses that gear go through, both in combat and hunting, are very very similar. Totally, yeah, totally. And so yeah, we noticed that there's a huge crossover from, you know, our military crowd, yeah, into who find hunting after after you know getting out, and uh, it's fun to see products being used on both sides. Sure. Yeah, and so... Uh, What's different about your power pack than anybody else's? Like something that you'd get off Amazon. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, built for the task. Yeah. Right? Ours are built, and originally they were built, admittedly, for, you know, my usage, which was uh, backcountry, typically high altitude, high alpine type environments. Um, I might get rained on randomly. Um Probably and, will. Right. And so, you know, there were many times in August, September time when out of nowhere, I'd just get dumped on for like a couple hours, get completely soaked, and then, you know, it would open up again and, uh, you know, generally clear size. And so needed to have products that were completely waterproof, uh, super rugged. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just, I'm, uh, I'm of the younger generation and technology whether it be, you know, Onyx maps on my phone or an inReach or some other type of GPS system or my radios or sat phones. I mean, there's just technology all over the place. And, uh, and it requires electricity. It yeah. uses electricity. Yeah, exactly. You might need to refill that without coming back to town. Oh, precisely. Yeah. And so that's kind of where Dark Energy was born, yeah. um, like up on top of a mountain and uh, in Utah. And cool. so... Uh, all of our stuff is just precisely that, truly submergible IP68 waterproof. Uh, what does IP68 mean? Yeah, so that's that's much more of a popular standard in Europe, to be honest. Okay. Um, what that means is ingress, protection. The six is for solids. The eight is for liquids. Okay. And so it's zero to six and zero to eight. And so basically it's the maximum protection for that standard. Okay. Basically, it means you can submerge it for a couple meters for, you know, indefinitely. Yeah. And so, uh, for us... Not many <coughs> electronics can pull that off. Right. Um, you know, there's, like, water-resistant, and then there's waterproof, and these are... These are this is waterproof. Yeah. And so, um, that, and on top of it, uh, our, our products are built to be uh, used in the cold as well. And, you know, for you... For the sheep hunters, for the, uh, you know, late season guys, for the, you know, Arctic Circle, Yukon, Alaska crew, all those, you need something that's going to be reliable in the cold. Sure. And even now, like, 
I'm running thermal optics quite a bit for coyotes in the wintertime. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, being able to, to run a thermal optic off of a battery pack is a big deal, and that keeps me in the field a lot longer without having to spend money on expensive batteries over and over and over again. Like, I can just recharge this thing on the wall. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it used to be that the, you know, rail-mounted or, you know, weapon system-mounted accessories, of which there are more and more, right? Yeah. Thermals, uh, you know, night vision, IR, etc. Those things are proliferating. Yeah. Becoming much more popular. Yep. And, you know, what's exciting is dark energy as a much more tailored power solution for those types of systems. And even even for the military crowd, the helmet-mounted sure. systems, you know. If you're running nods for all those military guys listening, uh, there's a power solution from dark energy coming that is going to make their lives a lot easier. That's exciting. So yeah. That's exciting. Um, everybody, th- I think, watches, like, they play video games or... Um, I don't know, watch movies, and they think that night vision goggles are like the coolest <laughs> thing in the world. I can tell you that that is some of the more miserable training I was ever a part of. Yeah. Like, you want to see a bunch of, like, tough, grown men just having a hard time walking around? <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Yeah. I yes. can't. I was, at, I was talking with a buddy of mine about this who was a Black Hawk pilot, and I was like, man, what did they give you? like to be able to land a helicopter at night or tow into a hillside. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And like barely get close enough to the hillside that somebody could jump on the aircraft, but not run your rotor blades into it. Like some pretty precarious flying. Right. Right. He's like literally the same thing that you're bumping into trees with. I was like, Oh really? Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. How funny. I didn't know that. But technology's moved a long way. So the stuff that we have now is a lot better. And I think people look at like a zero dark 30 type movie and see guys running around with $60,000, you know, four-barrel night vision. And they're like, man, the military has the best of it. I'm like, not the Marines, not bro. Not the Marines. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Yeah, we got to – that, that Marine budget, man. Those are some rookie numbers, man. We got to bump those numbers way up. Yeah. got to well, get that Army budget. <laughs> it's uh, – it's good seeing you here, man, and I appreciate it. If people want to learn more about Dark Energy, where do they find you? Right. Uh, head on over to darkenergy.com, our homepage, uh, and also you can find us um, and get in contact with us through platforms like Instagram. Uh, our handle is darkenergytech, and uh, a lot of good people over here at Dark Energy. We'd like to answer any questions that you have, um, give out recommendations for you know systems and products and whatnot we're happy to do it awesome and i know you got some cool stuff that uh that is on the way and uh, i think it's probably worth you folks following along so that you know when it happens absolutely absolutely thank you sir you bet all right we got lydia smith what's your story oh man where do i start uh grew up in a nice little family in idaho uh you know, I've been around horses my whole life, but uh, the hunting thing definitely came a lot later. But uh, yeah. when, did, when did you start hunting? When I was 18. Okay. So um, family didn't hire anything like that, but I've always just had a connection to it. Always wanted to do it, and uh, right around 18, that was when I did my first hunt. I did hunters when I was 16. Saved up money, went through the eight hours of training and all that stuff, and then yeah, eventually made it and uh, shot my first deer at 18. So when did the art thing start for you? Since I was very young. Okay. So it's actually kind of funny there, too. My mom, uh, 
She called me the seek and destroy child because I was very creative as a toddler and I just liked to mess with things. And as soon as she handed me a paper and pencil, I just never, I stopped being, you know, all my creative deal and put it all into paper and been drawing ever since. Yeah. I I think all little kids are artists. Yes. And then at some point somebody like emerges in the class as like, you're, you're the artist in the class and everybody else goes, well, I, I guess maybe I'm not good at it. So a lot of kids quit. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it's too bad. It is. Because yeah. it, it's, it's good for you. It's good for you to create things and Absolutely. to be artistic. I think that that's something that's missing from a lot of people. Absolutely. And there's like all sorts of different forms of like being artistic as well, like with music and with photography, videography. Sure. Like there's all different forms of, uh, you know, the artistic sense. But uh, I do feel like you're correct on a lot of people just kind of with that. Yeah. Uh, fade away with age speaking of photography you have a really beautiful instagram thank you lots of great photos on there um who's taking those pictures um i would say about 85 to 90 percent of those are my own uh self-timed photos unless otherwise like noted i will tag you know somebody who's taking a photo of me but other than that i set up a tripod put it on a timer and run in front of it make sure i'm you know getting the shots of me just walking around and doing my thing nice so, yeah that's not an easy thing to nope. do <laughs> it's not like i'm sure if anyone was glassing me up from a distance away and saw what i was doing they'd think i was crazy <laughs> just like yeah. running back and forth from the camera but uh, what kind of yeah. camera are you using um a really cheap canon it's a dslr sl1 um but i need to upgrade i put that thing through hell and it's uh, getting pretty old so yeah, yeah. So just a canon, yep. Any big plans for this year? Yeah, I have quite a few, actually. Um, hunts are lining up like crazy. Probably the busiest hunting year I'll have uh, since I started. Yeah, as soon as uh, shed season's done, so living in Arizona right now, then I'll head back home to Idaho uh, in May. I'll be living out of a canvas tent all year. And then um, I have five hunts already planned. I have, you know, spring bear. Uh, pronghorn, archery elk, which I might be doing in New Mexico, which would be very cool. Um, I've guided there. I've just never hunted there. And then uh, my mule deer, whitetail, um, all sorts of fun things. I might do be, be doing two whitetail hunts, two elk hunts. Like, it's going to be pretty crazy. So, yeah. yeah. And it tends to get busier as you get closer to it. I've noticed, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Even my years that now, like this time of year, I don't have very much on the books, but I know that when August starts, I won't get a breath until December, yep. <laughs> you know? Very true. Yeah. That's just how it goes, I guess. I mean, I love it, but man, it definitely, uh, it's a lot. So yeah, yeah it's a great thing. Absolutely. Well, that's cool. Um, I think it, it's interesting to guide in a place that you haven't hunted and I can imagine people thinking about that and being like, well, you don't have any business guiding there if you haven't hunted there. Right. And, uh, folks just don't understand how different hunting and guiding actually are. Yeah. What are some of those important differences for you? Um, For guiding, so in general, like finding elk, whether you're hunting or guiding, that's kind of a pretty general thing there. And through the years that I have hunted elk, um, you know, I'm gaining knowledge. I'm still learning. But with that knowledge, I feel pretty confident in finding elk wherever I go. And so that, for me, has helped guiding in places I haven't hunted necessarily. Not only that, but I will go, you know, prior to showing up and obviously scout and, you know, figure out the land and how the elk are. Because elk do change behaviors varying on where they are and the pressure. And so, but I would say kind of in that uh, sense, just getting the elk, um, because that's what I typically guide. Just learning 
kind of their behaviors, where they're going to find them, um, will really help you wherever you go. And so I guess if somebody were to say, like, oh, you've never hunted them, then why are you out guiding them? It's like, well, I know where they are, first of all, typically. And I'm also putting in that uh, effort beforehand, even before I take a hunter out, because... I mean, I wouldn't do that to a client, you know, I was like, I haven't even been here at all, but we're just going to wing it. So, I mean, I go out prior to, you know, taking my client out and scouting. I mean, that's just kind of common sense to me, I guess. I don't know. But, yeah. Yeah. Which do you enjoy more? Hunting or guiding? Yeah. Um, I think obviously if I had to choose, it'd be hunting, but I love guiding in a sense of uh, connecting with people who have very similar views on hunting, you know, having that passion um, and sharing that with people is really incredible, especially people who have never hunted an elk, for example, or a mule deer, you know, somebody from back east and sharing that moment with them is pretty dang cool, um, especially when they just appreciate it to the um, extent that you do. And so there's a really like cool uh, bond and connection that can happen there. I've met some incredible people through guiding um, and I love helping people, uh, I guess, achieve that goal of getting their first bull or whatever it is. Um, but, I mean, if I did have to choose between the two, it would definitely just be hunting just because um, that's so much of who I am, and I can never not do that for myself. And it's a very much uh, – what's the word? Like, when I go out, it's very recharging, and it's not necessarily an escape, but it's uh, who I feel like that's how I am as human is going out and hunting is kind of just what I've built myself around. Um, and it's like my time to grow and to like reflect. And so uh, to hunt by myself or to guide, I would probably have to do with just hunting for myself. Yeah. 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 Me too. <laughs> I started guiding when I was 14. That is awesome. And my goal all along um, was to get on the other side of the trigger is the way I describe it. Yep. And I still love guiding. I still yep. guide. But they're very different things for me. Yes. Guiding and hunting are very, very different. Absolutely. Different skills. They give me different things and they take different things away from me. Yeah. And I think as I, as I get older, it becomes more important who I'm hunting with when I can hunt on my yes. own. Yeah. But, man, the, the opportunity I've had with, with the brands that I work with, mostly, mostly Sig Sauer, um, to be able to actually make money by hunting by being on the other side of the trigger has been so cool Absolutely. like that was the childhood dream that didn't even <laughs> exist when i was a kid and and i finally get to do it now and i get to do it with incredible people it's and, pretty awesome. and do these really fun events <laughs> uh it's just fun i love it uh and it sounds like we might be uh, seeing each other at some more events this year look forward to Definitely. that if if that ends up happening and um I'm excited for your future. You know, Thank I've you, yeah. I've been uh, kind of watching you progress for the last couple of years, and it's it's been neat to see. Lots it's of progress. It's been neat to see. <laughs> but no, I appreciate that's very cool. Thank yeah. you. And uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your winter in Arizona. Absolutely. You old person. <laughs> oh yeah, my joints are definitely uh, going to be aging a lot quicker than most people's. So <laughs> that's fine though. If uh, if people want to follow along or buy some art, uh, where do they do that? You can uh, find me on Instagram, Lydia Smith uh, zero zero for my personal, and then for my art, Lydia underscore Smith underscore art, and then I do have a website as well. Lydia Smith Art, and then uh, the brand website, uh, ivorypeaksbrand.com. So you can find any of my stuff amongst those uh, social media platforms, as well as Facebook, I believe. So, okay. Yeah. And you can find that in the show notes, in the podcast description. There will be links to all that stuff, along with links for everything else and everybody else that we've been talking about here at the Hunt Expo. Thank you for your time. Thank you.
did it really start with Saxton Pope? It started with Ishii. Yeah, Ishii's incredible. Yes. What an amazing story. That entire story just blows me away. Yeah. And, and I didn't even realize a lot of that story until I came to work for Pope and Young. Yeah. And, that's, and that was being a 30-year bow hunter. One of the things that amazes me the most about Ishii is how culturally different his tribe was from all of the other tribes. Like, it, their language was separate. How they shot bows was different. How they built broadheads was different. It was. It was its own entire, I mean, it literally was its own own space, its own yeah. tribe, its own people. This whole way of doing things was, was different than yeah. what we were used to at the time. And, and Ishii himself turned out to be incredibly adaptable in, in the way that he was able to come from living by himself in this remote valley of Northern California to living at a university as a janitor. Can you imagine that no. culture shock? It's like, hey, I'm I'm wild, I'm free, I'm living off the land, 100. percent Don't even know what civilization is, and then, bam! I walk out of the forest, and now I'm, you know, poked and prodded and studied, and literally in the middle of it. That I can't imagine what he was going through, and not speaking the language. Right. It'd be like taking one of us and putting us to work on like an alien spaceship exactly and expecting us to make that transition yes yeah yeah it definitely alien so who are you jason jason roundsville the executive director of pope and young executive director of pope and yes young. sir so starting with ishii and saxon pope we sort of breathe life back into american archery absolutely and it's it's part of a story that I think a lot of American bow hunters and archers take for granted. I'd been a 30-year bow hunter, and I came on, and when I really delved into the history of Pope and Young, I realized, gee, the entire club was founded around creating seasons all across North America for us to legally hunt with a bow and arrow. Yeah. I mean, I had started bow hunting, and there had always been a bow season that I was aware of. And I did not realize how much effort, you know, the record books. That was initially designed to show that, you know, bows and arrows were a, a capable means of taking big game. Right. And obviously it is, but that's why we were formed, so that they could go to the fish and game department all across the country and say, hey, here's a legitimate weapon we feel that we need a season for this. And they opened it up, and we've got them all over. And that continues even now, I think two years, might be three years ago now, Russia finally opened a bow season. Yeah, and we take that for granted as Americans. I lived in Norway for a year when I was in high school, and archery hunting is illegal there. Yes. And I, I couldn't even imagine that that would be a thing, because in Oregon, like, if I wanted to hunt every year, the bow was the only way that i could do it unless you have 25 points but you get to do that once <laughs> you only, get, you only once. get to do that once yeah yeah no absolutely and uh it's something i i grew up in oregon and so i started bow hunting because the rifle season was nine days archery season was a month long and it was a, a really good time for me august september so it i'd rather be out there i'd rather have 30 days of opportunity than nine right and it it just when we talk to a lot of bow hunters, you know, Chuck Adams and, and a lot of these guys, the reason that they took up archery 
was to get more time in the field. Yep. You know, instead of being out there, and nothing against rifles. I, I hunt with rifles as well. But, you know, if, if you're 150 yards from a, your quarry with a rifle, a lot of times that game is over. Not always, but a lot of times the game is over. 150 yards with the boat, you may not even be in the game. Sure. And so all of a sudden you're not, you know, figuring out how you're going to pack this back to the camp or the truck. You're figuring out how to get into the game so that you have a chance to pack it back to the truck. It's just, it's different. It's a different mindset. And, and for me, it's provided a lot of opportunities to be a little more intimate with the game. You know, when, when some folks, their season's over because they're punching a tag, I've got another 60 yards to get into the, the position I want to be in with a bow. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it, it's an interesting thing. It's interesting how technology and archery has both changed and not changed. So if we take the capabilities of a Persian recurve from 3,000 years ago, those capabilities have not been doubled by any bow today. And there's almost no technology I can think of that has not at least doubled its capabilities in the past three millennia. Yeah. Right? It's, you know, there's been a, a plethora of advancements, but it's, like you say, it's not, you know, 30 times better better than it used to be. You know, you take a, a musket versus today's modern rifles, there wasn't anybody shooting a musket 1,200 yards. No. You know, today, it's, I mean, I see what people can do with some of these modern rifles. It just baffles me. Yeah. So... One of the things that I commonly bring up with gun hunters, uh, or I guess more so with archery hunters, I ask them, why, why is it that you bow hunt? What's it important to you about the bow hunting aspect? And for them, a lot of it is the closeness, mm-hmm. right? The, just the proximity to the animal is very, very important to them. What I remind them is that just because you have a gun in your hand doesn't mean that you can't get close. Right. So if you want to have that experience, you can have that with a gun too. Yes. Yeah. And it's, I, I think, I, you know, one of the things that I see is, you know, you'll see somebody post something and they're like, oh, I shot him at, you know, 625 yards, didn't even know I was there. Oh, 625 yards, you wouldn't expect him to know you were there. You know, if you do that with a recurve at 12 yards, Hey, shot him at 12 yards. He didn't know I was there. That's just a little, to me, it's a little bit different level. Yeah. And so not taking anything away from, from the other hunters out there. It's just, you know, it's just that next level. I love long-range shooting. I love the math. I love the weather. I love the guns and the optics. But I like close-range hunting. Yes. And I don't care what the weapon is, but closer is better. Some of these longer shots I've taken across canyons or whatever – by the time I get over there, it's half a day later, and that excitement has been replaced with it, with exhaustion yeah. just from getting to the animal. But when it's close, that is a different feeling. The chemicals in your body are different. It's, it's really interesting. I was talking with Brad Brooks from Argali about this a few weeks ago on the podcast, and for him, it's the flight of the arrow and the slowness of the arrow. And while we always talk about it as bow hunting— I think we might be doing ourselves a disservice by not calling it arrow hunting because the arrow is the thing that strings yeah. everything together within this, this aspect of hunting. It's, it, it's really less to do with the bow and more to do with the arrow. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. I don't notice it so much when I'm the one taking the shot, but when I'm watching, when I'm out there with a friend and all of a sudden they launch an arrow 
and you're watching it and you watch the trajectory of this arrow and you're like oh my gosh it's going to be high and then it kind of starts dropping into the zone and then you're like okay that looked pretty good and and it's that's all happening in a you know a second or it's just happening so fast but there's this whole you know i i don't know emotional roller coaster in that second of is it gonna is it gonna be high is it gonna be low oh good hit so there's there's a lot to it and i don't notice that as much when i'm shooting but if i'm watching somebody shoot i see that quite a bit i I go through that emotion i guess i wear a a garmin watch that has a heart rate monitor on it yeah and when i'm guiding a lot of times my heart rate is 30 or 40 beats per minute higher than when i'm actually the one on the trigger yeah it's really interesting uh Speaking of archery technology, we're right here next to uh, the the Black Ovis Camo Fire Garmin booth. Garmin has probably the most advanced piece of archery technology in the world, being the Zero Bow Sight. They do. Yeah. How do you feel like that fits in with with what Pope and Young has to say about archery? That's a great question. And as I looked over there and saw that bow sight, I was like, oh, man, he's going to ask about the bow sight. So, um Number one, huge fan of Garmin. They're a corporate partner with Pope and Young, great supporters of, of bow hunting and, and the whole outdoors. And so with their site, as, as is our current policy, we do not accept animals into the record books that are taken with an electronic site. And so we are constantly kind of on the edge of protecting the records and the program you know so that we have consistency through the ages and and what some people don't realize is is back in the day you know the the founders of this you know saxon pope he used the the very best technology that was available to him at the time of course you know he and and some of these other guys as you go through the progression they weren't really limiting themselves they they would try new things when it comes to the electronic sites, that's something that, you know, maybe in 10 years, we're looking at that. Right now, um, you know, we're looking at basically maintaining the integrity of the records so that we're not putting a guy out there with a laser range finding site next to literally the guy in, in the, you know, 40s who's out there with a, a handmade stick bow and, and shooting fingers and, and homemade arrows. So that's kind of where we're at right now so it sounds to me like the record book for you is more about the hunter than it is about the animal it's it's actually the other way our entire records program is is more in in fact our awards program it's actually all about the animal we award for the animal okay and so you know our records we have the the largest collection of, of data points for north american big game out there and it's one of those things we use it, you know, universities will use our, our data for, for research. Um, we use it with fish and game agencies. And so there's a lot of things that we do with those records that a lot of people don't even realize. Are there any directions that you see wildlife management going right now that you feel like is, is a threat to sort of the historical context of the size of animals that are in the book? Um, like, are, are we heading towards any traps? Um, you know, as soon as you think there would be one or that this might be one, then all of a sudden there's another new world record popping up. And so I look at that, 
you know, at our convention last year in Reno, I think we had we recognized out of 29 species, we recognized 10 new world records. And so if you look at that, you know, through the eight, and that's over a two-year span. That's unlikely. It's it's the highest number of new world records we've had in our 60 years, or in, in our 30 biennials. Anyway. What do you attribute that to? It's it's climate I, change, global warming. <laughs> I'm going to say, you know, here's what I'm <laughs> going to attribute it to. I think it is attributed to the North American model of wildlife management works. Where it's allowed to, to be put in place and allowed to be managed. You know, if, if this is where we have wildlife professionals. It's their job. It's their career. It's their entire knowledge base on how to manage the resource. And so where we're allowing them to do that and where we're allowing our professionals to do their jobs, it's working. And we're getting these a lot of great hunting opportunities, opportunities at, at obviously mature animals because we're, we're literally taking world record class animals. I think the so for me, the thing that gets in the way of that, I would say, is is some of these places where they are trying to let the wildlife management be done at a ballot box where they're having somebody who lives in the middle of a city who's never even maybe seen a deer or an elk or a cougar and they're letting them vote on something that should be in the wildlife manager's hands. Massive problem in a number of states. Yes. Oregon very much included. Very much so. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. It, It is unfortunate. And then on the other side of that, part of the difficulty is if we leave it up to wildlife managers um, state and federal agencies, uh, they're very susceptible to lawsuits. And they be, and because of that, they become incredibly risk-averse. They do. And, and not only that, but a lot of fish and game agencies are directed by an appointed council. Of course. And so a wildlife I, commission. Yes. It's appointed by the governor. Yes. And so not all... Go- I mean, I was talking to somebody today, and their governor is is you know, on, on one side of the aisle and is appointing non-hunters to the commission. And it's like, well, you know, I can't imagine being put on a commission to relegate, you know, knitting. I don't know anything about knitting. I'm not against knitting. I'm, you know, I'm sure I'm for knitting, but having me come in and make regulations on knitting or something like that just doesn't make any sense. And so to bring people in, that don't have a wildlife background and don't have any hunting knowledge or, or resource knowledge, that, to me, that's, that's scary. Yeah. I, I spoke with a, a wildlife commissioner from Oregon about crossbows a couple of years ago. And I don't know where you guys land on them. It doesn't really matter for the context of, the, of this point. But I wanted uh, crossbows because I guide a lot of wounded veterans. And some of these guys are missing limbs, right? So if they want to engage in archery, some of these guys who with disabilities, this is their only way to do it. And I said, what do you think about that? For people with disabilities, should we consider having a crossbow opportunity? And he said, no, because crossbows fire arrows at the same speed as rifle bullets. I was like, okay. Lot to unpack here. They're not arrows. It's not the same speed as rifle bullets. And you're the guy making these decisions? Yeah. Like you're completely Ill, Ill-informed about it. 
um, it was really upsetting to me. And, and that's unfortunately the case with a lot of Fish and Wildlife Commissions. And they're more interested in, in representing a, a really diverse group of stakeholders than they are people who are informed to be able to make these decisions that benefit wildlife the best. Yeah. And, you know, there's a place for, you know, obviously we don't allow crossbow entries in, in the record books. Um, and, you know, generally we're not opposed to anybody hunting with, you know, any legal means. We just think there's a place for that. You know, yeah. and so, so for me, it's, it's easy. You know, when, when people talk about crossbows, I'm like, yeah, crossbows, not bow equipment. I can't use it in the state I live in. And so, you know, if, if crossbows were put into kind of the, you know, the muzzleloader category, it seems to me like where would be maybe a little bit more natural. Although, gosh, there's guys shooting 600 yards with a muzzleloader now. So that's not exactly, you know, what you think of when the old, with the old smoke pole anymore. So. Well, and crossbows have been around for a thousand years. They ha- yes. You know, it's not like crossbows are brand new equipment. Yeah. So there, there's some interesting aspects to all of this, and it's, it's fun to talk about. It's easy to start separating people into these little groups, and, and I consider it part of my, my ethical responsibility as a hunter to try to remind everybody that, yeah, you are a niche in this group, but you're part of the bigger picture as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, I think that's one of the things we need to recognize is, is that we keep getting splintered. You know, the, the antis are coming after us, period. They just are. If you can't see it, you're not paying attention. It may not be in your state or your neighborhood, but they're coming. And they don't do it all at once. Uh, they're not saying, hey, we want to abolish all hunting and fishing and everything else. They come out and they say, well, we're just going to get rid of just, just bear hunting. Yeah. So if you're not a bear hunter, if you're a bird hunter or a deer hunter or whatever, then you're like, well, it's not really my problem. You know, that's the bear guys. And they, they get rid of just that. And then they come after the cougars. And then they come out. And so they're just splintering us off. And what we need to do as a whole is we need to stand together. When they come after bears, just assume that's whatever your favorite is. If you like to chase elk or you like to chase grouse, whatever it is, assume that you're side by side with those bear hunters and and we need to stand in solidarity as sportsmen and women to make sure our voice is heard and we are united and and we may not all believe exactly the same thing but we all believe in our right to get out there and hunt and fish and we saw that in washington this year washington is one of the worst states in the country for non-residents but when that commission stepped out and banned bear hunting without giving people notice that they were going to even talk about it Hunters, whether they're bear hunters or not, from all over the country, stepped up to oppose that. Yes. And I was really proud of our community for that, and they're actually gaining some ground on it. That It is, and that's a nice win. That's one of those things where you see, and, and who knows where it's going to be in five years, but for right now, I think they realized, oops, maybe this wasn't as clear-cut of a decision as we thought, yep. and and, our, and and did the right thing by, by looking at it again and making some good decisions there. Where can people learn more about Pope and Young? You know, we have a brand new website, literally just dropped a couple weeks ago. It's www.pope-young.org. Okay. And so go on there. There's a lot of information. And just if you have questions, you know, reach out to one of the team members on there. I've got an amazing staff. They work very hard. I've got a very dedicated board of directors. And, you know, our, our new philosophy, I don't know if it's a new philosophy, but our re-envisioned or or double down if you will is we are here to preserve promote and protect bow hunting 
that's what we're all about. Yep. And so is are the records part of that? Absolutely. You know, you can't preserve your heritage with without that. We need to know what's been done and and where we've been and and so we have that. We've got that the museum that we're moving down to the uh, Bass Pro Wonders of Wildlife. So preserve aspect we're doing the the promote we're out obviously we're here at the shows we're doing a lot of other things with mountain archery festival and different different things to promote bow hunting get people involved and then protecting you'll if you have something in your neck of the woods kind of like the bear thing or you know we just jumped in with the colorado bow hunters not long ago there was there were some things threatening <laughs> the hunter orange the hunter yeah, orange yeah, you know yeah. and and it's once again it's not a big thing. Is it really a big deal if I have to wear some orange? Probably not. But but why, you know, the reasoning behind it was not sound. It's not a scientific-based decision. It was an emotional-based, you know, thing. Oh, you know, do we need to pass this? No, we don't need to pass it. It's, so I think, you know, the more we can jump in with, with folks and, and help protect the opportunities that we do have, the, the more that we'll all benefit in the long run cool thank you for your time hey thanks for having me it was a pleasure to be here awesome from townsend montana did you uh did you guys drive down here you fly we did we drove it took us about seven hours pretty easy trip Not nice roads bad. yeah and uh longrangeonly.com tell me about that longrangeonly.com i started that website in 2013 and uh we're about we wanted a place for people to come and learn the right way about long range especially in the hunting aspect of it and that's why our motto is we do long range right you know we try to we believe and know the hardest part is knowing when not to shoot you know i mean it, it's a big responsibility when you start shooting distance you got to realize how to do it so we thought uh, it's a coming upcoming thing everybody's getting into it we wanted to help people um you know teach them a little bit maybe and uh yeah, give them the opportunity to do it the right way how do you know how do you set those limits? Like, how do you learn that about yourself and, and your equipment? Like, how do you establish the maximum range that you should be shooting in the field at an animal? If you're not shooting a lot, you shouldn't be doing long-range hunting, you know. And if you're not, if you don't know before you pull the trigger what it's, what's going to happen, you're taking a shot you shouldn't be taking on an animal. You know, that's why we go out. We, the difference between long-range guys and your average hunter is... They practice a little bit before season. We practice all year round. Yeah. And if you don't, if you can't read the wind and you're not quite sure, you see some things happening in the canyon, some of the vegetation's moving this way or that way, we look for indicators and, and we get all the data we can and we take our time. And uh, the goal is one well-placed executed shot that, um, you know, that does the job quickly. Yeah. And, I mean, that can be everything. You know, we look for uh, indicators can be everything from moving grass, moving tree limbs, uh, I've even watched the steam come out of an elk's nose before to see what, what the wind that the animal is actually doing. If we're out in the flats hunting antelope, uh, wait till one of them moves a little bit. Watch the dust at their feet, see what it's doing there. If it's the same wind we think we got at the gun, we can make a very predictable uh, solution to, to dial the scope in and, and make a good shot. And the other thing is, uh, you know, being stable, setting the gun upright, knowing how to set a bipod up properly, the proper rear bag. And so, you know, you just got to be right. What range do you feel like long range starts at? Well, it depends. Now, with my 22, <laughs> yeah, it starts a little earlier, you sure. know. But you're, you know, I, I'm getting ready to do a really long range target shooting. Now we're talking target shooting. Some really long range stuff with my 22s. I shoot a Voodoo 22. Okay. And uh, I'm talking 
a long ways. You know, I think the record right now are some guys got some hits at 1,200 yards with a 22. I want to go past that. I want to see what I can do. So with that, with is that a 22, 22 long rifle? 22 long rifle, subsonic. And uh, I've shot mine to 850 yards with uh, pretty impressive accuracy. Those voodoo rifles are incredible. But, but anyway, so it depends on what you're shooting. I say anytime, you know, what's a long range shot with a bow? You know, anytime you got to start doing a lot of correcting and you got to have a firing solution or a wind solution, um, you're shooting long range. So it yeah. really depends on what you're in. It, let's just grab a rifle. Let's say a, a, your average long range 300 wind mag ready to shoot. To me, anything past 300 yards, you're starting to get into a little bit of long range. You know, past 500 for sure is long range. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I agree with that. If, uh, if I gave you uh, one of these cross rifles chambered in 308, Mm-hmm. It's a one-minute gun, and it's got mm-hmm. a perfect zero. Mm-hmm. And uh, the target was a 10-inch steel plate. Mm-hmm. And you had to bet me $10,000 that you were going to hit that plate on the first shot. And uh, you're locked inside of a van. You don't know what the wind is doing outside. Um, but you, you can go ahead and get prone and have a rear bag. Mm-hmm. What's the farthest distance out you're going to place that steel target and bet me $10,000 you're going to hit it? On a 10-inch plate with a one-minute gun? With a one-minute gun. Um, so, and, and you're talking, we'll have the shooting fire solution. We'll know what the dial-up is or the holdover or whatever. Yeah, it, it's, like known, it's, it's known range, but you've, okay. got to guess the, you've got to guess the wind. Oh, guessing the wind? Um, I'd feel pretty good about 600 yards and in. 600 yards? Yeah, I'd feel real good at 400, yeah. and I'd feel pretty good at 500. But I, I think 600 is a, is a very repeatable duel. I could probably put a series on it. After the first one, I'm sure we could, we could really sit there and ring it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, man, that that is a long ways for a lot of guys. It is, it is. But you got to understand, I shoot thousands of rounds a year. Yeah, I can shoot to twenty five hundred yards from my front yard. Yeah. So I load three rounds. If I'm doing load develop, I load three rounds. I step outside my garage door and I shoot. You know, that's something not everybody can do. You know, but I shoot a lot. You know, and and uh, I'll take my rifle for a hike. You know, and the whole idea there is, to, and this is great practice for anybody think about long range. It'll tell you this. Do this, and you'll know where you should not be shooting at animals. Just put your rifle on the pack and go, go for a hike. And then as you're walking along, when you start getting a little winded and a little bit tired and everything, look across the canyon and pick out a rock and check out a half minute size rock. In, in ideally in a in like a patch of dirt so if you miss you can see how far you missed by yeah you can measure it with your reticle yep and it just go down prone just yeah. like you're hunting and see if you can hit that rock you know if you're shooting at a at a five inch rock at a thousand yards you know a half minute target and you can click the edge of it or hit it hit on it you know you're you're pretty proficient if you can do that time after time but uh you know it'll tell you it'll teach you and you know be honest yourself because i'm gonna tell you right now you can have a train wreck when you give them a thousand yard head start on you and they're wounded you just ruined your hunt oh man and time of flight's a big factor on an animal it is it is we uh we do a lot of uh uh we do a lot of elr shooting too you know just at targets but uh you know i've shot to six thousand yards six thousand yards yeah and uh uh, you know, we're talking about a situation where a half mile an hour of wind will move your bullet during the flight time of maybe 20, 25 seconds. Uh, it'll move your bullet, a uh, half mile an hour wind might move your bullet 60 feet left or right. So those, everything on long range magnifies, every air magnifies with distance that's on a vector. 
okay? It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So, you know, that's why we reel it in. When the conditions are bad or we're not sure, we try to get closer. We always try to get as close as we can. But in the event where you got an 800-yard shot on a nice bull elk and it's calm and he's on the other side of the canyon and you can bag your rifle up and get solid as hell, if you've practiced, that should be a done deal. It sounds like your ranch is a very unsafe place for a coyote to be. <laughs> I, I have killed my mile coyote. So. Your mile coyote? Yeah, and a um, lot of thousand-yard coyotes. Yeah. So I kill the coyote. You know, when you take the hide off, then there ain't a whole lot there to shoot at. <laughs> it's about the size of a grapefruit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I killed the coyote at 3,650 meters. Holy cow. Yeah. That's incredible. It was with an M1A1 Abrams main battle tank. Oh, <laughs> hey, all's fair in love and war, right? <laughs> oh. Oh. Um, yeah. Well, I always say take enough gun. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, for me, having a gun that could carry me was a much better option than me carrying a gun in, in that case. But Well, you know, and what I'm getting at here is you just got to be honest about it. You know, there's a lot of bad press on long-range hunting, you know, type of situations. Um, I grew up in Iowa where we had to hunt with 12-gauge slugs or 20-gauge slugs, and yeah. we killed deer, and we did drives. We were always shooting at moving targets, and, I mean, let me tell you what, there's a lot of bad things that happened in those scenarios, too. So, oh, boy. Um, you just need to be true to yourself and know what you're doing, and, and if, if it don't feel good, keep hunting. You know what I mean? If, you, if, you, if you're not sure, keep hunting. What do you feel like is, is the frontier of, of learning about long-range shooting today? Um, like what's the last big thing that you learned or the thing that you're trying to learn right now? Biggest thing, and, and I've had some excellent people. One of, my, one of our editors, Ryan Furman, has kind of started me on this. And, uh, and, you know, I'm a guy that was already set in my ways on load development, what to do. But between him and Alex Wheeler, um, they've got me. And now I, I used to do all my load development at 100 yards. And then I checked and I tested it longer distances, you yeah. know, after I had the load work up. Well, we're reversing that. We only go to now. We're doing our load development seven, eight, nine hundred, maybe a thousand yards. Work the load up, and uh, what I'm learning is, and what what I've seen in this is, man, we were so stuck on high BC, and high BC bullets are great, but we were so stuck on that and low ES numbers off our chronograph. Well, I've seen some really low ES loads. You know, we're talking eight, eight, nine, ten feet per second ES on a load shoot terrible vertical at a thousand yards and then i've seen one with 35 feet per second es shoot really tight a tight water line at a thousand yards so it's all about the harmonics in the barrel and when the barrel when the bullet breaks the barrel and where that the the as you imagine that whip of where that bullet is actually leaving that barrel and you gotta it's kind of like uh if you want to throw a clay pigeon up and shoot it you want to shoot it right before it starts coming back down you know or or same thing with that you get in that node where those bullets are releasing and that node might be really wide that that few feet per second really doesn't matter as much as having a good node in the powder charge that you're working with so so now we're doing longer range load development and then we go to 100 yards to set our zero and, and and make sure it's on and check it all the time that's one of the things I appreciate about the real short barrel on these guns. There's a sacrifice in velocity, um, but the uh, the magnitude of the barrel whip is so much less. Yeah. It seems to make for a stiffer, more accurate barrel. It can. It sure can, yeah. You know, my, I got a 36-inch barrel on my 375 uh, shy Improved that I shoot ELR with, you know, and I mean, yeah. that, thing's a, that thing's a hammer way out yeah. there. But, so, but it's a big old truck, actually. The gun weighs 40-some pounds, you know, yeah. so. Well... It looks like uh, 
like your main squeeze is walking out the door. <laughs> she, so I've taken up enough of your she's time about, here. She's about had. I think I wore her feet out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, hey, sir. I appreciate thanks you. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, at what point do you consider an elk to be a big bull? <laughs> That's a loaded question. I mean, it depends on what the unit. What fun would a question be if it wasn't loaded? That's true. That's yeah. true. There's a lot of different things that factor into it. But a 330 bull, that's, yeah. a, that's a big bull. I don't Heck care yeah, what, what unit you're in, whether it's general or a limited entry unit. Yeah. That's a big bull. I feel like an average mature bull of the Rocky Mountain variety, you know, if he's between 280 and 300, that's a, that's a representative of the species that's represented at a very high level. Absolutely. There's a lot of bulls that don't ever get there, no matter how old they get. Absolutely. Yeah. Because of a variety of, of factors. But a 300-inch six-point, that's a big bull. Like, that's when you really look at it, bull. you're like, that is impressive. Yeah. For sure. And so, yeah, I mean, when you're first starting out, too, everybody has that progression of being an elk hunter, whether yeah. you started, you know, hunting with your family at a young age or maybe you started later in life. You might have, you know, a, a different uh, definition of what a big bull is. Uh, but uh, like last year in this hunt I, I did in Idaho, a five point was a big bull. Yeah. And that didn't stop me from taking it. Like, and I don't take very many five points over the years. Yeah. But in that unit, heck yeah. Yeah. That's a big bull for that unit. That's a shooter. Another thing that hangs some people up is uh, they'll pass on a bull that's a five point that's a really big five point. And I don't have any of that in me. Like if if I could find a 360 inch five point i would shoot that over a 400 inch six point i think it's so cool big five yeah. points are awesome but some guys just won't shoot them no matter how big they are yeah it's weird and i think when it comes to hunting it, it's great and it's fine and dandy to to focus on trophy but you also have to be realistic and realize that you know in elk hunting you, you don't know what's going to come around the next corner and you have to be prepared for anything and if what are you going to do if a 400 inch bull walks out and his beam is busted halfway up on one side yeah i know half the guys would say nope yep. passing them up hard no and then other guys guy eastman heck yeah we'll get it fixed let's kill it that's a huge bull yeah and so yeah you just got to be prepared and a lot of guys get really picky on some of these limited entry draws but like you said I would say like a 350-inch five-point is more rare than a 400-inch six-by-six. Sure, much more. And I, would, I wouldn't hesitate one bit. Yeah. What if they were both standing on the hillside together? <laughs> That's a tough one. That's a tough one. <laughs> Holy smokes, I need a drink after thinking about that. <laughs> that would be a good problem to have. Wouldn't it, though? Yeah, I mean, when I picture a big five-point, I picture a giant whale tail. Sure. Like, if, if it's, you know, a, a huge five, a yeah. 360, he's going to have a giant whale tail. And that back end on a bull is what really makes a bull to me. I love a good back end. Yeah. I love that big whale tail. Yeah. And a 400 is probably going to have a big whale tail, too, being yeah. a six-point. So I'd probably shoot the 400. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there's still just – I know guys that are, like, they're five-point guys. Yeah. And that's awesome, too, just like there's mule deer guys and there's elk sure. guys. Yeah. But. Yeah. Okay. So let's say somebody's, you know, killed, killed a pile of elk or, yeah, let's just say elk. Let's keep it on elk. They've killed a pile of elk in their life. You know, they've shot a, a bunch of bulls in that 280 to 300-inch class. 
And now they've decided this is the year that I'm going to go after that really big bull. What do they need to do differently? Assuming that that bull is in the unit that, that they have access to hunt. Yep. What's the difference in how you go about living your life in a way that gets you that bull that's really special? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is being able to pass bulls. And, yeah. I, and I would say a, a lot. there's a lot of elk hunters out there that if they've killed a lot of just, you know, bulls, they're not used to passing up elk. Yeah. And a good situation is, is hunting with my brother. He, he's a guy that has killed a lot of elk and a lot of bulls, but nothing over 350. Draws a limited entry tag, and it, it kind of gives him a complex because he's never passed up. So, you know, we're out hunting. He's never passed up a 300-inch six-point. And so in, in that regard, you just have to be able to step back and enjoy the hunt a little more and not get too focused on the kill because I feel like if, you've just, if you shoot a lot of elk over the years, you're there to kill, right? You're probably a meat hunter, which is great. So if, if you're on a trophy hunt, just relax and be able to pass up bulls. You don't have to shoot something on the first day. Look over the bulls that are in the area. And lastly, if you're a trophy hunter, you have to be prepared to go home empty-handed. That's huge because that, that's a part of trophy hunting if you're going to be that picky. Uh, if you don't like going home empty-handed, you're probably not going to be a good trophy hunter. Yeah. And I don't like going home empty-handed, but right. i got to be realistic too and actually hunt for a big bull. But it's hard. You can, you can talk about it. You can think about it. But you really never know until you're in the situation, and every situation's so different. And that's what probably makes it so appealing to, you know, hunters is that it's so different, and you can't plan it. You can't script it out. Everything is so different. What's your one that got away, your most memorable animal that, that got away? Hmm. I have been fortunate on the big bulls that I have encountered uh, that I've killed them. But I've also been in a situation where, and this, this is a good point, going into an area, I know there's big bulls in there, but a 340 bull came by me at 10 yards. You're going to shoot it, right? Yeah, the, the I next, am. Yeah, anybody, anybody yeah. in their right mind. The next day, I'm packing out that bull, cutting him up, and I hear a bugle, so I'm like, oh, I'll rip a bugle off and see what happens. And a solid 380 bull comes over. Oh. And so that's one that, like, I remember – but I, I don't think that I've ever had the opportunity to, you know, have hunted a giant of something and haven't killed it. I usually don't find them, or I've been lucky enough where I've gotten an arrow into them okay. or, or a bullet into them. Yeah. Same with deer? Yes. Yep. Uh, no. Here we go. Here's one for you. Okay. I forgot about this 200-inch right. mule deer. Ooh. So this That's was, the magical oh, number yeah. for deer. It's a magical it number. And I've been there. I've, I've had all the streak of luck, and I killed a 210-inch buck with my bow, velvet buck, as good as you can ever imagine it. It all went perfectly. But we all know bow hunting and hunting in general, it doesn't always go perfectly. Yeah. And so I was actually hunting an area that's better for elk. And one morning, I couldn't believe my eyes. I spot this giant four-point mule deer, giant, giant buck. Uh, just as, as clean of a buck as you can ever imagine with big old eye guards. And obviously the hunt switched, could care less about elk at that point. We're going to hunt this big buck. The problem was it's very thick country, lots of timber. And these, these giant bucks, they just act differently. As soon as they get that first flicker of light, into the timber they go. And when you have an animal that doesn't move much, it's early season, they don't call, and it's very thick country, that's a recipe for a very difficult bow hunt. 
And so I kind of played cat and mouse with that buck for three days. And I was on my vantage point on that third day. And he was out in a meadow. I relocated him. And he went into the timber. And I was like, hey, I can make a run on this thing and get in front of him. And maybe I can, you know, get in on him in the timber. And that, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. That's a very tough situation to, to just still hunt your way in the timber with a bow. And so I made a loop around on him. And, and I, I went super slow, just slug slow, creeping up, creeping up. And I spent probably an hour uh, just easing into where I thought he was bedding. And a, a lot of things can go wrong, whether the deer just leaves or takes a different path and you'll never run into them, or you'll do what I did and, and you spook them out of there. So I creep up to the, the edge of a bedding area, a thicker area. There's blowdown and deadfall and where you would think a big buck would bed. And, man, I was moving so slow, but I got impatient, and I took a few more steps than I should have, and that buck jumped up 15 yards to my left at the base of a root wad and he blew out of there and I just watched this giant 200 disappear through the forest and I could never find him again. I still think about that one. <laughs> yeah. I bet you can see him leaving. I can. I bet you can see him leaving while we're talking about it. Yeah. And it's just amazing with bow hunting how close you can be but how you know far away you really are until you see that buck on the ground. Yeah. Just because you're in range really doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So yeah, that's that was one I won't forget anytime soon. Why bow hunting? Uh, the challenge, uh, the, the mystical flight of the arrow, as Uncle Ted says. Yeah. Uh, there's just something about it, about watching that arrow and the challenge and, and the closeness that you have to get uh, to whether it's a buck or bull or axis deer or whatever you're hunting. Uh, you just have to take your game to the next level. And I would say that's the largest reason why I bow hunt is I love to challenge myself. Always trying to up my game, always want to get better always want to be a student of the craft right i mean that's yeah and i just love that where can people learn more about what you do what you write and follow along yeah so eastman's hunting journals uh, that's where i work and write for we have beyond the grid tv which is our digital tv show it's found on youtube and waypoint tv uh, i do articles and gear reviews on the youtube channel we have a lot of content on eastman's hunting journals youtube channel uh, writing constantly in the eastman's bow hunting journal and uh, always throwing out some e-news is out there for our digital e-blast. So, yeah, I always have tons of content out there. Just check out Eastman's. And so if content is your thing, then uh, Dan Picard and Eastman's yes. is a good place to find you it. You got it. You got okay. it. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you. Christy Titus. Yes, sir. You're giving up on Oregon. Yes. I'm moving to a freedom state. <laughs> Hallelujah for red. <laughs> oh, that'll be nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm so excited to move. Our governor in Oregon, give me five seconds to rant, decriminalized drugs, taxes, us, income taxes are ridiculous. Um, our hunting seasons are getting more limited every year. The attacks on our Second Amendment are never-ending, and so we're picking up. We're going to move to a freedom-loving state that doesn't do permanent mask mandates and and uh, believes in constitutional carry. Um, 
Governor Mark Gordon, I just absolutely adore him. They did um, Second Amendment Sanctuary before Second Amendment Sanctuary was like a thing and really? was cool. And they're kind of the trendsetter on that. So Wyoming is a Second Amendment Sanctuary state. Um, and they have actually passed legislation, which I think is super awesome, that um, prohibits any business from um, discriminating against firearms manufacturers or people with guns. And um, so we saw some stuff like that happen where like the National Rifle Association was dropped by some big banks. I, I believe it was Bank of America and um, it, because they're, you know, Second Amendment supporting. So the state of Wyoming has legislation in place that makes it to where you can't discriminate against gun-friendly people. You can't take away our guns. And God bless that. So That's <laughs> my husband nice. and I can't wait. We're That's super nice. excited to go and really wonderful people. Yeah. And you're going to have some awesome hunting opportunities. Yeah. You're gonna That's the main reason we're moving. Cause my, I ordered a mail order husband uh-huh. um, from Europe. Yeah. <laughs> what was the shipping like it on that? Shipping really and handling? Expensive. Yeah. I'm still paying freight tax <laughs> on that. And, um, but for real, um, like for him to hunt in my home state where I'm currently at in Oregon, like for example, I have 16 points right now to try to draw an antelope tag. Archery elk where I live is a three-year draw with a rifle's eight or nine years. So it's really, really difficult to live and, you know, walk out your back door and enjoy God's country. Shoot your guns and do all the things that you want to do. And so we're we're going to move to Wyoming. It's got, you know, better hunting there and, um, and you know, lower taxes. And I can afford the, the heavy tariffs that I'm being uh, subsidized by bringing my husband overseas. <laughs> Oh, man. So joking, you guys. I am totally joking. Obviously He's joking. not a mail-order husband. Where is he from? He uh, was born in Germany, but he lives in Sweden, so he's um, has dual citizenship. So. Awesome. Yeah. It's been fun traveling um, and experiencing new cultures. Yeah. Uh, over the last couple of years with COVID, everybody shut down except me. I'm like, going to Europe. I'll yeah. take it. It's been fun. Good for you. Yeah. What are you most looking forward to about hunting in Wyoming? Oh, you know, for me, I'm an opportunity hunter, so I like the opportunity of the opportunity to hunt um you know you can hunt quality deer every year uh i drew a book cliffs tag this year i won it at, at hunt expo and we hunted there and you know i ended up i was very very blessed to shoot like a mid 170s deer in wyoming as a resident you know you have a chance of hunting a deer of that caliber every year um and, and as a non-resident like i'm cashing in right now four years worth of points and I have that opportunity, but it takes you four years as a non-resident to earn it. And, and we want to, you know, my husband and I, we we really believe in the power of the purse, spending your money where you want it, and then also the power of choice. And um, where we spend our money is important, and the lifestyle we get from that is important. And Wyoming just offers a lot for us from a taxation standpoint and quality of life standpoint. And the only thing we can do as Americans, apart from, you know, elect good officials in some states like Oregon, where you've had mail-in balloting since I've been voting, the chances of them going back to being red is, is really slim. I mean, if, I don't believe in a lot of mail-in voter integrity. I have a lot of personal reasons for that. I won't get into, um, but, but being in a place where we actually have a say in politics and a place where, you know, my tax dollars are going to fund, you know, things that I believe you know, to the core that supports um, what I would like to see for our country. So we're moving. We're going to yeah. get out and go. Uh, I had mail-in ballots from Afghanistan yeah. when I was deployed there, and those didn't get delivered. Yeah. It's like th these, are, these are the ballots from troops who are currently deployed fighting America's and wars. They're the last ones to get counted, too. Last ones to get counted, or in, in our case, they Not didn't get all. counted at all. Yeah. 
It's pretty frustrating. Yeah. And it, I think it's unacceptable for any votes to not get counted. Yeah. It's unacceptable. For people that are legally able to vote. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, exactly. hundred exactly. percent yeah. on that. Yeah. Okay. So it's so that's yeah, long list, laundry list there. We just did a deep deep, deep dive on that. But we just we just want opportunity uh, to be in wild places and hunt and 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 just enjoy the things that we love, which is God's gun, God guns and and the great outdoors. So yeah. yeah. You uh you did a bunch of the NRL matches last year. Yeah, I shot a few. Um, what did you learn about shooting throughout that competition process? The NRL Hunter is a really fun dynamic. Um, it's very different than like a PRS or standard NRL. On those matches, you know, you, you're in a squad or a team of people and you all walk up to the same course of fire. You can see the various shooting position opportunities. You can see all the targets in advance. You can really get a good um, kind of a game plan on how you want to approach a stage, what gear you're going to bring, and mentally really prepare yourself to walk through that stage. So when, like day one, a lot of those matches will have a two-minute time frame, and then the second day, a lot of times, they'll cut it back to a 90-second time frame. But you'll have that full time to, like, you walk up and you've already visualized the stage 50 times. You already have your course of fire plan. NRL Hunter is completely different. Well, let me back it up. You can also talk to your buddies. <laughs> hey, what wind call are you doing? Um, what, how, what equipment are you going to bring up to that stage? And then when they walk off the stage, they can tell you, hey, I held point two. Don't go off the edge of the plate. Send it. You know, your wind hold's going to be good. Or, hey, I went off the plate too far. You know, you can coach each other. With NRL Hunter, you have a four-minute time frame, and you walk up to a stage completely blind. You have a left and a right lateral limit. And you can look at that stage. Time starts. And how I run it is I have a two-minute timer that goes off halfway through the, the time frame. So at two minutes, I had better have found my targets, which in the other format, you know where they are originally. Um, you have to range estimate them, uh, figure out what your data is, decide what your wind call is going to be um, based on where those targets are and, and what the terrain features are. And then you have to uh, build your shooting position, decide what gear to use, and do all of that in four minutes without coaching or help. So in my opinion, like the NRL Hunter is a tremendously like more challenging course of fire because you don't have anybody to look to and say, hey, would you use your tripod or would you try to do this off the barricade or would you, you know, throw your bipod leg up or, you know, hey, I threw my bipod and I had it up, but I had my height too high and then I had to drop it down and I wasted 15 seconds adjusting my legs. Like you don't have anybody to coach you through that on NRL Hunter. You're literally out there and you better just swim or you're drowning. And yeah. um, I like that format. It's, it's a lot harder. This sounds, teaches you to be a lot more self-sufficient. This sounds pretty technical. If somebody's just getting into shooting, do you think that they could go to something like NRL Hunter and have a good time? Sure. Anybody that can hunt or shoot a gun can go there and have a good time. Obviously, with any kind of shooting competition, there's gear that's going to be good, better, best. And and the guys that are really good game the match with the best gear they can and um you know becoming efficient and accurate with the least amount of gear is always going to put you in the best time position um the guys that do really well don't take a lot of gear necessarily up to a stage they get up there they're very efficient at using things they're very smooth they're very calculated they're not wasting movements or time making movements that are unnecessary they set their binoculars down and then they forget where they put them and or they forgot to 
do whatever. Um, they're very meticulous with it. So what it teaches me or what it taught me as a hunter is how to manage my gear, how to be systematic in my approach to anything. So if I'm, if I learn a good system of where I'm putting my optics, where, how I'm running my process start to finish, I'm that much faster. You know, now I can get on a hunt and, you know, most of the time I shoot now hunting off a tripod standing. 90% of what I do is standing on a tripod. And when we were shooting these matches last year, my husband was watching and he's like, Christy, I'm watching you shoot and you're flailing around with all this gear and you're trying to do this and that. He's like, shoot off your tripod. You hit it every time. Quit trying to reinvent the wheel or get fancy and just go back to what you're good at get on your tripod and shoot and once I you know really just simplified things I became a lot more efficient and I think that's the best thing the NRL Hunter series does is it takes anybody that is at any level and it teaches them what gear is efficient what is inefficient how to not waste time and um, and what where you gain your most stability and there's a lot of animals that people could have punched their tag on if they'd been more efficient, if they'd had a system. Yeah. You know, as a guide, I've seen a ton of that where people just took too long. Yeah. They take too long and, and the deer's on the edge of the timber and they spend two and a half minutes trying to get eye relief and on a backpack and the deer's gone and they never got a shot off. and. That's a shot that you should, in two minutes, be able to get 10 rounds downrange. You know what I mean? Like, in theory, in, in some situations, that's the case. Some some not. I mean, I don't want to act like that's the case at every time. But most of the time, especially you see with little kids, they're super inefficient. Like, you're as a parent, you're watching kind of fumble around. Like, the first time, and still to this day, when I go to NRL matches, I'm that kid yeah you know I'm fumbling around and I'm slow with my gear and I think the best thing about it is it's humbling and you have to be I'm I learn at every match um, I don't know everything I don't know how to do everything the best but every time I walk away from a stage I'm better than when I went in and it's just like when you watch a kid progress through the years of hunting and, and it's, it's good for adults as you know in the same capacity I really encourage people to try this and with events like the total archery challenge and yeah. some of these other 3d shoots people feel really comfortable about going out there and going through the course shooting their bow and they come out of it being a better shot than they went into yeah. it and they learned a lot about angles how they shoot when they're tired um, all the all these things this is a similar thing but with guns yeah. and if you're a gun hunter this is a good opportunity for you to go out there meet some really interesting people and come away with it with some better skills. And For me, yeah. food is a big factor. In it. Like, <laughs> you I'm need not, some snacks? I'm serious. Like, this is the thing. Like, I'm good half day. And if I don't stop and eat small amounts of food mentally. So my, my biggest challenge that I've made myself at these matches is mental mistakes. If I can get through a match or a stage and I don't make a mental mistake, meaning I don't shoot targets out of sequence or um, have a blunder where I set my binoculars down and then I'm like, oh, crud, and I spend four seconds looking for them. Sure. So if I can minimize or mitigate those mental mistakes, then I've improved. And so that's been like for me, um, you know, a big goal is not that I hit every target. It's that I don't make a mental mistake. Yeah. Um, and, and food plays a big part of that for me. And I really realized, like, I my performance is in the toilet 
if I don't eat. And that's, I'm cranky also, let's be honest. I mean, like, Get a little hangry. my poor husband, bless his heart. Yeah. You know, hungry Christy is not good. I yeah. like the girls got to eat, you know, like, Get you a Snickers. I like food. Um, <laughs> and so it's, uh, you know, having good food, having water, but and it's the same thing when you're on a hunt. I mean, if you think about how fatigued you get, or if you're dehydrated, or if you're hungry, you aren't thinking straight. And there's a lot of people that get excited and they almost go into, um, there's different levels of, of excitement where people actually black out and you'll tell them okay the deer's at 4 30 and they just they don't really answer or respond to you and then they're like man i wish i would have known how far it was and they're like well tom i told you it was at 4 30 yeah. <laughs> but they get into like this blackout zone and these this the nrl series really helps you prepare mentally um to where you don't necessarily go into that blackout zone um and if you see someone you think might be in that like if you're hunting with them like make sure they repeat back to you hey did you hear what i said the deer's at 4 30 acknowledge 4 30 oh yeah yeah yeah. okay and and just slow them down you know because i think the mental aspect of hunting um people you know and for me at these matches a lot of them my mind gets blown and then the the stage goes in the toilet yeah well Thank you for your time, and I hope to see you out on some of those matches oh, if yeah. you can make your way back from Wyoming this year. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I've got uh, I've got three on the books right now, um, so I'm shooting some PRS this year, and maybe one NRL hunter. But I just kind of line them up with when I can get a gun in my hand and I have a free weekend, I'll go wherever I can play. So that's a <laughs> yeah. good yeah. idea. I like that. I for like sure. that. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you. Okay, we're sitting here with Patrick Hanley, the brand manager of Sig Sauer, and we have some new crosses out here. We do. And that's something that people have been asking about almost continuously since the very first images of the cross rifle came out. It's like, what's the next thing? Yep. Um, So we have a couple next things out here. Let's run through what what the first cross was and then talk through what – what else we have here yeah so we we derived that first cross with that intent of being a backcountry uh short packable rifle um and it certainly fell into that criteria plus we wanted to have it be we wanted your your hunting rifle to fit you like your precision rifle we wanted it so that people could actually make the rifle both lengthwise and your your cheek and everything fits properly so it's like you're shooting your precision gun but you're doing it in a hunting situation not one size fits all we all know that so we did all those things in that first version of the cross um and you know we felt like you know what we put out there was a great product and it's been doing incredibly well for us um and the shorter barrels that you've probably seen on these we, we did a point of diminishing return, which me and you have talked about, to try to make it so that people could still suppress a gun in the backcountry and not have a gigantic broomstick with them. And so we've gone by that mentality, and it's been very well accepted. And for us, it's something that, like, we've seen this gun very short time evolve into something that even we didn't expect. And it, it kind of tells you that the, the firearm industry was starving for something new and something that was truly new, something that we built from the ground up 100% to get all the best features out of it, and and it did well as a result. Having hunted with this thing and and a whole pile of states for a bunch of different species over the last three years, I feel like I'm still still getting to learn more about what its qualities are and how those actually benefit me as both a hunter and a guide. I think the adjustability in the stock um, continues to be one of the most important things Mm -hmm. for me. And you talked about the one size fits all. If you, if you were to walk into a boot shop and they only had size eights mm-hmm. and you're not a size eight, 
you're like, well, I, I guess this is all I can buy and I'll just deal with it. Yep. And then you go over to buy a jacket and they only have mediums. It's like, well, I'm a 2XL. I guess I just won't wear a jacket or it'll be really uncomfortable. I'm not going to be able to function correctly like this. But in that same shop, um, which is just about every gun shop out there now, if you walk over to look at bolt action rifles, they're all the same size. Correct. And you got to, you know, you always, it's not even just, you know, fit to you in a one certain situation. It's fit to you in any situation. And I tell people that, like, one of the biggest complaints I used to get from people when they would buy a, a bolt gun in my prior life was that you buy a gun and then you put a heavy jacket on. Yeah. And now that gun feels super yeah, way out of totally. tune to what you wanted. And and to be able to have that adjustability, it allows you to wear a heavy jacket. It allows you to give it to a smaller stature shooter. It allows you to have it extended in a position where it may not be as cold outside and you're wearing a light layer or you're at the range. So it, it gives you a multitude of ability to quickly adjust. It's not just a get it set once and you're done all the time. It allows people to be able to make those adjustments as their layers or whatever change. Yeah. And even even beyond that, because that's a great point. Like my length of pull requirements in August are very different than they are in December, just mm-hmm. because of how much I'm wearing. But if I'm shooting uphill or downhill, correct, yeah, or or prone versus standing, uh, I want that butt pad to be in a different position. So being able to slide that butt pad up and down really quickly and absolutely quietly, yep, uh, that's huge. Yeah, and. And I don't like recoil, right? I, yeah. I just don't. Yeah. I, I don't want the shooting experience to be painful for me. So if, if you're shooting and only half of the butt pad is on your shoulder, then you just doubled the pounds per square inch yeah. of recoil that you're going to feel. Yeah. So if you can slide that butt pad up and down and get the whole thing in your shoulder, no matter your position, then you're spreading that recoil out over a larger area, and it doesn't hurt as bad to shoot your exactly. gun. Exactly. 100%. Um, and... What, what I'm kind of telling guys now is, like, I know they're good shots. Mm-hmm. I know these guys are good shots, and they know that about themselves, but they go out in these field hunting situations, and they miss, and they didn't miss because they're a bad shot. Yep. They missed because their gun didn't fit them. A hundred percent. So I guess that's enough about the stock. So, okay, we started out with the, uh, with the 18-inch barreled 6.5 Creedmoor and the 16-inch barreled 308. We now have that in a camouflage pattern mm-hmm. um, for, for guys that, that like camo. They've got a camo option. But now we've got a couple other crosses out there. We do, yes. Yeah. And actually, this show is my first time actually laying hands on them. And probably for most people. Um, yeah. This is like um, we had these launches ready to go this year and not knowing what you know SHOT Show in the beginning of the year was going to hold. Um, I continue to push them because I wanted to be able to have them because – from a seasonality standpoint, you know, to be able to get them out into the market. And one of these guns, as you know, is an earlier season than the other because one is for hunting, the other one obviously for competition purposes. So it's, it didn't really change our timelines. And so these are really the first shows that we've shown them at. And I kind of like it in the sense that we're here belly to belly with the customer at a hunting show showing people these new rifles. I think it's pretty cool. Um, not that, you know, all these other big shows in the industry like SHOT Show aren't great. It's just this is a cool place to have real interaction with your customers and get true, honest feedback to a new product that you're bringing out and what they think of it. And they've both been perceived pretty well already. Yeah. So let's start with a born and raised outdoors edition of the cross rifle. Yeah. So, um, last year I talked to those guys and they were constantly asking me for little changes here and there. And I like it. I like it when you or any of those guys are like, Hey, 
can we refine this? Can we do that? And so they asked me about making a, a version of their own rifle without the intent of having it be mass produced at the time. And I started having this conversation with them about, well, you know what? We, we get people asking for some of the features you're asking for. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've never been a big fan of is slapping somebody's name on something and being like, hey, this is your version. So I said to those guys, if we want to do this, I'd like you to fly out. I'd like you to go to the academy with me. I'd like you to spend some time with some of the things that we're working on and some of the things we aren't working on. And I want to get your feedback. I want you guys to be part of it. So they came out. One of the first things that most people will notice about it, we went to a longer barrel. Um, we had talked to them about that, and a lot of their, their usage is not suppressor usage. A lot of their usage is in areas where they have open shots, and they said, we'd like those extra couple hundred feet. And I'm like, perfect. We, we do get that request, and it's not, it's not that long barrels are bad. I certainly like shorter barrels. I certainly like hunting suppressed most of the time. But for some people, it's like, hey, give me the maximum advantage. So we increased the barrel length. We kept it that lower hunting contour, so it's the same taper as the cross but then we started showing them some other things that we were working on and like uh we ended up doing a, a grip on there that's more of a, a target style prs grip it's it's a wider grip that has a bigger purchase on it um it was something that we put five different grips on their gun because we can 3d print anything in house and said what do you like and they shot all of them and this ended up being their favorite and so we put that on there. Then we got to talking, and one of the things that they brought up is sometimes when you're out and you're hunting in cold weather, I think you know this, you have a leather wrap on your gun. Those aluminum handguards, they get cold. I mean, this is very common in the bow industry. That's why carbon bows became popular. It gets cold holding on to an aluminum riser or an aluminum handguard. So we developed this, uh, this like what we're calling a end that actually fits on the front of the gun. And it allows you to have something to hold as you're walking around during the daytime, and it keeps your hands from getting cold from direct contact with the aluminum it's also really comfortable it is it, it is it's a, it's a good contour for for my hand um and it it slopes in there nicely i think there's going to be some gains in in accuracy for offhand shooting and and things like that i, yep. I really like the way that grip feels and when we're talking about cold uh cold on aluminum what folks got to understand because aluminum is conductive. So right. we have conductive and, and insulative. Um, so if something has insulation, then it tends not to conduct heat. When you grab aluminum, since it conducts so well, it's moving that heat from your hand mm -hmm. to other parts of the aluminum really quickly and efficiently, and then dissipating into the ambient temperature. So that's why aluminum tends to feel cold um, and why no matter kind of how long you hold on to yep. it, it doesn't really warm up under your hand. But uh, the material that you used for this handguard is, is really great um, because it's insulative and you can still benefit from, from the M-Lock um, on the rest of the gun. Yeah, and this is a different handguard, which I'll talk about in a second, but we did make that foregrip. It has a wedge that ships with it. And what that allows you to do is you can use it on any cross that's in the marketplace. So if you have that... Uh, the current cross that's on the market will have that as an accessory that people can snap on. Um, the Born and Raised gun comes with a new handguard that has a built-in Arca rail to it. So that's the meaning of the wedge. So What is an Arca rail? So um, most people that are now getting into the position where they want to be able to shoot off of a tripod, an Arca rail provides a great deal of versatility because you have the ability to easily slide and have a hard, solid lockup on a uh, tripod with something that you can go from the front of the handguard all the way to the back of the handguard and you can find the correct balance point of that gun. 
So when you're using a, a standard tripod and you have, say, a, a, a spot where you're going to click that tripod on, it's not always ideal for every situation. You, you may have a downhill shot or an uphill shot. Or you may have a, a situation where you want to be able to move it up and down and get that right position. And Arca is becoming a pretty quickly a standard in the industry because of how solid it locks up when you lock that down on a tripod and also because a lot of guys can use the same situation for their spotting scope yep. and then when you get one of these and and I've I've watched our academy instructors teach this before when you get one of these into the right position usually to the further back point of the handguard on the cross just because of how it balances so it it has it basically allows you to find that balance point not every gun's the same but I think Arca is going to be something that we're going to see more and more, and as you can tell from these two guns that we're bringing here, we're, we have a commitment to that because we see the benefits, and our instructors, they teach different ways for people to shoot, and it's become one of their their main staples for long-range shooting because if you're a hunter and you're in the field, you can lock into a solid tripod, and you can make a good long-range shot if you have a good tripod with a good lockup, and Arca will give you that good lockup. Yep. You still need to buy a good tripod, but it allows people to have a very stable, almost bench-like shooting position when they're making a shot. Yeah. So almost all of my shots are taken off of a tripod now, mm -hmm. and uh, I've really enjoyed it. So like you're talking about, Arca is just the type of um, mount that goes into the plate that's on my tripod head. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, simply my camera, my, um, my spotting scope, my binoculars, my rifle, they all have the same Arca plate on them. So I have one tripod, one head, and everything can fit on it. So I can be glassing something with my spotting scope, find a target or find an animal, take my spotting scope off, put my rifle on, mm -hmm. and, and now I'm ready to go. It's, it's a tremendous system. So now we have a full-length Arca rail on that gun, yep. which is cool. And it's something, too, I think that, once again, showcases in the cross how we've tried to pull things from the PRS marksman-type shooter and incorporate it into hunting. I think those two things always get lost. I think people always want to pretend that a hunting rifle is one thing, a precision rifle is the other. And certainly there are traits to a precision rifle that make it different, but you shoot a gun in a precision situation, you want to have it be as accurate, as stable, as good as possible to make a shot. And when you go hunting, to be able to just drop something on a bag that doesn't fit your shoulder right and doesn't do all those things, it doesn't make sense to a lot of us. So having something, once again, that has those precision features to it it allows people to take what they would do in a situation where they want to drop uh, a shot on a steel plate at 600 yards if you're making a shot at 300 yards on an animal you still want that same feel you still want that same stability it yeah. shouldn't be something you want to sacrifice because you're in a hunting situation and the the target shooting community and the hunting shooting community don't necessarily talk to each other very well. Correct, yeah. and, and neither of those communities takes the other very seriously. Mm -hmm. So target shooters are like, oh, hunters are, are sloppy, they're imprecise. And hunters are like, well, target shooters have zero consequences for missing besides maybe they don't score as well. So they, they just don't talk to each other. And that's why you being in the middle of it, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I can take the best of both of you and add it into this system. Yep. And then everybody benefits from it. Correct. Yeah, Isn't it, that neat? It is. It is. <laughs> and that's the thing is like, you know, last year, um, I think you've seen them. I went to, when we were working on the second rifle we're going to talk about, I was, I was at the NRL series a couple of times. And the NRL series is very unique. It's a cool series in the sense that it allows people. Um, there's people that are just flat-out PRS shooters, and they're really good shooters. But it, uh, it gives people a place that are hunters. Um, it's, like I told people, it's kind of like a tack of the rifle world. It gives you the opportunity to try 
a hunting situation where it's high pressure and you have to make a shot and people can learn a lot from it. And a lot of the guys that I had those conversations with there, a lot of these new models, a lot of that came from conversation to, to understand what these guys are trying yeah. to accomplish. Well, I know one of the guys that won NRL Hunter, one of the matches last year, um, uh, Ben Bishop, uh, a SIG trainer over here, he gave that guy a rifle that the guy had never shot before, mm-hmm. and it was a cross with a BDX scope on it. Yep. And he went out there and just trusted the zero and the gun and the system, and he won. Yep. He won the match yep. with a gun he'd never shot before. It's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Okay, let's take a couple minutes and talk about the, the SIG cross PRS. Yep. So the PRS, um, this was kind of uh, when we started this whole journey, we had talked about this rifle from day one. It was not something that is new to us. It was something that we, we made our second uh, platform to come out. And really what it was was we wanted to have a gun that was able to be used for bench shooting, for PRS shooting. We wanted to make something for that community, and we felt like we had we have the engine now. So we just need to change the pieces to the car. And what we ended up doing was um, it's it's easy in some places on a, on a rifle to just be like, put a heavy barrel on it and call it good. Now it's a PRS gun. But part of that problem is you just got to get it to the point where you have a balanced weight. So we really wanted that gun to feel smooth when it shoots into your shoulder. We wanted it to feel balanced when you're trying to get it set up and shoot it. So we basically went head to toe and balanced that weight. So it does have a heavy contour 24-inch barrel. Um, And then what we did was we did a two-piece arc rail in this one. So it's an aluminum top rail, and then we bolted the steel rail to the bottom. That gives you more weight. It gives you a lot of rigidity, and it gives you something uh, that allows you to go all the way front and back on on your arc or positioning to be able to move it up and down. Um, and then we did a steel insert in that, that PRS-style grip, so there's there's weight there. And then you go into the back, and we did a steel frame version of the current cross stock with a steel bag rider. So what we were trying to do was create that balance all the way across. And uh, one thing that we, we don't have on this gun that's pretty cool that will be on the production model that we ship is um, you can see the bolt handle is oversized, so we made that bigger. But we also put um, on the safety selector on that right side, you will have a thumb rest. Nice. So for that PRS-style grip, when you want to shoot on one side of that gun, you're, you're, you will actually have a thumb rest to position your hand on there. So everything we did, we live in a land at SIG of benefit of having really good end users. So we have guys that teach at the academy. I have PRS guys crawling all around that place. And that's one thing I've always told people that's cool about SIG. I can't get away with doing anything I want to do. I need to be smart and ask. I have to be able to talk to these guys that are super users and be like, hey, look at this. And they will tell me if it's hokey. Like they are not shy at SIG to be like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And I love that about it. Like these guys are like, this is why we should do this. And everyone has altering opinions, but those opinions all come into a final form where you can take 10 ideas and be like, what does everybody think about this? And it's like, okay, we found a, we found a place where everyone's happy. Yeah. Um, and then the one final feature about this that you had noticed is we did extend the mag release, yep. which is kind of cool for people to be able to quickly drop that mag. We wanted the hunting rifles to have something more enclosed so that you're not going to grab it in a bush and knock the magazine out. But on the PRS gun where people are going to want to drop it quicker, we put that ambidextrous paddle on there so that people can easily drop the magazine while they're shooting. Gotcha. Um, so the big question on everybody's mind when can they get them? So we are making the first born and raised guns in March. Um, we'll start shipping the first uh, hundreds of them that month. And then the PRS gun, uh, which is going through right now, will be shortly behind in April. 
I will not allow anybody to be late on that one because that's the one that I was talking about earlier. We we have a season coming up. Uh, we want this in people's hands. We want people to see it. We saw a lot. Like you said we saw a lot of people last year shooting crosses. This thing is just. I, I you haven't had the chance to shoot it yet. I got to get one in your hands. Everybody who has shot this at the factory at the academy. There's, I mean, obviously it's a 6.5. It doesn't have a lot of recoil. And we did do a 308. I should mention that. We have both. But that 6.5 shooting is like, it it feels like you're shooting a 22. It is just so crystal smooth when you pull that trigger. I mean, obviously the weight helps with that. But like I said, a distribution of weight is incredibly important. And it's such a fun gun to shoot. I cannot wait. And I'm probably going to end up hunting with it. I'll, I'll take the six, <laughs> 15.4 pounds. I'll take that gun hunt with Our me. ammo yeah. guys in Arkansas tell me that's what a hunting rifle is supposed to be. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, pretty cool, man. Um, it's fun seeing all this stuff. Man, I'm going to have to do something separate later on about kind of the advancements that we've made in the laser rangefinders and uh, in, in the optics category. But for now, we've got a couple new crosses that are going to be available this spring. 277 Fury, people have been asking. 277 Fury, there has been, um, I want to be openly honest about this, there has been so many advancements in the program that we're doing for the Army that we've been revolving changes. I will tell everybody this. I was with the guys last week testing the new cross rifles with our Acubon 150s. It's going to be worth the wait. I was incredibly happy to see where we've come um i think what everybody really wanted to do was see one finalized thing and not be like oh hey we changed that ammunition so now we're changing this ammunition we didn't foresee that coming at that point in time but i'm very happy with the fact of the evolution that we've made and how this gun is performing now i think everyone is going to see something that they're they're very impressed with i think it was the it was the cool thing to do to tell everybody it was coming it's the right thing to do to make sure that the gun is perfect before it hits a consumer's hands. I don't. I, none of us want to do this stuff twice. I wanted it to be accurate. Everybody wanted it to be accurate, and we've we have refined a lot of things, and it's it's worth the wait. I promise. Well said. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, James. Okay, we're here with the draw. Um, what is new in the world of applications this year? I don't know. I would say. Uh What's new is probably how many people are, are, are really jumping on board with a lot of them, James. It's, it's amazing uh, the growth that all of the major deadlines are seeing year in and year out right now. And I, I have some ideas on where some of that is coming from, but, but, uh, or maybe a why, but a lot of adult onset hunters are, are kind of... I am over that term. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Like, what well, is I, that even? Yeah. Well, okay. You know? So I'll, I'll, re- I'll, I'll put a new term to it. Guys that are, are just dipping their toe into the, sure. the hunting. People who are and, starting to hunt. And, and I think <laughs> where we're seeing it is that they get into these states and the websites and all of this stuff. They want to be involved, but either they don't have time or it, it seems overwhelming it to them. It is overwhelming. Yeah, and, they, and, then, and then the phone rings. And, you know, I tell guys all the time, I'm like, do you pay anybody to mow your yard? And if they're on the phone with us, lots of them do, right? And I'm like, it's because you want to be in your backyard enjoying it when you have the time to be there not working in it. And I think we fill that same void within the applications. Like, we're a good service that if you want to play the game but you don't have the time and the resources to really tackle it and keep track of deadlines and all of that stuff like 
we're your guys. We can. Well, you don't we, have to sell me on it because no, right, I, I, but that's I already what, use you. I, I just want to talk about applications and, and and that's where and I think the growth is coming. What's from. going on in the world? Um, yesterday was the deadline for spring bear in Oregon, mm-hmm. and I know guys who have hunted their whole lives who still miss that deadline. And February tenth is something that can just slip up on you and pass. Yeah, and that's just one state, and these are residents of that state that missed it, and. It's not just missing a deadline. You're missing a year because a lot of these tags take multiple years of application what, to get. And maybe t- on top of that, you're not even necessarily missing a year. Some applications maybe were just missing the year. But by moving down one point in the in the big picture of things could have put you years back sure. now, right? Especially like in, years like last year. Yeah. Yeah, like you missed, the, you missed that, that step and all of a sudden there's a whole – group of guys moving in front of you and now you're with the group below and until all of them have drawn your and it, and it, there isn't as many tags as there are people trying so it's not even just a one-year mistake it that can cost years yeah. of of heartache in the in the painful yeah <laughs> rejection of not drawing yeah well i mean it, it's something that people just have to invest in and understand that that they're investing in their future and the reason that I think it's important to be, to have a, a strategy in multiple states and have somebody that's not going to ever miss deadlines because that's your guys' whole life right. is mm-hmm. research and deadlines, right? Yep. And like, I don't know, that's, if I want to hunt every year, I have to be applying in multiple states and having that strategy. Yeah. That's just where, that's just where hunting is at right now. And a now. good mix of short-term goals and long-term goals. And then even what we call like backup plans, right? Like some of those state deadlines nowadays are, we, we have a deadline in every calendar month of the year that somewhere we're submitting applications for, which is crazy. Cause I can remember not that long ago, it was a, you know, it was a three month season of apps and then you were, you were moving on. But some of that, you know, the Wyoming antelope and deer and, Iowa and Idaho deer elk and antelope and South Dakota like those are May and June uh, late May and June deadlines so maybe they're not even top priority type applications but they're pretty affordable to be building points and if you want to be aggressive on the front end and some of the bigger Arizona New Mexico and and you don't find luck with just a little bit of planning and having those backup plans those applications are more of a, a decision to go hunting than rolling the dice. Lots of them, not all of them, but most of them. So if nothing else came to fruition, then you're able to plug those backup plans in and better that than defaulting to an expensive landowner tag or a voucher or something yeah. like that. And you still get to go as often as you want. Yeah. Casey, what's your uh, strategy for yourself this year? Uh, kind of the same as it's been is just to apply for things that get goals quick i'm I'm not a a point chaser i i I kind of drink the kool-aid of that for the first couple years and then you know talking with guys like jordan he's like you're not going to catch this like that that's a it's a false narrative that if you just keep collecting points that that unit is going to owe you a tag and then is is it going to pay off for this giant buck of a lifetime so i'd rather hunt as often as possible have multiple options like this year i've got arizona that i could draw deer and i'm actually going to choose to not apply for the hunts that i probably would draw because i've got options in colorado south dakota and it's it's a cool situation just to be in because normally i'd just be sitting there like oh man in three years five years and here i am going hunting which one three times it's with a little bit of momentum you know i would even say probably like a two to three year 
plan. Like, we definitely have lots of guys kind of luck into, especially like a New Mexico on the first year or two that they're in there, and some guys don't. But with about three years of momentum, if a guy has the right hunt plan in place, for forevermore he's choosing to go hunting instead and, and which one he wants to go do versus throwing a handful of the darts uh, at the wall every year and hoping one sticks like there's really now and if you get further down the rabbit hole there's <laughs> plenty of states that 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 is it's a game right you're you're choosing to gamble for hunting and that's fine i i'm hopelessly addicted to this crap like if my wife ever finds out how hard i play the game she's gonna lose her mind hopefully she doesn't listen to this yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> she's gonna lose her mind but but i i you know i look at the states and some of the way that their draw processes work as just like i love playing the game so i hope for a lightning strike there but i know very clearly that it is a lightning strike if it's ever going to happen and yet i have a whole other stack of states that are very specific to going hunting as often as i want to so that i'm not just relying on this i hope it happens and I play both of them, and I find that most guys that doesn't make that's not a great plan for most guys. That doesn't line up with their goals. But I think just bringing some clarity to that situation for them. And Casey, you know, Casey's gotten like he said, where he's attacking those those places where it's now that he's got a few years of momentum in there. It's what what do I want to go do versus I hope I get lucky with something. And the yeah. best part about it for me is is the the pressure once you get, you know, this tag that you've been waiting on or you finally drew, you know, New Mexico. I get out there and immediately it's almost like anxiety. Like I'm, I've got to find the right deer. I don't want to shoot too small of a deer and I'm, you know, throwing all these different ideas. I don't on know what, when I'm going to get back to this. Yeah. So it, it, everything matters. If you put it on this pedestal, well now I can go out there and almost just have fun from the start to the end. And if I shoot a deer, cool. If I shoot a bull, cool. Because and next year you're going yeah, for sure. I already know that, yeah. bam, I'm going here next year and I'm going to increase my odds by being in the woods instead of sitting on the couch waiting for some one of the things that I really like about your strategy, Casey, is most people who've hunted a place more than once understand the benefit of getting to learn it. Yeah. And the more times they hunt that place, the better they get at hunting it. Absolutely. And that, that's, that's a rule. That's, that is a law of nature. Um, you're going to get better at hunting a place the more times you hunt it. But if you only hunt a place once or only go after a place that you can hunt once, you're going to be a rookie at it. So do you want to be a rookie at a great opportunity or do you want to become an expert at a good opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's an odds thing. Like I, I've got a like Colorado for me is a great example of this. I'm a personal opinion. If, a, if you have over six points in Colorado ever, like what are you waiting for? Yeah. Right. Like go. And, and like Casey says, go often and and maybe more specifically with the deer. But like I've got a buddy that he was applying in Colorado deer for like 17, 18 years, right? And But what was, he was doing, because you can do this in Colorado, is he was putting in for a point only as his first choice, and then he was drawing like a, a leftover second and third season on a second and third choice off, like almost every year yeah. he was hunting that same unit as while he was building points. Well, within... I would say about a 10-year period where he start, he's got old enough, he had a little money, and he was going every year to this kind of second and third choice and building his points. He, like, uh, to your point, he got very, very intimate with that unit, and then uh, twice in a 10-year period, the stars like really lined up. He shows up 
10 inches of fresh snow. The deer are, are moving, and he knows exactly where he wants to be because he's been there so often. Fast forward to two years ago, he chooses to burn them on one of the most premier tags in the state, a Gunnison Basin 66 late rifle. It's This is like the mecca of Colorado. It's for years this is where you – that everyone says this is where you want to be. Well, he burns them. He's never been to the unit before. The guy's an outstanding hunter. He's killed a, a half a dozen 200-plus-inch deer DIY in different states. Yeah. Like, he's outstanding, and he's in one of the best premier places in the, in, the, in the state, and it's hot, the weather's no good, and 18 years didn't matter to Mother Nature. It's just what it was, and... The best buck he saw he thought was about a four-and-a-half-year-old that had great genetics. It was a spindly horn, 185-inch 4x4, and he passed it. And that was with eight days of scouting prior to the, the hunt and hunting the entire third season. And and I think that the lesson to be learned in that is, is exactly your point. And, and, and I see it manifest itself all the time in a lot of places. Like, he's found incredible success in this in this tag and in this unit that nobody else obviously even wants he's drawing it on a second third season and he hunted enough that eventually the odds tipped the stars lined up conditions were perfect and he knew exactly what to do because those stars were lined up and yet 18 years worth of waiting for for this mythological thing didn't manifest at all and that happens to guys every year all the time and that's okay like you know, you're you're not entitled to perfect conditions just because you waited a long yeah, time. Yeah, it's to, to unrealistic. Get the one one of my favorite things that you guys do is is something that I I firmly believe is very important, and that's that um, you offer your services to kids for free, and I think that's that's incredible. Um, and kids are are the ones with the most opportunity to accumulate enough points to go to some of these super premium units more than once in their life right yep um so good on you for that we love Uh, it how do people get a hold of you the best way is generally just to give us a call um we've got what's your social media what's your phone number 575-222-1234 okay so give these guys a call and uh and start investing in in your future and in your kids future yeah and if you want to check us out on our Instagram at We Are the Draw, yep. th- that uh, kind of keep you in the loop uh, yep. of kind of current events, what we're doing, and some cool stories that we get to share with guys' success and some of that stuff. And as with uh, all the other segments of, of this episode, um, there's going to be links to all this stuff in your podcast description. So thank you guys very much. I hope you have an awesome show. Yeah, yes. man. Same to you. Yeah. You too. Yeah. Thank we'll come you. back. We'll come say hi. Okay. Please right. do. Why chicken and waffles for breakfast? We got to get to your part. <laughs> Honestly, because it was the only what, the only restaurant in the airport that didn't have a long line. <laughs> it's the shortest line. It's at the about airport. efficiency. Yeah, we were like, we got to get to the show. So I'm hungry. I'm like, I'm hungry too. So find the shortest line. That's what we're eating. Cool. Well, this is Travis Ishida from NRL Hunter. Yes, sir. And uh, oddly enough. I don't know, maybe a third of the of the bits that I've done for uh, from this show, people have talked about NRL Hunter. Awesome. Like, you're a big deal. You're what everybody wants to talk about. Well, that, that's amazing. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. I, I, I'm blessed. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about NRL Hunter. So NRL Hunter was developed as a competition for hunters to become more proficient and learn how to use their gear 
in the end goal being for them to become more ethical hunters. Yeah. Right. We've all heard the stories of, hey, I held five inches over its back and, and let it go and had to shoot it twice. Well, it's how, it's how a lot of us grew up. It you is. Know, we didn't have the technology. It was like hold on the hair and hope in the heart. And yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You know, and that system, there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, we've been doing it for, you know, for a long time. But with modern technology and optics and rangefinders and bullet technology and things of that nature, it's no longer necessary to shoot that way. And, and because we can do better, we're obligated to do better. Absolutely. And that, that is the, the truth about ethics and hunting. And something that we talk about in the military all the time is to exploit every technical and tactical advantage. Yes. And if there is a technology that allows me to ensure that I am not going to wound an animal, I want to use that technology. Absolutely. You know, it's you owe it to yourself, but you owe it to that animal, right? That animal, it, you're harvesting that animal. Most of us harvest that animal for food. We're utilizing, like, I, when I hunt, I use every piece of that animal that I can. Yeah. Because it's, it's a life that you're taking. Sure. But it's to feed my family. So I want to do it as efficiently as possible. Yeah. And if I'm not trying to become a better hunter, yeah. then why am I doing it? Sure. There's a real important distinction that, that you brought up, and I want to I shine some light on it. A lot of competitions within shooting are not opportunities to develop your skills. It, it's a way to test what your skills are. Right. But what you're talking about with NRL Hunter is this is a place for you to get better at what you're doing, to test your equipment, to test yourself and improve and shoot in all these dynamic situations and shoot in wind and shoot in funky angles and find yes. your targets. It's cool. And, and it's a reality, excuse me, it's a reality check. Yeah. I mean, we've all had buddies that said, yeah, I shot whatever at a thousand yards. Yeah. Okay, bro, what, what's a thousand yards? Sure. Right. And a lot of these guys don't know what a thousand, truly a thousand yards is. It is a long ways. It is. It's not even fun to walk that far. No. <laughs> if I shoot an elk at a thousand yards on a different ridge or something, I don't want to go after that animal another thousand yards to recover it. Yeah. I'm but you're going to, and you're going to be exhausted when you get over there. Right. Yeah. So can people shoot animals at extreme distances? Absolutely. Because they've had the proper training. They know how to use their gear. They've practiced for those situations. Is it something that we encourage? No. Most of our targets at these matches are going to be between four and 600 yards. Okay. Okay. So it's still a further poke than a lot of people sure. have shot. You know, most people are shooting two, you know, 150, 200 yards, 250 yards, which is still a long distance if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. We show them what it's like to actually try to engage vital size targets, so 12 by 12. It's what it is on, on big game. Yep. We show them what that is at distance. Yeah. We'll have a couple of targets, maybe one or two, you know, past 700 yep. as, you know, hey, this is what it really is like to shoot something that far. If you can't hit a steel target in a controlled environment, you better not be doing that in the wild. Exactly. Exactly. And you're betting an animal's life on it. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. know, and um, I, I've been very fortunate, you know, I've never lost an animal yet. I know it's going to come one day, and that's honestly, that's my biggest fear. Yeah. And that's why, you know, before I go to hunt, my friend Terry that was just here, uh, you know, I'm blessed to be able to hunt with him. I practice. I train up for an entire day, and yeah. I'm shooting targets at 100 to 1,000 yards. But he knows that I'm not going to shoot. My comfort zone is 5, 550. I don't want to shoot anything past that. Yeah. Have I shot past a mile? Absolutely. Can I hit past a mile? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean I'm going to do that when there's a life involved. 
I asked Christy Titus about this yesterday when we were talking about NRL, um, but I'm curious about your take. How much skill do you think a, a hunter or a shooter needs to be able to go to your match and shoot it? Whatever Christy said is correct. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't i don't know that that's my policy no otherwise no. i'd be wearing you know big hats and you know lots of like turquoise and right. stuff um christy's awesome she she shot our matches last year yeah. she'll shoot them this year we have uh what we call a skills division okay so a skills division means you're not competing for points you're not competing for a prize table you're literally you, there's no power factor limitations you literally can come out with whatever hunting rifle that you have and practice and shoot and learn yeah because you're it's you're not competing against anybody but yourself yeah so in that aspect your average joe can come out with with you know your 243 whatever it is yeah and come out and have some fun so if, if you have the skills to go hunting, you have the skills to go shoot the skills division of yes. your match, and you're going to come away from it a better shooter. Absolutely. So what we've been doing for the skills division, because they're two-day matches, is sometimes, like last match, we had six or seven skills people. Four of them were doing just fine on their own. They were learning it. They were having a good time. Not a big deal. Two of them were really struggling. Yeah. So what we did is we paired them up with a professional shooter on the second day. And I asked him, his name's Isaiah Curtis. He's one of the top shooters in the nation. I said, Isaiah, these two gentlemen are having a hard time. I need you to pair up with them and give them some pointers and make sure that they have some fun. So he spent the entire second day with them wow. and made sure that they learned. Yeah. Right? So what well, an incredible opportunity. Oh, my goodness. That's what it's all about. It's like getting free throw lessons from Michael Jordan. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I mean, it, it, if you can get an hour with Daniel Horner to learn about trigger control, I'm stopping what I'm doing. I'm going to spend that hour with Daniel, and I'm going to be attentive. Yeah. Isaiah is one of the premier top long-range shooters in the nation. So when he's giving pointers, I'm still listening. Yeah. You know? Awesome. Awesome. Uh, if people want to go to a match, how do, they, how do they go about it? Where do they get started? How do they find out more? NROHunter.org. Okay. The website has all the matches up there, tons of information. Um, if you don't, you know, going back to what you just said, if you don't have a rifle and it's something you want to get into, um, we actually have a loaner rifle program. Cool. In our loaner rifle program, we provide the rifle, the optic, the tripod, the bipod, whatever gear you need, binoculars, whatever you need. That's amazing. Um, so you can come up and say, hey, Travis, I want to play, but I don't have any of the stuff to play with or I don't know what I want to buy. Not a problem, James. I got a SIG cross right here with the Tango 6 on it. I got the Kilo uh, 8Ks. Yeah. Here you go. It's yours for the day or it's yours for the weekend. If you need help setting it up, Ben and Sammy are right over here. They'll get you dialed in. That's cool. And that's what, it, that's what it's about is getting more people into not necessarily the sport of hunting, but becoming better hunters and better long-range yeah. marksmen. I'm sold, man. I I am going to make it a priority to, to make it to one of your matches this Heck year. Yeah. And, uh, I've heard that the one in Hammond, Idaho is really awesome. That oh. is, but that's the championship this year. Okay. So you got to qualify for I gotta that one. i got to qualify for that. So I need to shoot something beforehand? Something beforehand. Okay. Just one or multiple? Just, just one. Okay. If you can't, now I'm sweating. If you can't, don't worry. I think you know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now I'm shooting two of them. All right. That's it. Well, I'm, I'm committed to it, though. I'm going to do it. Ben and Sammy from Sigur coming out to California in a couple of weeks. Okay. I know California is not the best place to shoot, but it, we are hunter-friendly for the most part. <laughs> most, <laughs> most, most of California is really awesome, and I know some wonderful people from California, and I've got, had great times there. Uh, how you feel about politics isn't necessarily um, how you should feel about the state of California or the yes. people that live there, and I, I think that that's important. I, I get that 
that trash from Oregon all the time. And it's like, man, I love my home and I love the people that live there. The, the politics aren't representative of that. Right. Yeah. I, I agree. 100%. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you very much for your time. And uh, man, I'm, I'm looking forward to shooting these matches. I think it's going to awesome. be a blast. I can't wait to have you up. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Colorado School of Trades. Tell me about it. So 14-month program. Uh, we don't take spring break, fall break, nothing like that. It's straight through. Guys go from basics to machine shop to stock making and then finally design and function. So On guns? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty slick to just get in an industry and work with guns all day. I mean, it's the old saying, if you love your job, you never work a day in your life. So, What level of technicality are your students getting to? So we go probably in depth as everybody so are you doing lasers we don't have laser engravers yet I okay mean, that, that's the goal for the end of this year is to get a nice engraver but we uh go cnc machining lays they spend two months on manual lays and actually make their own little project rifle so they get to choose the caliber uh, we're not doing any of the big 338s but just your standard repeater so they can choose from short action standard bolt face all the way up to long action magnet bolt face okay and they just go through, they get a Remington 700 clone, and they'll build it from a shill and barrel blank and build it all up, go and test fire it, and then they'll make two stocks for it. So they inlet and bed a synthetic stock as well as inlet, bed, and shape a wood stock for it. Okay. And what degree does somebody come away from this with? It's a associate degree of occupational studies. And okay. it's obviously specializing in gunsmithing. Right. Um, can people get student loans to come do this just yeah. like they could any other college? Yep, absolutely. So we're set up to take all Title IV funding, whether it's student loans, Pell Grants, and then we're also set up to take the GI Bill as well. GI Bill too. Yep. That's awesome. What a cool opportunity for guys getting out of the military that want to kind of stay in the gun club. Yeah, a- absolutely. It It's definitely friendly for the veteran community. And then we also have the placement aspect where we send guys over to SIG and Hopefully they get jobs and yeah, it's it's a nationwide thing. So if maybe somebody wanted to go to Montana, they can go and work for C Sharps or one of the other manufacturers up there. That's really cool. You know, when we think about the trades, which, which is something that that honestly I I really encourage kids to look into um, rather than just like going to a four-year school and getting a business degree or a liberal arts degree or, or whatever, or, you know, God forbid they get a degree in literature and writing like I did. When we think about the trades, people are like plumbers, welders, electricians. There's a lot of young folks out there who are really interested in guns, and God bless them for that. So if they want to get into building guns and they, they have that right mindset for the amount of precision that's required, you know, getting down under a thousandth on everything, uh, that's a neat opportunity. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, just, I mean, we get guys that have never read dial calipers a day in their life, and they turn out to be damn good gunsmiths. That's awesome. And there's a big difference between a sure enough gunsmith and, you know, what I might call like a gun plumber, like somebody <laughs> who just kind of swaps parts on AR-15s or Ruger 1022s. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm not trying to take anything away from that. I'm really not. But that, that's not what a gunsmith is. So in your estimation and experience, what skills would you expect a gunsmith to have? So in my opinion, I think every gunsmith should be able to meet tolerances within a ten thousandth of an inch, whether it's working on a machine or 
welding and using a file to make a part. It's one of those things that if they're not able to do that, how are they going to be able to be successful working in a manufacturer setting? Or if they're working on a repair firearm uh, that's old and you can't go on to Numerich or Brownells and find the part, you can get a schematic and get it laid out and just weld on some metal to get anything built up and shaped to the correct setting. That's amazing. I know about myself that I'm not that guy. I'm <laughs> I'm not the eighth of an inch guy. I, I like I I do construction with a chainsaw, and if it almost fits, then I'll send a nail through it. But I depend in almost every aspect of of my life on guys who do have that mindset to get something as perfect as can be measured. And if you're that kind of guy, you probably know that about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's exactly it. Yeah, and it's one of those trades that we can teach guys to meet tolerances but then there's the guys that are just rock stars and they fly through the program because they're just naturally able to do so yeah i did a a land survey the other day with matt brokamp um who's a land surveyor in uh in eastern oregon and when we're putting the the stakes in the ground the actual monuments um he was getting within a tenth of a foot um so that's that's his standard that he has to get to actually put that stake in the ground because where that stake is basically becomes law. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have technology to be able to hit that type of accuracy on a map of the earth, which we think of maps as a flat thing, but the earth certainly isn't. Oh, absolutely not. How incredible is that? It's amazing. And, uh, and we're hammering one of these things in and it hit a rock. If it were me, I'd be like, well, let's try that spot right next to it. Maybe (laughs) there's not a rock there. But for him, it's like, that's unacceptable. We're going to drill through this rock, and we're going to get this perfect. God bless those guys. I'm just not one of them. Absolutely. That's why I don't reload. I buy bullets. (laughs) Um, And fortunately, uh, the good folks at SIG make bullets that are extremely accurate, good cartridges. And uh, and I don't have to be that guy that, you know, is, is measuring everything perfectly. But uh, no, that's super cool. It's it's really fun to learn about. So if, if somebody's interested, um, either in hiring somebody from your school or going and attending that school, where do they learn more about it? So we suggest everybody goes to our website. It's schooloftrades.edu. Uh, on there, you'll find everything about our program. It breaks down all the different courses that the guys go through. And then anybody that is interested in either hiring and or attending the school, they can reach out to myself. I'm Eugene Baker. Uh, they can reach out to my phone number, 720-376-6668, or my email is eugene.baker at schooloftrades.edu. you guys have social media, Instagram, anything like yep, that? Yep, so we've got an Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we were on Twitter for about two months in 2013. It just wasn't our jam. So uh, reach out to us on there and follow us and see the fun projects all the students do. That's awesome. Thank you Sweet. for your time. I yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure meeting you, James. Yep, cheers. So I have some pancakes. What, what's a pancake machine even look like? It's it's actually really cool. So like, <laughs> you wave your hand in front of this little, um, like sensor, and it's like, <laughs> and it drops this little, you know, pancake mix on this like it's like a pizza oven, yeah. or like round table that like moves. No way. And you could like watch it cook. It's pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it was really cool. Do you think? We'll ever get to the point where we have like a backcountry model? Like if you want to have um, a pancake machine? Uh, you know, yes. I think so. <laughs> I think so. One day. What's it's called a mule. <laughs> 
in the Honda generator. Yeah. And I think it's possible. It sure is second. Call the llama. Yep. Um, what's new with Rockslide, man? Been busy. Yeah. Just keep growing and yeah. Yeah. Forum's getting huge. It's I can't keep track of half the stuff anymore. So. Yeah. Yep. What's your role there? I'm forum moderator and I do reviews. Okay. Yep. Um, when you guys are reviewing a product in in an industry where people are really happy to, to throw money at you, how do you maintain integrity and honesty in a way that your audience continues to trust you about how you're reviewing that? Well, for me, it's easy. Like, I've done a lot of reviews. People sent me stuff to do reviews. Sponsors of the yeah. website. And I tell them it's junk. Yeah. Like, I'm not using this. Gotcha. It will not work for me. Yeah. And... We give the people option, like, do you want to publish this? Do you, you know, yeah. like, I don't like this product. This right. needs to be changed. And if we don't like it, we don't publish it. And the thing is, you got to be honest with your audience. And that's what we've based Rockslide on, is yeah. honesty, yeah. Un- an unbiased opinion. Yeah. Because that's important to us. Because we don't want to be like everybody else that just, we don't want to be promoting. We want to inform people on the decision because... A lot of this stuff, like, I'm a single family income. Yeah. I can't afford to go out and buy, you know, the, you know, XYZ product all the time. Sure. Like, if I make a scope purchase, I'm making one. And that's, like, my big purchase for the year. Yeah. And I want to make the most informed, educated purchase I can. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I want it. And I want that. I know there's a lot of people in the same boat as me. And I want them to be able to make the best purchase that they can with their money. One thing I've noticed about Rockslide, and I don't know maybe even how to describe this, but I wouldn't say that you guys are unbiased, but your bias is is biased based on the experience that the reviewers have. Yeah, that's true. And, and everybody's different. Right? Yeah. Like, I live out west. I hunt, you know, Colorado a lot, you, you know, all over the west coast. Yeah. But what I like might not be what somebody that sits in a tree stand or has a completely different hunting style. Sure. But I guess what what I'm driving at there is that you're not going to let somebody review something who doesn't have a bunch of experience to be able to say, yeah, based on all of my experience, and because I'm an expert in this, I can tell you that this will work in this situation or it will not. Yeah. So it's it's not just somebody who's a rookie, you know, saying, yeah, I like this because its color is cool. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's coming from, from a foundation of a lot of knowledge, and that's something that I really appreciate about you guys. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we, we try to do that. And when we do have a product come up, Robbie reaches out to everybody, and he'll choose the best fit for that product. Yeah. So just trying to get the best out of it, you know. Yeah. Researching is a difficult thing if you're because it's, it's sort of hard to separate, like, what's promotion from what's a review. Yeah. And I think Rockslide is a good place to start. Um, if somebody's trying to search for a product that, that they're researching, how do they do that within Rockslide? Sometimes forums can be a little bit uh, difficult to navigate. Yeah, so honestly, the best way that I tell people, and it comes up all the time, you'll see uh, people will start new threads like, hey, does anybody have any information on this? Top right, there's a search button. Yeah. Search, and it'll pop up the threads. And, you know, if you hop over to the other side of the site with, um, you could go to, we list all our, our articles yeah. in different sections. So optics, got an optics button, yep. you know, and you can kind of filter it that way. Gotcha. Yep. Now, an- another thing 
that's got to be difficult is if you're sponsored by one company and then you're reviewing a product from one of their competitors. Like, how do you navigate that? <laughs> it, it, it sounds difficult, but it's really not. Like, I did a long-range scope shootout. Um, one sponsor out of the three scopes that I did, we had one of the sponsors. You know, yeah. it's just you got to look at it as an unbiased situation. Yeah. You know, it's, here's what makes it easy. The people that are willing to do that type of stuff, the, like the shootouts and all that, they stand behind the product. Right. Like they're like, yeah, I'll put it up against any scope, yeah. you know, or whatever, ice yeah. chest, cooler, yeah. doesn't matter. So the people that stand behind the product, they typically make good stuff, and that's just the way it is. Like, yeah. So we're reviewing good stuff versus good stuff. Um, if it's junk, they won't, they won't want to put it up against the competition. Right. So that part makes it easy. And then the sponsors know, like we tell them, we're unbiased. We're going to, if we do a shootout or a comparison, you know, it's, and they appreciate that too. Yeah. Because they don't want, they come to us because they don't want to be like all the other, because we are different. Yeah. Right? We, it's a unbiased opinion. We do, we have sponsors and we'll say in articles, I don't like this about it. Yeah. They need to change this. Who do you think is your biggest competition out there? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I only go to the outside, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, d- I don't know who it would be either. And I don't know if there is, I'm not going to say there isn't competition, but it's it's inflammation. You yeah. know what I mean? So to me, there's no more inflammation, the better when making a decision. Yeah. Well, what are you guys doing here at the show? We're just going around, going to booths and checking out new products. Yeah. Um, checking in on sponsors, see if they have anything new. Checking in on non-sponsors yeah you know everybody we're yeah. just looking for new stuff yeah new and exciting stuff one of the neat things about sort of uh this year i guess is the last two years people have been buying at such a crazy rate that companies really didn't put a lot of new products out there mm, because it yep. was all that they could do just to produce and ship the products that they had mm-hmm. um but now that some of that that rabid buying is starting to taper off we're starting to see a bunch of new products come out. And mm-hmm. I like that. I'm always excited too. in the next new thing. And it's cool to be face-to-face, too. Yeah. Being able to do it this is. podcast, um, seeing people yep. you know, instead of communicating with email totally. or just Instagram, looking at what's new there. You know, yeah. So it's cool. Awesome. It's awesome to be back. Well, it's good to see you. Thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you. Rob, R&K hunting, the master and commander of it all. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. Like I said, you just might get it. You're hiring guides right now. <laughs> we are. We are. What are you looking for? What I'm looking for is somebody that actually, uh, to take the approach that we have. I mean, you and I got to work together. We still are working together with the Elite Program with SIG and yep. then also uh, with the Hunter Games. And customer service oriented. Yep. I mean, people are coming to do these experiences for a positive scent. Yeah. Right? And so someone that's knowledgeable someone that is willing to still learn all of i learn new stuff every day yeah and the beauty of having the tight family i feel like with you you know the other guys that are on on, on the team and everything else is that i've been able to pick up so much more information and then share it with our guides and that's what i feel like needs to be done yeah because somebody doesn't want to actually come out for an expensive hunt or an even an inexpensive hunt and actually, you know, go out to have a good time and then basically be treated like 
their their pain in in the rear, or, right? You know, so that that's what I'm looking for. Okay. You know, from that standpoint. And then, what species do they need to have knowledge about? Deer, elk, antelope, moose, bear. Okay. Heavy on the elk. Heavy I mean, on the elk. yeah, our our elk herds are doing phenomenal. That's I mean, great. Yeah, and I and I can't complain one way or another. We actually. Uh, the owner and I have a, Ted Kemble and I have a meeting uh, with the fishing game in, in March, first week of March, to try to discuss what the herds are doing. Because my biggest fear is, is that now that we're up on top, per se, and our numbers are solid and everything else, I don't want it to slip down. Yeah. And kind of like the only example I can think of is just like the snow goose. Yeah. I mean, we have so much overpopulation on that tundra that there is no way that uh, I don't know if it's ever going to recover, even with all the things we're trying to do, because we're trying to play catch up. Yeah. If we would have gone ahead and managed it to begin with, then maybe it wouldn't have been so bad. So do you think there needs to be more tags issued or the same thing that they're doing now? Yeah, I, I think there needs to be a balance between the tags and how we can as a private land steward, because we go ahead and manage 130,000 acres currently. We're adding some more properties one way or another. I'm not at liberty to go ahead and talk about that now, yeah. but, but it, it's, it's going to be a substantial increase, okay. which is also elk habitat, elk yeah. country. So being able to also direct to the public yeah. and open up those doors, like maybe in a later season hunt or something along those lines, being able to facilitate. That's one thing I must say about Utah uh, with their CMHE program. It's actually, it's, it, it works. Yeah. It does, it, it does great to go ahead and help manage. It helps, it's great to go ahead and help the public get access to some of this private ground and then help the people that are actually managing that ground go ahead and do it the proper way. I've always thought it strange that the number of tags issued isn't a percentage of the estimated population yes. for that species. Yes. And we see that in a, in a lot of different states, and the population will fluctuate, but the number of tags issued does not. Right. And in the North American model, right. we use hunting to manage, manage. populations yes. and to pay for the, the study of those species. Yes. And it, it's the best model in the world. Right. It is the best model of wildlife management in the world. But for some reason, it's like, no, we, we don't consider these things related. And I think you just find what that percentage is right. that works and is sustainable. And then if there's other factors like drought or hard winters or predation that decrease the population of the animals, then you decrease the tags. Yes. And you're, you're only hunting a percentage each year. Mm -hmm. I agree. Doesn't that make sense? It makes complete sense. And that's, that's the other part of it, I think, in, from my position, is kind of frustrating because we're kind of our own ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, back in 2014 and then also 2017, we got hit with some bad winter. Yeah. And we saw a lot of a fawn kill. We saw a lot of the bigger bucks. I mean, the top end, the lower end of the, of the, of the age class got knocked out. Yeah. We immediately pulled back as far as hunt-wise. Well, in the area that we're a part of, 106 and 105 for that area K in Wyoming, they did nothing with the tags. They, they kept them right at the same amount. Hmm. And so when you go ahead and have conversations with the local biologist or you have local, you know, with the game warden, hey, you know, don't you think we ought to be backing off on this? Yeah, we're looking into it. Well, I think, like you're saying, you should be able to go ahead and slide that and adjust it. Yeah. If you happen to have a banner year for whatever reason and your population really swings up, I think that's just as bad as actually having it really low. Yeah. No, it, it creates a lot of vulnerability. One of the, the things that I want to clear up in, in talking about this as, as a potential solution, there are years where it's easier to count animals yes. than others. Yes. And so you've got to take that into account when yep. you're estimating populations. And there's years where it's like, man, we just didn't see that many elk on these surveys. Yep. 
it's like, okay, well, what was the population last year? What was the population the year before? Let's use that to also build a number that we're going to estimate our population now. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if you have a year where for whatever the winter conditions are, you're able to count all of the animals. And last year, you only got 70% of them. Yep. Now your tag numbers are going to be off. So I, I just want to make that clear that what I'm talking about is is using lots of elements to determine what right. that population actually right. is. And, and, and I think that's, again, where the private land stewards yep. can come and, and, and assist in that, yep. either by helping with access, helping with counts, yeah. you know, allowing access. I mean, I think there's a ton of stuff that we can go ahead and do. Sure. Because you and I know animals don't understand what a fence is. Yeah. Unless the sucker is 10 or 12 feet tall yeah. and they can't get out, yeah. if it's just a, a, a boundary, they're going to feed on this side and feed on that side and not even realize they went somewhere else. Yeah. So if they hunker in an area for some reason, and let's say that there's nothing else that's going to push them out, until they get some type of pressure and there's still food, water, and shelter, they ain't going anywhere. Yep. So everybody on the outside might not be able to get in to see what's going on, but they're going to freely travel. Yep. So That's the truth of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear your elk are doing well. well. Solid. Um, how are your mule deer doing? The mule deer are coming back, I mean, which is great. And and like I said, we got really aggressive as far as overall hunt numbers. And, you know, we're we're killing some good bucks on on hunt-wise. But, again, I want to be able to uh, present an experience hunt-wise that when you go out, you're seeing good numbers of deer. We're seeing good size of deer. We're maybe not seeing uh, a pile of 200-inch-plus deer every day, but we're seeing them during a four or five day hunt. Wow. And that's the end goal for me. I mean, on the deer aspect that's of it. That's amazing. Yes. That yeah. is amazing. Yeah. 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 Oh and, my gosh. Which I think, which I think is actually a, a pro positive on, on how we're taking responsibility because I've been with, with, with R&K for 10 years. Yeah. I've been in, in, the, in the background of it for three years. Well, when I first started my first two years, we would, I mean, you would literally see giants roaming around, I mean, every day. And then when we had those bad winters, and then we got in 2014, and we got socked again in 2017, we took it on the nose hard. Yeah. I mean, really hard. And so all of a sudden, your camp sizes for the seasons might go ahead and be, say, 40 hunters. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, that got cut back to 15. Yep. Last year, we increased it to low 20s. Yep. This year, mid, mid-20s. mid okay. I mean, and, 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 and so we still have to go ahead and juggle the business side of it but make sure that we're not going to go ahead and cut the head off right. on the environmental side of it. This is one of the things that I really appreciate about private land stewards is they're not only taking responsibility for the wildlife, but also for the habitat. Mm-hmm. And federal land management agencies like the Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Forest Service, they're really not doing anything with habitat to improve it for wildlife no. or even to keep it as it is, it, it, it's mostly just getting worse. Mm-hmm. And that's really upsetting to me. Um, so good on you guys. And I'm, I'm glad that you guys are getting more ground because you are doing such a good job of, of managing it and taking care of it. Uh, that's exciting. Super excited for the Hunter Games. I get yes. to compete this year. Oh, that's my I goodness. I know. That's it's going to be understand. awesome. I'm not making awesome. any boasts about, uh, you know, the future results <laughs> of that. But I'm going to have some fun. I know that much. That's right. That's yep. right. And I hope you don't work yourself to death in the meantime. Yeah. You, you put so much effort into making the SIG Thank 100 you. games possible. Yeah. Like, cannot, 
cannot overstate my appreciation for that. Thank you. Um, yeah, you're, you're the unsung hero for sure. Well, thank you. No, we, we were more than excited and we're more than excited this year to go ahead and host them again. I mean, it's going to be I, awesome. It is. And, 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 I, and I'm hoping that we can go ahead and expand on that also as far as in the future because I think it can add a lot to not only our, the, the industry itself, but also the public side of it. Yep. Because a lot of the stuff that we were playing with in the field last year yeah. is now products that are actually available for the public to go ahead and, and, and purchase this yep. year. Pretty cool. It is. It Pretty is. Cool. And, and they're all rock solid stuff. That's, yeah. that's, that's the best part of it. A lot of fun. Yes, sir. All right, buddy. Well, I hope you have a good hunt expo. And thank, thank you for you. your time. Yes, anytime. Thank right. you. What do fences have to do with mule deer? What do fences have to do with mule deer? Is this a trick question? Does it feel like one? <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot of different ways you could go about that. Well, number one, mule deer don't do well in high fenced operations. So Why not? Uh, you know, honestly, I don't really know. You know yeah. Elk, whitetail, a uh, bunch of other species, obviously, there's high fence operations all over. And it's not that mule deer have never done well in them, but it's almost like they're... Uh, in a captivity setting i don't know they just don't they just don't thrive in that they need more open space more places they like to, to move room. around yeah 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 and uh you know obviously the eastman families had the no fences here mantra back in the old videos and you know mike eastman when he was doing that to kind of prove that they weren't hunting on high fence operations you right know, the barbed wire fences and cattle fences are one thing but yeah um, but even that you know me coming i used to be a professional fencing contractor right and uh there's ways to even do the barbed wire fencing or agricultural fencing it's wildlife friendly yeah. you know that helps and especially with fawns crossing and all sure that, so something we've done um is started to put up calf crossings for elk hmm. um so you know in in places where we're seeing a lot of wire getting torn down from elk crossing every year we'll put up a couple braces and then just put lodge pull up and two rails in between them and then there's enough room for calves to get underneath until they get enough to get over the top, and they don't get that top wire, yeah. you know, third wire twisty thing that ends up killing so many animals. Yep. Seems to have really helped, and it's less fence for me to repair every spring, <laughs> which is a good thing. Yeah, and, the, yeah. you know, there's agencies like the NRCS and stuff that are doing a lot of cost-sharing opportunities for landowners that, you know, replacing fences extremely expensive especially when you're trying to tell a rancher oh no this is more friendly for wildlife yeah you know, sometimes that's not their top priority obviously the ranchers are cattle and whatever else they're doing and uh the nrcs has cost sharing opportunities for guys that can you know put up wildlife friendly friendly fence so that they're not footing the bill for the whole thing sure yeah now the the eastman family has a legacy within western hunting unlike any other family that i can think of and there's a certain amount of pressure that goes with that. Do you, do you feel that pressure? Or, or do you feel like this is natural to who you are and, and what you want to be doing? Well, sometimes you know, we feel the pressure uh, under cer certain circumstances. But for the most part, it's kind of just who we are. We've grown up this way. And you know, we do our best to consciously keep you know, in our lane and keep headed in the right direction and not get sidetracked it is easier when we live in wyoming so we don't have a lot of outside influences in our day-to-day -day life you know, yeah because we live kind of out in the middle of nowhere and kind of just do our own thing so that that does help being isolated and in, in a state that doesn't have very much population 
yeah. or, uh, or you know, outside influences to push us in different directions. But, you know, it, it's as a family, a third generation family and my brother, my dad, me, you know, we kind of hold each other accountable and, and kind of try to keep each other headed in the right direction and in, in the right lane, yeah. you know, on that. So the ranch that I come from in Northeast Oregon, I'm the fifth generation of my family to live there and, and raise cattle. And my little sister has boys now. So we've got the sixth generation on the ground yep. and it, it's an interesting feeling because yeah, we absolutely love the place and we love ranching and cattle. Mostly we just love the place. Um, but there's this almost this debt that you owe to the, the previous generations that have made this possible for you. And it, it's a weird pressure. It's an interesting pressure to keep it going. How do you feel like this is going to go with the next generation of Eastman's? Well, I mean, obviously we hope it, it continues. A lot of that depends on, you know, the direction of hunting in general. But, you know, we, we like you, we a lot of times find ourselves sitting in a room saying, you know, what would Gordon, our grandfather, think? Yeah. He's long gone now. Right. But, I mean, this has all changed so much from what he knew. Yeah. But the hunting itself hasn't. Yeah. You know, so you really, you know, we do, you know, generational business is very difficult. It is. In a lot of different ways. And the you third know. generation is often the toughest. It, yes. The third generation is often the toughest, and that's the one Ike and I are in now. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of, uh, can be a lot of pressure there to go to the fourth generation. So we have to do almost overachieve on preparing the business and, and everything to be able to handle the fourth generation because unlike most businesses, we're grooming our successors instead of selling the business to someone else and right. not worrying about it. So you kind of have to really pay attention as much to the younger generation coming up as you do the past generations who made it to where it is now, yeah. you know? And so we're kind of in the middle. So we got younger guys coming up, our grandfather, whose legacy we're trying to live up to and how do we fit into that? And so, you know, I think we spend as much time as we can looking at the business from a 30,000 foot level over space and time, yeah, you know, to keep it as genuine as possible, but still be competitive in a modern market. Right. You know. And and sometimes people fall into this trap where they think genuine and, and tradition means doing things the same way that they've always been done. And you can really get left behind if, if you have that mindset. So, again, with ranching, it's this really tedious balance. Like, we still want to be a cowboy outfit. We want to do jobs horseback if that's the right tool for the job. But you've also got to be skookum on social media, you know, yep. and the, the juxtaposition between roping a range bull or doctoring a cow, you know, without a pen that's got pink eye and then figuring out, you know, the latest Instagram algorithm so that you can market effectively. It's massive. Like, yeah. What a time to be alive. It is. It's interesting I, times. You guys, I would say you guys have a more difficult situation i think than even we do i mean there is a portion of our family that's generational ranchers as well right in wyoming and that, that's a very difficult one because you have such a massive asset that you're overseeing yeah and like you said you don't want to lose the old way of doing things yeah but you also don't want to shut out the new ways of doing things that might be more efficient right you know branding perfect example okay well we're going to rope and wrestle yeah uh, you know maybe we use a table maybe we hire it out to somebody who that's all they do and we just write a check you know i mean where do you want to be on that spectrum sure and you got the old guys saying one thing the younger guys saying another 
you know, and so it's a very difficult situation because you guys are living under one roof closer and tighter to the generations than Ike and I are even. So yeah, I understand that. And, and actually, we have taken a lot of how we've structured our business and handle each other from uh, generational ranching side. We have some consultants and guys that help us with business development and family relations. Yeah. Because we're in Wyoming. Yeah. They handle a lot of family generational ranches. Right. And, and they're the ones that have told me, you know, you guys, we can work through a lot of this. Here's what we've done in other cases. And some of the cases they've explained to me are very, very difficult, you know, on the ranching side. A lot of what we've seen in, in media, whether any kind of media, within hunting are, are the threats that we face, like the, the groups that are trying to take something away from us or the bad news about what's happening to this animal or that animal. What do you feel like is the best news in hunting? Like what gives you, what gives you hope and, and is kind of the bright spot of things that are going really well right now? I would say, you know, even though a lot of us who've been hunting our whole lives are kind of belly aching because there's seemingly more people involved, especially over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, it would belly because, oh, there's too many people in my favorite hunting spot. That's kind of a superficial problem um, because the agencies will manage that right. you know, once they adjust with the demand and all that. But it's you know, I come from a wildlife biology background, wildlife management background with agencies. And I remember 20 years ago when I got out of college that it was a major, major concern that there weren't going to be enough hunters to fund wildlife conservation now, right? 20 years later. Right. And we're seeing this huge influx of at least, I mean, hopefully it'll last. It could have been just a freak out over COVID or, you know, whatever that yeah. people wanted to buy, you know, get their own food and, you know, process it themselves and everything. But if it lasts, it's going to be, it's going to help our model of wildlife conservation in North America sustain itself, I think, into the next generation, hopefully. And as a media company, Eastman's, I think we have a wonderful opportunity to educate those people that maybe weren't raised doing this. Sure. That we take for granted because we all, we've done this yeah. forever. And our, you know, I mean, I'm not an Eastman, but our, everybody's families are grandfathers and great grandfather. I mean, that's what we did to sustain ourselves and it was fun and everything was hunting. And uh, there, it's hard for me to imagine somebody that didn't have that upbringing. But the good thing is there are people who didn't have that upbringing that want it. Yeah. And they want to give it to their kids. And so we have an opportunity to not just talk about, um, you know, shooting trophy animals and, and how to harvest them and, you know, really in-depth hunting tactics, but even getting down to that entry level to where, okay, how did I get involved? Like yeah. if I didn't know anything and I'm, you know, 25 years old, 35 years old, starting from zero, what would I need to know? And it, it's challenged us for sure on how to try to reach these people because, May, they're not the people we're traditionally reaching. We're reaching the guys who are kind of that more mature level of hunter and, you know, been doing it most of their life. But so I think that's, you know, there's challenges with it, but there's huge opportunities. Yeah. Which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. What do you think? I think the pendulum swings, right? Back and forth, back and forth. And now, like Brandon said, there was a time where it's, oh man, hunting's going extinct. There's not enough of us doing it. It's going to go away. And now all of a sudden we have this influx over the last five ten years of people coming into the sport and now there's lots of hunters and lots of money yeah now we have to concentrate on the resource right because it's the resource that's being stretched and pushed possibly beyond its limits in some 
you know, some cases. So now we have to become, we've, as humans, we get more efficient at everything, back to the ranching, right? Yeah. We get more and more efficient, put more cattle per acre, you know, doing even little things that make a big difference or little incremental difference. Same thing with hunting and conservation. We've done a good job of bringing more hunters in, whether it was our messaging or as an industry or circumstances like COVID or or whatever. There is more hunters. And now we've become really efficient at how we create, uh, generate, and distribute conservation dollars. Yeah. There's a lot of money. I've gone to banquets all winter, and I'll tell you what, you know, sheep show, go to one tonight here. They're raising massive amounts of money. That doesn't even include the Pittman-Robertson money. Yep. For all the new hunters buying products like yours, all the, all the guns and ammo, you guys know, Holy and, and that's <laughs> is a really untold story. It is how much tax is on that six scope? Yep, that goes into a pool that's then distributed to the states for ten, conservation. Ten percent. Yep, exactly. Yep. And, that, and that is the guy, the average guy going up to the counter at gun counter and buying that that AR and that you know, scope doesn't realize that because yep. it's not a line item on his bill. And honestly, we don't think. Th- Hunters don't thank the shooting community enough for their contribution to wildlife. And like you said, I think a lot of shooters don't understand that every time they buy ammo, an optic, gun, a fishing lure, like all that stuff ends up going to the federal government and coming back down to the state government to do their biology. And yeah, the, the shooting community, the pure shooting community who doesn't necessarily hunt, they're really doing a tremendous thing for wildlife. And whether they know it or not, we, we as hunters owe them some gratitude. Yep. And everybody who cares about wildlife owes gratitude to those shooters. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's a messaging problem. And, hey, I'm, I'm a media company. We're to blame probably more than anybody, the media industry, especially the mainstream media. That is a message that's not told. And right. that's one thing that the, the antis can never get over. When they get down to brass tacks and start talking about conservation, actual conservation dollars and projects, Yeah. They fall apart. Yeah. You know, they want to raise 50 bucks from the cat lady and go spend it on lawyers to sue everybody over ridiculous stuff. Yeah. Take and, cat and then, hunting away from Oregon. And then use EJA to uh, pay their lawyers. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah, we, we're we've actually putting about. our money yeah. where our mouth is, putting it on the ground. Yeah. Back to our original point. We, as hunters and conservationists and as a group, need to now get more efficient at utilizing those dollars to expand the resource. Yeah. Because the demand is there right more than de- than yeah. there you know and it's so much bigger than any one thing people tend to focus on like whatever they're mad about that that's a limiting factor whether it's you know disease or habitat or migration corridors or predation like whatever people are like oh we got to kill these coyotes we got to kill these wolves we've got to get these animals across the highway it's a bunch of things and a bunch of things that's takes a bunch all. of money yep exactly yeah. that's one never thing. one thing when i used to work for mdf for mueller foundation years ago um and i covered a four-state region and i'd speak at banquets and you know in our conservation banquets and all that stuff and people would always ask me what's the number one thing uh that's causing the decline of mule deer yeah and i said if there was one thing we wouldn't be having this discussion right there's you know half a dozen things minimum yeah that they're all working together at the same time for a species that's been around for a long time yeah and that they can handle a bad winter or two they'll recover you know they can handle some energy development they can handle interaction with humans on they survived an ice age yeah like so you know it's like when you but when you go you got predators out of control 
you know, varmints out of control, birds of prey out of control that aren't kept and checked like they used to be because that's a, that's a taboo topic. Sure. You've got subdivisions that are going up in places that people have never lived, and a lot of times that's a winter range. It's important for them to survive over the winter. You've got, um, you know, energy development, which we're not against, but when it's not done wisely, it can obviously have an adverse effect at times. Um, and then there's a right way that it can be done too. And then you throw in, maybe there's a drought and then right after that, followed by two tough winters in a row yeah. and, 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 and pretty soon, yeah, they can't take that. Yeah. But when, if some of those we can manage, you know, it's, as human beings, we can work together better, which is happening. Um, and then the weather, you just hope cooperates when you're trying to help populations recover. And then, honestly, a lot of wildlife managers don't like to admit this, but there's just sometimes things work and recover or don't work and recover, no matter how hard you try or even if you did nothing, and it's totally inexplicable. Yeah. It just happened. Yeah, we're, we're not in charge of as much as what we might imagine. Yeah. Okay, last question. If somebody has has the good fortune following hard work to uh to to take a really terrific animal and they want to take a picture of it and submit it to easements what guidance do you have for them to uh to take that photo like how do you take a great picture of yourself with a critter i I guess i'll start because i you know since guy's been doing this his whole life and you know it's kind of second nature for him when i started at eastman's almost 12 years ago now first time I was out in the field with him uh, he shot a nice bull and and was helping him pack it out me and a couple other guys and and he did a good job educating us that every animal has a sweet spot and you you know it doesn't matter how big or how small you can take a very flattering photo or a very unflattering photo of an animal and to help preserve a memory you want it to be flattering obviously and not just you know now it's all about Instagram and get me the you know the attention but way before that even it's like you can have a picture that you can remember that hunt for generations or even your kids can, you know, remember it or, or you tell them the story, the grandkids get to see it, whatever, and they can appreciate it and see really the, the beauty of that animal yeah. and, and the, the trophy quality and, and there's different, it depends on the animal. It depends on the species, but take, I think the short answer is take time. It seems like everybody, once you shoot an animal, all of a sudden it becomes this race, like a NASCAR pit to get out of there as fast as you can, even though you might still have like another three or four days of vacation. Right. You know, for some reason, once an animal hits the ground, people get in a hurry to get back home. Yeah. And I've never understood that. So take the time. I mean, there's times where we'll, after an animal's down, we'll take two hours right. taking photos. Yeah. And not because we're vain or anything like that, but there's a way to represent that animal so that we can show other people how you can do it too. And it shows it in its in the light that it's supposed to be shown. Yeah. You know, one of the things is have you know, have the sun at your back. That's a, a good tactic. Have have your phone settings if you're using a phone at the highest quality settings you can take. because um, when you're submitting it to us, even if it's an epic story and a magnificent animal if the photos aren't top quality, we, we just can't print it. It right. just doesn't show up nice. Yeah. And, and we're kind of hindered by that. So it's not that we don't want to. It's just we can't. Yeah. You know? And so take the time. Have your settings on whatever camera or uh, usually it's a phone for everybody nowadays. The phones take m- marvelous footage. Have it set right. Take the time to get the, have your buddy kind of pose the animal in different positions until it looks like it makes it pop. Yeah. And go, whoa, 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 stop right there. And then snap a photo of your buddy holding it. That I want it to look like that. 
and then you jump in there and do the same thing so that he knows what you're supposed to, you know, what angle you're supposed to hold at, whatever, the lighting right and everything. And, and it usually turns out pretty well. You know, don't do the what we call the buck rider photos where you're sitting on the back of it and its tongue's hanging out. And, you know, it's not the best flattering photo for anybody involved. But. And, and be respectful to the animal. Yeah. Yeah, for yep. sure. I, I yeah, you're that, highlighting the animal, not yourself. Yep. Yeah. I, I say that to the gals at the office all the time. They Sometimes they understand it, I think. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> I always say, you know, they get worried about in when they're doing the graphics, you know, the guy's face and his lighting on his face and stuff. I'm like, nobody's looking at the hunter's face. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the bucks. Yeah. Or the bull or the sure. ram or whatever. So yeah. make sure, you know, you like Brandon said, be respectful to the animal. Get the sun at your face so you're getting nice and lots of light on it. Frame it nicely so you have some room around it because you right. can't create what isn't there, right? And just take your time. Some of the best photos we've used were after I had a sandwich. Oh, really? the bucks down, and we take some photos, and we think we got it. Ah, I'm going to sit down and have a sandwich and eat my lunch and just kind of take it all in. And I think, oh, let's yeah. try this. Yeah. And it was on a second go of photos that I actually got the best image and just think about it i mean even i we make mistakes Mm -hmm. we were on a hunt this fall my dad my nephew and me were hunting elk and i was just filming and my dad and nephew my nephew's first bull he shot a bull and everything cool it was really awesome in colorado and we got him with the photos and stuff and then broke the bull down like brand said getting in a hurry to get it to the meat processor and uh when i after it was all tore apart i thought we never got a photo of all three of us. Yeah. yeah three three generations. Yeah. And that would have been the photo that lasted through the family's, right. you know, 100 years through the family's time, three generations with Jack's first bull. Yeah. And we got in such a hurry about Jack yeah. and making the bull look good that we forgot to take the photo that really mattered. And The I th- reason we were there. Yeah. yeah. And also <laughs> take uh, what we call support photos, but, you know, Take pictures of camp. Take pictures sure. of if yeah. you're using horses or if you're backpacking and or whatever you're doing. Even obscure photos of, you know, your rifle sitting against a chunk of sagebrush while you're eating your sandwich or something yeah. and glassing. Little things like that make a huge difference. It's not just about you and the dead animal. Or take an obscure picture of the animal when you first walk up on it. You yeah. know? Things like that, it helps tell a story. In fact, because our society is now so visually oriented probably more than ever because of all the social media and stuff that we just all live on. Um, Nobody really wants to read a 5,000 word magazine article. They want to read a 700 word article with three pages of really good photography that tell it's almost like a photo essay really. And, And with highlights and text. Well, we're, we're a visual species and one of the biggest mistakes I see people making when they're hunting things is they, they tend to treat that elk or that deer as if it had the same senses that we do in, in the same way that we do. So we focus so much on, on camouflage and whether an animal can see us or not and not enough on whether they can smell us. And I think that's part of why we focus so much on the visual thing. But in that same vein... One of the things that I hear anti-hunters talk about is they say that the only reason that we're doing it is so we can take a picture with a corpse. And (laughs) nothing could be farther from the truth, right? The reason that we want to get that best photo possible is because that is a gateway to the memory. And, And if it's not our memory, then it's a gateway for somebody else to imagine what that experience was like. And... That's a really powerful thing. So I think it's worth our time to figure out how to do it well. Well, and I, 
you jogged a memory of mine here that just happened recently. Um, you know, I, my whole, you know, tech accounts, everything is surrounded around Google, the Google platform Mm -hmm. and including where my photos are stored and everything. And you know how Google will do the, you know, five years ago today and they Mm -hmm. show a highlight reel that they auto generates and, um, it did one. It picked up on like I can't remember what the title was. Like the last six years or something, but it was roughly same dates with the same people in it. And it was my son and I, who, which we hunt together all the time, have since he could go out with me. And I watched this little reel that Google Photos auto put together of me and him being in the field. Some trophy shots, some just us hiking, taking selfies or whatever, preserving those moments. And I was in the middle of a busy day at work, and this popped up, and I was just stopped. And it was just, it just caught my attention. It's playing this little reel. And I sent, I could share it with him. Yeah. And he's 16, and I shared it with him and his Google account. And I said, Holy crap, buddy, have we been blessed or what? Yeah, what a life. Yeah, it all because we took some photos while yeah. we were out there. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, I still remember it, but it's not as easy to really cherish those memories, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys very much for your time. How can f- people find out more about Eastman's and what you got going on? Um, go to Eastman's.com, and there's a, that's kind of the gateway to all things Eastman's. Um, okay. You know, whether it's YouTube or social media, we'll, it'll direct you to that too. And our, our Tag Hub research platform is kind of one of the things that we're known for with our yep. you know 11 Western states research and how to apply so you can get out there in the field and have the make these memories. So Eastman's.com or TagHub.Eastman's.com, and it'll. Yep, you'll you'll get lost in more content than you have time to consume. So, and this is a great time of year for that. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you, guy, and thank you, Brandon. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for having us. All right, we're here with Jared Brown from the Draw. Young guy, you just got started with the Draw, and yep, you're 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 sweating it out to talk to me right now. But we're, we're going to try and take it easy on you. When I think of hunting in Texas, I think about just going down there buying my tag that has everything on it and just like hunting the things that are available. What do you guys offer that's beyond that? Or or how do you consult for people that, that want something that's a little bit more limited in Texas? Uh, It's, it's pretty unique because it's, I mean, you have everything right from, from squirrel hunts to all your exotics, your sandbar access, right? Everything. Yeah. And so what we've done is we've, taken all 600 hunts that they offer in the state of texas right yeah and we've broken them down into the very best of the best in every category that's awesome the top 25 best hunts they offer in the state and and i i mean some of the hunts are so cool where a lot of these hunts get looked over because they're categorized as a squirrel hunt. Right. But we're not going there to squirrel hunt. We're going there to hunt sandbar deer or axis deer because it's included in that squirrel hunt. Okay. Right. So it'll be listed as a squirrel hunt, but it'll say also includes unlimited exotics. Right. Wow. And so we're not, we're not going there to squirrel hunt, but it gets looked over because people are like squirrel hunt. I'm not, I'm not applying for that. That's dumb. You know, wow! I would do that. Yeah, I would. I would be so for that. That'd be freaking awesome. Small game is the best thing ever. It's, it's so fun. I love the Texas hunting license because it's got like alligators and nineteen turkeys and one hundred and seventeen deer and like it, it looks like a CVS pharmacy receipt. 
It's unbelievable. It's, I love it. It's crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. That super combo is when Jordan told me about it, I was like, I, I just want to buy one. Yeah. Like yeah. I don't even I don't even have someone to hunt with, but I'm gonna buy one and I'm gonna go figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cool. So what's your hunt plan look like this year? So gonna be trying to go back to Utah. I, I wasn't able to get my residency in New Mexico for this year. Okay. So um, and then just starting out in New Mexico, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with, with outfitters and things like that. So gotcha. probably not a lot of hunting this year for myself. Yeah. But, yeah, just got thrown into the fire. So yeah, very brand new to any consulting. Well, or, that, that's really or exciting. Like that. So yeah. it was kind of a, a luck of the draw sort of. It's, it's funny because it, it really was. Yeah. You know. Good for you. So. I'm I'm excited. An exciting future so, you've got ahead of you. Yeah, just just gonna try to. I have some points for Bear in in Utah. Okay. Um, and so last year as a resident in Utah, I want to take advantage of that and yeah, try to draw that. So, you know, one of the things that I find personally difficult about researching hunts in Texas is when you do an internet search, what comes up is the first ten outfitters that pay Google the most money, and right that's not necessarily the best opportunity out there. It's almost certainly not the best opportunity out there. It's, it's whoever paid the most for ad space. So it's really difficult as, as a consumer to do that research. And, you know, maybe, you know, somebody that went and hunted somewhere in Texas and they can help you out a little bit, but, and if you just want to pass, go collect $200 and, and go to the guys who have done all that heavy lifting research for you and find those top 25 best opportunities that, gosh, I didn't even know that was a possibility what you're talking yeah. about. It's pretty yeah. exciting. It so, is. It's super yeah. exciting. So, so so they need to give you a call. Yeah, definitely. What's your number? My, my number is uh, 801-400-2956. Okay. Is that the draw number or is that your That's number? That's my personal phone number. Okay. Call me. Okay. All right. <laughs> There you go, I'm folks. I'm, I'm taking all new business leads. So There you go. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Jared. Thanks, James. Mr. Patrick Freeman from Garmin, what is new in your uh, wide world of technology this year? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, we have a bunch of new product updates and okay. launches. So um, here at the Hunt Expo, we're talking a lot about uh, the new InReach Mini 2. So um, for people who know about the InReach, um, it's a great update for people who don't. Uh, InReach Mini 2 is a global satellite messenger using the Iridium Sat network that gives our customers um, the ability to call help wherever they might be in the world. Um, it also allows for two-way text messaging, two-way emailing wherever you might be, um, global online tracking if you want to have someone you know follow along with your trip. Or, sure. Um, you know, potentially look at all your tracks when you get back. This thing's um, tiny and it's really light. Yeah, super tiny, super light. Um, with the Mini 2, we updated the battery life pretty exponentially. So, okay. tell me more about that. Um, on the the um, original version, um, you know, people could go, you know, a week with intermittent use. Um, yeah. In actual tracking mode, it was about 40 hours. Yeah. And this is like triple the battery life. Really? So, um, quite a bit more battery life and then more navigation features on the unit. So it has kind of a tiny screen, but um, track back um, is a feature that we added to it. Um, the ability to kind of more easily add waypoints. Uh, the user interface is faster, quicker. So um, yeah, really a nice, great update on the InReach Mini 2. And um, the screen looks like it's about one and a half times bigger than like a Apple Watch or something like that. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, the screen is is relatively small. The beauty of this product, um, this goes for the previous inReach versions as well, is um, it actually connects to our Garmin Explore app. Okay. And that allows you to use the GPS chipset from this and overlay onto your mobile phone or a tablet. Um, and that way you can see where you are over high resolution topography, satellite imagery, um, you know, use the nice pinch to zoom, touch screen, yeah. have more situational awareness about navigating. Can you get um, weather updates on that? You can. Yep. Yep. That is huge to me. Totally. Um, I think that is one of the most beneficial things, even beyond like the ability to communicate out to the rest of the world, call for help. The fact that I can get a weather forecast for what things are going to be doing later today, tomorrow, like that plans my hunt in a really significant way. Wind direction. Oh my goodness. Yep. Yeah. Hugely, hugely important and underrated feature. Totally. Yep. Yep. So you can uh, pull a weather update um, for right where you're standing as well as someplace on your map that you might be going to. So that's nice. kind of another thing. When you're in variable mountainous terrain, you might have a big elevation swing. Um, you can see what forecast is doing yeah. like on the other side of the mountain. Um, and, yeah, again, if you need to bail, which I've used that feature to do a couple times, um, that's how you're going to know you need to do it. Yeah. Um, you could, in the past, like, what people are doing is, like, you could send a text to someone, but they're going to get a weather update, like, for your general area. Yeah, and this for, is like, using, the nearest town exactly. that has nothing to do with you. Yep, this is, you know, NOAA weather data for your exact GPS coordinates. So it looks like you have a watch that is replacing my instinct, which I've loved, but it is now like basically rotting off my wrist because I've worn it nonstop for five years. Yep. Yep. So uh, we launched a lot of wearables this year. So um, earlier in the year, we launched the new Phoenix 7 series. Um, so that's why I'm wearing um, huge updates to that product from a hardware standpoint. Probably the big standout features are... Um, we now have a sapphire uh, screen with solar and touch. Okay. So kind of the best of all worlds. What we does had, sapphire mean? So sapphire is um, a material that is uh, more common in like the Rolexes or kind of the, the high-end designer tool watches. It's essentially indestructible. I mean, you need like a diamond to scratch it. Okay. So, Incredibly um, hard. Yeah. You're not, you're not going to scratch this lens uh, in your normal everyday use, even if you're hard on your watches. Um, the seven versions, most of them have titanium bezels and bodies, so they're much lighter weight. Um, they have a scratch-resistant coating on that too, so they're still quite durable. And then we updated the, you know, the tech with the battery on these quite a bit, so exponential battery life increase with the Phoenix Seven family. Um, this particular model with uh, the Seven X is a little bit larger size. Um, I I can wear this for 30 days, you know, standard use without having to charge it. Added a flashlight on there, kind of my favorite feature as of late, just for like, That's cool. you know, having a backup or a redundancy at camp. Um, I used it trying to figure out what was going on under my car last week, taking the trash out, you know, those sort of everyday things yeah. that you pull I mean, your phone I out I mean, I like the, you know, the glow feature on my watch just like to get to my bed without bumping into furniture at night. So the yep. flashlight's going to be awesome. Totally. Yep. So yeah, so we're really excited about that. Um, you know, the Phoenix is our premium offering, so... Any type of activity that you want to track, there's a specific activity profile and data set yeah. preloaded into the watch. So it makes it really easy for lots of different customers. Um, but then, you know, there's things in here that no one else is really doing. I mean, we have full topographic and street mapping built into the unit. Yeah. So um, I'm at the point where 
I pretty much use this as my primary GPS when wow. I'm out too. Um, That's cool. Depending on what I'm doing. So. so what's new with the Instinct? So the Instinct, we just announced this week the Instinct 2 okay. um, and the Instinct 2S. So okay. um, had a lot of requests for people that wanted a little bit smaller of a watch, different color aesthetics. So a um, whole bunch of different versions and models came out, but we're excited about having a little bit smaller of a watch for, um, again, people with smaller wrists or a lot of the ladies out there are looking for something maybe a little more feminine. Um, so we're kind of um, hitting that need now as well. And then on the standard instinct, it gets a big battery life update. Um, it got a lot of the health and metric features um, that were in the Phoenix line brought down to it. Um, and then solar as well is kind of the big story That's great. on that. Yep. So again, you know, a lot of people at an event like this are out for long periods of time. Um, they don't want to have to deal with charging the watch. So um, yeah. again, super long battery life on all these. Now the Garmin Zero site, I've been, I've been with that thing since its very beginning. Okay, and cool. uh, kind of see, seen the iterations and, and use cases for it. Um, I'm a big proponent of it, even though it's not legal to hunt with in most of the states that I hunt. I think that that's ridiculous, and it's it's just kind of a flawed way of thinking. So tell me what's changed with this newest model of the Zero. Sure, um, you know, in a nutshell. Um, the customer experience has been improved greatly for setting it up. So um, the mounting system is completely redesigned. That gives us a lot more micro adjustability. Okay. Um, another feature that people were asking for is um, quick on, quick off. So if you're packing up your bow, throwing it in a case, traveling with it, um, you can now do that super okay. easily with the quick detach. Um, and then there's a number of additional features that we put into the initial setup and calibration that make it a lot faster to calibrate to your bow um, for setup so it doesn't take quite as long as it does otherwise that's so, great yep uh, those are kind of the, the the main key points on on what we added to it a couple additional features more adjustability on you know colors of the pins that type of thing but yeah yeah so the garmin zero site uh for those that don't know this is a bow site and it has a rangefinder built into it, and it it learns your arrow's trajectory as you sight it in. And once you get it set up, you come to full draw. Um, there's a there's a small little reticle that also tells you whether um, you're torquing or canting your bow at all. And you press the pressure pad. It's going to give you a range to the target, and then it's going to place an illuminated dot where you need to hold. Very similar to the BDX system that that Sig uses. It's illegal in some states because it has electronic features and because it um, has a rangefinder attached to it. Now, almost everybody's using a laser rangefinder that's in their hand, and they're doing all of the same things um, except that maybe instead of electric, they're mechanical, but it really doesn't end up making that big of a difference. This is just consolidating the technology. What it does for me is if you come to full draw after you've ranged an animal and it continues moving, you can update your range to that animal. So you're decreasing the chances that you're going to wound or miss that animal because you no longer have to guess its range. And that is a, just simply put, it is a more ethical way to hunt because you're taking the guesswork out of it. And uh, I don't think that we should be guessing when it comes to an animal's life. I think we should know how far it is and we should know our trajectory. And, you know, 
I, I, I just think it's a, it's a fantastic product, and it's something that I firmly believe in, and I think it's the, the future of archery sites. Yep. And I'm glad you guys are continuing to innovate with it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's been wildly successful, and we're having a lot of conversations here about it. And, um, you know, I work with a lot of our retail partners out at shops, and uh, definitely the go-to for someone who wants the best product on the market for that right now. Very cool. Yep. Well, thanks for your time, man. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. How's Mexico? Mexico, it's uh, it's like stepping back in time about 40 years. Really? And uh, it's the hunt we look forward to every year. In what yeah. way is it like stepping back in time? Just the people, the culture, the, the towns you go through, the shops you go in, everything. Yeah. It's just, you know, the ranches we go to, no electricity, barely have running water. It's just... I don't know. It's I don't know what it was like that long ago, but I feel like that's what it would be like. So, so when when you're filming a hunt down there and you know you don't have access to all those things that you're used to, how are you dealing with stuff like battery management? That's a big thing. Um, similar to how we do it in Alaska, take a shitload of batteries. Yeah, yeah, just right. take a bunch of batteries and just treat um, it like an off-grid expedition. And in the last, actually, this year is the first year we've taken solar panels and some sort of charging system. Okay. Um, but battery technology these days, you know, we just take enough to where we know how much we can run through every day. Gotcha. And yeah. So cool. But uh, it's it's a lot of batteries we take. So in your hunting coos deer, coos deer mostly. Yes. What do you like about a coos deer? Man, um, you know. I grew up in Texas, so I hunted eastern whitetails yeah. my whole youth. And uh, I moved out to Arizona, and coos deer did not appeal to me. Uh, I was just after mule deer. That's it. And then I started hunting coos deer and being in the country they were in and seeing the way they react. And it's just a whole different game. They're, they're just a small little animal that they're there one second, and then they're gone for the rest of the day. In a place that you think, I can see that deer somewhere right there. Yeah. Disappear. I mean, you know, it's cliche, but the, the gray ghost gets his name for a reason. Yeah. So the challenge of it is why I go. It's, yeah. They're, they're challenging deer to hunt. Um, even though we're hunting them in January in the rut in Mexico, you know, the rut's the best time to hunt anything. But down there, you know, you're remote. You're not going to be dealing with other hunters and they're still hard to hunt. I mean, we found multiple big bucks that we couldn't get killed this year. So it's... It seems like a kind of intimidating hunt to put together for somebody who hasn't done it. Mm-hmm. Is that intimidation justified or is this a doable thing? Yes. It's, you know, there is the fear of cartels and corruption and all those things that Mexico has to offer. But I feel like every country has that in a way. Um, you know, you've just learned to deal with it and, and we travel, you know, early morning in the daylight, we don't stop at random places, you know, we have it down to where every year we go, we have what we need. We stop at a few taco shop or a little grocery store. We grab what we need. And when you're on the ranch, you're behind lock and key and okay. it's, you know, it's middle of nowhere. Those corridors are not anything to be worried about you know so um when someone is worried about going to mexico i understand their their fear but in reality once they do it the first time they don't have that fear anymore it's no big deal yeah so you, do you drive down 
we drive down, yep. So any clients we have flying to Tucson, we'll pick them up, um, and we'll convoy. We rarely go one truck alone. You know, yeah. we're usually three to four trucks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whether we're hunting the same ranch or neighboring ranches, we travel down together. So, it's, How's the meat? The meat's great. Um, we eat a fair amount of it when we're there. You know, coos deer is not a lot of meat. It's a 90-pound buck, you right. know, that you're maybe getting 60% off of, 50% off sure. of. Um, but um, we go down there and we meet these people that, you know, some we've we've been with every year, but we go to new ranches. And each ranch has a, a cowboy, and that cowboy has a family and usually a couple kids or something. And so we butcher them up we pull the meat out of the field like any other hunt and we cook some of it there make it tacos or whatever we do and um then typically we leave a lot of it with that family yeah so hopefully they don't kill deer yeah for a few months so yeah that's a good thing for everybody it is yeah it works out so but coos deer is one of my favorite meats um let's say antelopes right up there and coos deer as far as the deer species is it's good is there an area where you call call it a whitetail, and then you know on the next ridge over, you call it a coos deer. Like, is there any blend of that? Uh, yes, yes, like, and no. Like, where, where where's the coos? Where where do they become a coos deer? I guess. Man, I, that's a rough line. I th- I think it's like one of those one of those things where it's just whatever your circle of friends calls them. You know, okay. um, Jay likes to call them Sonoran whitetails. Yeah. I call them coos deer. Yeah. Some of the old timers call them cows deer. Some yeah. of, you know, it's just one of those things where, um, if you look in the regulations, they just call them whitetail. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, um, I mean, I'll, I'll call them a whitetail every now and then, but it's just, they the don't deer. act like a whitetail. No, not it's, the it's way different. It, yeah. It's different. Yeah, for sure. So it sounds to me like if you love glassing that you'll love coos deer hunting. Yes. Early season coos deer hunting can be brutal some of the most brutal glassing hot temperatures you know sitting in the sun glassing into the shady sides you know just rough hunting january in mexico is the rut and even though you are behind big glass all day long um there's a lot of action so when there's a lot of action it makes it that much easier but you still need big glass you're you know you're you're glassing for a tiny animal on big mountain ranges yeah so it's yeah. and then once you glass them and find them getting to them and keeping them you know in 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 eyesight's kind of hard so i bet yeah actually um josh who went down there with us he killed a big buck and i got an inridge from him just a couple hours ago he went after another buck that gave us a slip and he actually killed it today so cool it's kinda cool yeah cool yeah huh um, after you guys go on a hunt like this and get it filmed, how long is it before that's going to hit your YouTube channel so that people can, can watch what we're talking about? So this particular hunt we got back, um, last week, first few days of February, it will more than likely be out in April to May. Okay. Yeah. And where can so. people find that? The Mountain Project YouTube channel. The Mountain Project. Yeah, Mountain Project. One YouTube. of the coolest titles out there. <laughs> it's we've had it since uh, we've had it since 2013 when it really? originated. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So yeah, it's it's a fun way to think about a mountain too. And honestly, most of the ways that that we interface with a mountain is project like. Right. Yeah. 
Right. I like that. Who came up with it? Uh, Jay and I collectively, we, we sat down. Um, the Mountain Project originally was going to be a documentary film of five different hunts, five different animals, five different mountain ranges, and it was going to be like a two- to three-hour documentary. And um, we are like, well, what do we call this documentary? And it turned into The Mountain Project. And then um, we just did it. We released more those films separately. We didn't make it a, a three-hour project. We, we released them separately, and it's just kind of stuck. So, How would you compare coos deer hunting with something similar but very far away being like hunting Sitka blacktail on Kodiak? Oh, man. I just... I just hunted Sitka blacktails back in November, and it's a similar hunt. We we discussed this in Mexico. It's, you know, we were hunting Sitka blacktails in the rut, and the only difference there is is all those deer, the, the high numbers, the high density, were all concentrated towards the lower country, you know. Got a, um, quite a bit of snow there this year. Yeah, 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 there was quite a bit of snow, and it was cold when we were there. But all a lot of the deer rutting down low, and... Um, the deer are very similar, even though the country's more open on Kodiak. I mean, they can hide, they can hide pretty easy. So, yeah. uh, very similar to that for sure. You know, I, I compare, um, caribou to the, to antelope. They're like the antelope of the North, but, uh, man, I don't, I've never thought about coos deer like that, what they would compare to somewhere else. What would you think? I mean, I've never hunted coos deer, never hunted blacktail for that matter. Okay. Um, Is coos on your radar? Yeah, very much so. Very much so, especially given the time of year. Um, And I do enjoy glassing. I I really do. I'm I'm happy to to try and learn about a landscape and and I'm fascinated by by the geology of a place and the history of the place and everything that's going on. So when I'm glassing, I'm not just looking for a critter. I'm, I'm thinking about how this landscape was formed and um, why the rock is that color and, and how the vegetation is growing on it. And I, I just kind of get wrapped up in, in everything that I can see there. And I feel so excited about looking at a new area and, and looking at it through good optics that it, it makes me feel like I understand it. Um, and sometimes if you're there long enough, it feels like you're a part of it. Yeah. And if that's a new place, pretty tough to beat. If you're into that stuff, Mexico is the place for you. And I like tacos. Yes. Big well, fan of tacos. <laughs> Every day. Every day. <laughs> yep. Coos deer tacos. Anything coming up for the mountain project this year that people need to be waiting for and, and excited about? Just the hunts from last year. We're going to have yeah. a lot of content coming okay. out in the, in the coming months. Um, we've got a lot of films in the edit bay. So You guys do a great job. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I'm not a great – I say this a lot, and I, I feel like a turd when I say it, but I'm not a great consumer of media, uh, but I, I really do genuinely enjoy your shows. Like that's, that's something that I'll turn on and watch. Thank you. You do a very good job. Appreciate Thank that. Thank you very much for your time, and it's, it's great seeing you. We have a project uh, that we're going to collaborate on. I don't know exactly when, but I'm looking forward to that, too, and Let's I'm not going to spoil it for everybody quite yet, but <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Good deal. Cool, buddy. Thank you. Michael Batiste, Elk Calling Academy. What's going on with you this time of year? Uh, you know, just enjoying the uh, Western Hunting Conservation Expo. It's good to be back here and see everybody since we didn't get to do it last year. No so. kidding. 
catching up with old friends and seeing how families are doing and yeah. seeing, you know, how companies have grown, you know, friends that, you know, we've, we've created in this industry and, and just watching how their business has grown and new products that they came out with. And it's just, I, I love this show just for that aspect of it. What are you doing this time of year to improve your elk hunting game for the fall? So, you know, I'm always looking at the maps of my hunting area because I know there's always untapped little pockets. Even if you've hunted the area 10 years, there's a little pocket that you maybe have never gone into. And so, you know, taking a look at that on the map and and seeing what's the access like? You know, how many people are going to be hit in this area? Yeah. Is it is it something that elk are going to go when they're pressured? Is it somewhere that, that elk are going to go when it's high winds? Right. You know, because they're going to go to different pockets, you know, when, when a front comes in and they get those high winds. And winds from different directions. Absolutely. <laughs> One of the things that I found really interesting when I was hunting coyotes in North Carolina this winter, uh, my buddy had hunted this area a lot over the last 10 years, and he has stands that he will only hunt on certain winds. And it's because of the way he's limited and how he can access the area, where the coyotes tend to be in that area. And it, it wasn't necessarily about whether the coyotes could smell him or not. It was how they hunted in that area and how they responded to calls based on the direction of the wind. Makes sense. Fascinating. You can actually, you can take that same approach and put that to elk hunting. And that's, yeah. what's, that's what's cool about, about elk hunting. And people think there's such a difference between predator hunting or turkey hunting or elk hunting. And, and I talk to a lot of guys that are getting into turkey hunting for the first time. And I'm like, take the same approach that you do elk hunting. So, and, and if you take that, it's just going to carry over because you're not having to learn everything completely over again. Now, there's going to be some minor tweaks that you do here and there. But, yeah, that, that same approach with elk hunting because we have that, that definite areas that you're talking about that we won't go into unless there is a wind or yeah. unless there is a storm front coming in because we know the elk don't normally hang out there. It's where they go when they're pushed. Right. So where do elk go when they're pushed? So they like comfort. So they like who doesn't? Well, I know, but <laughs> we're talking about having pancakes and sausage exactly, for breakfast. Like exactly, that's comfort. Yeah, no, they they they, they want to get into an area that they have a really good escape route. Yep. But they also have good visual of what's coming in onto you know where they're at, and also their their sense of smell. I mean, their sense of smell is their biggest defense. Yeah. And and so they will get into those pockets that. You may not even be that close to them, but you're close enough that one of your dead skin cells all of a sudden wafts up the hill, hits the nose of one of them in that group, and then they just slip right out that back door. You never even knew that they were there. Yeah, and and we it's found not that. always thundering hooves. It isn't. It's it's amazing how if elk wind you from a distance, you will never even know they were there, and you will never even hear them leave because they're not going to make a commotion on their way out it's only when it's in that 125 yards or less that's when the commotion and the butts and dust and all that takes place but if it's from a little bit farther away or you even crest a hill and they see your silhouette from a ways away they're slipping out that back door when i was researching moose for um, my alaska hunt this year uh, i came across a really old book i think it was uh i think it was published in the 30s and it was trying to determine why moose um, had such a strong reaction to the silhouette of a man. Mm-hmm. And it had a picture of a bear standing up right next to a silhouette picture of a man standing up. We look really similar. We do. So that's a threat that they face all the time. Whereas the threat that they face against people is intermittent at most. Right. Yeah. 
But it's that it, it's that silhouette that really they recognize yeah. as danger, and that's why you know you always hear so many people talk about when you're setting up, set up in front of something, set up that's going to you know something's going to break up your silhouette, yeah. and, and and that's exactly why because those animals you know recognize that silhouette. Now yeah. of course you know we can we can get into the whole Faraday cage principle and and you know how they how they you know navigate across the earth through electronic waves and how our bodies emit. You know, waves and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, uh, that's that's. A whole I don't know other. that I'm ready to drink that Kool Aid. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting one that's been out for five or six years now. So, and it's it's, you know what? Uh, I I still remember my grandfather. It smells like rotten eggs to me. I still remember my grandfather taking elk and blue jeans and a flannel shirt every year. Flannel was the original digital camouflage. It was. They just didn't realize it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, plus, it looks really cool if you got a nice man bun with that flannel, and you know, have your have your uh, Starbucks in your hand there. Yeah, so. I like keep my ears a little lower than that. But yeah, hey, yeah, to yeah. each their own. To each their own. True, true. I didn't cut my hair for a year after I got out of the Marines because I was sick of getting haircuts every Sunday. Yeah, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do it anymore. And I don't know at which point I realized it, but it was fairly quick that I realized that. Having long hair is way more work than getting a dang haircut every once in a while. Isn't that funny how that works? Because yeah. I was the same way. Growing up, I had longer hair. Yeah. And then when I went into the Army and was forced, like you said, to yeah. get a cut every week, and then you get out and you just it, – now it's to the point that if my hair gets long enough that it starts touching the top of my ears, it drives me nuts. I, I have to go get it cut. Yeah, so. for sure. It's Ma- funny. Amazing what you can get used to, huh? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. How, we, how we mold ourselves or train ourselves or just adjust as we, yeah. as we grow. Seen anything at the show that's got you excited? Yeah. Actually, there's, there's a company that uh, they're a fairly new company. They're called Hard Side Hydration. And, okay. and so, you know, there's always, always that debate on do I carry a water bottle or do I carry a bladder? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, bladders, they leak. They're hard to clean and this and that. So what these guys did is they actually combined the two technologies. And so they actually have a cap that fits any wide mouth Nalgene style bottle and has a hose. And then you have an insulated hose that comes up. So now you have that advantage of a bladder to where I I know when I run a bladder, I drink a lot more water. If I have to reach back or take my pack off, I'm not going to drink as much. And so the cool thing is they kind of combined those two Hmm. principles does and, it work? It, it does. Okay. And, and so, you know, the nice thing is, is when you're done, you just throw everything right in the dishwasher. Yeah. So ease of clean. And, and so, yeah, we're, we're really, really excited about that. I've uh, thrown away a lot of funky camelbacks in my life. I have, too. They, yeah. they normally get that nice green foam right down in the bottom of yeah. it. In fact, and I've seen it ruin guys' hunts before. You know, if, if they drank camelback funk, uh, I've seen guys go down and it cost them their hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Then... Uh, Velvet Antler Technologies has a new head hauler out that's a six or eight point connection. So, you know, when you're hauling your animal off the hill, they make one for deer and one for elk. Uh, but it's basically designed that you can lay the head down on the outside of your bag of your pack. And then you take this head hauler and you put that right over the top and it secures it tightly to the outside. So you got all your meat in your meat shelf. Now you have a place to actually put the head that's nice and secured. And it's not like you're running rope over the nose that your taxidermist is going to, you know, whip okay. you with that wet noodle about. Yeah. So it's, it's just it's, it's kind of a hourglass shape yeah to it yeah uh but yeah i thought that was that was kind of cool we still have plenty more places to kind of wander around and check out how about how about you have you found anything cool um man everything cool in my world is right here in this booth i haven't left yeah um so i'm i'm riding for the brand here and yeah i'm i'm both teaching and learning about these products because some of these things are brand new like 
like that 10k bino over there okay um this is the first time i've seen that the the 8k rangefinder first time i've seen that and gosh powerful technology pretty freaking cool and it's getting closer and closer all the time to the technology that I had back in the tank. And yeah. I love that because yeah, I miss you're that, loving stuff. that one. I miss that stuff. Now, that new rangefinder, does that have the same technology to link up with your base map and, and yeah. kind of the same as all the others? And that's pretty cool. Right. So let's say you see some elk that are like three miles up into a basin, and it's an area that you haven't hunted before. You're not super familiar with it. You range those. You drop a pin on them on your base map. Now you can look at your map and be like, okay, I can go up this trail, I can go to this ridge, and I use my measurement tool, and from this knob right here where I'm going to hit the skyline to where that bull's bedded is 410 yards. I can make that shot. Away you go. So cool. So cool. Oh. Or it's like, okay, I, I made that shot. Um, that's where he was standing. Drop a pin. That's the first place I'm going to go look. Because how many times have you gone over to look? even on an archery shot and not knowing exactly where he was like now you can do that yeah I absolutely think that's neat oh yeah getting getting over there and and you know the terrain always looks different when you're over there standing where that animal yeah. was versus where you shot from and then you're you're turning back around okay i was you know by that tree or right. that, that bush and i was shooting at you know this angle and, yeah and and usually you're 75 80 yards off yeah you know if it's a longer rifle shot sure. and, and yeah i've been i've been bow hunting before and gotten over there and found out i was i was a good 30 40 yards off from where that animal actually was yeah so we glassed a big bull up uh, across the canyon system one time and we had to hike out about an hour we had to drive for close to an hour we hiked for four hours got down this ridge and had you know two hours left of daylight and we're like this isn't the right ridge this is the wrong spot we look back across where we are we're looking at ourselves on the map like this isn't it but i don't know where else it would be but this isn't it and we're like well, we can't make a move, so we just sat there. The bull ended up coming out at last light, and we got him killed. But we were 100% confident that we were in the wrong spot. And, uh, yeah, we could have avoided all, the, all that. Oh, yeah. It's, it's amazing how that terrain and country changes when yeah. you get over on that side. Totally. It's, it's, you know, things that – I remember one year I was hunting moose in, in Newfoundland. Yeah. And, you know, that's just, that's just different country over there. And yeah. You're looking out across the tundra, and – you know, out in the distance, you see these bushes that, you know, look like they're 12, 14 foot tall bushes. And then you get over there and all of a sudden you drop in this little depression and these bushes are three feet over your head. Sure. But because of the perception from that distance, it just looked completely different. Well, like when I was hunting moose in Alaska this year, I'd never, you know, seen a Yukon moose up close and, and in person before. And I'd see him going through this stuff and I'd be like, oh, that looks like that brush is two or three feet tall. And it's over the top of your head, and there's still their whole body sticking out of it. Yeah, like holy cow, this is weird. Makes you appreciate how big those animals are, huh? So big. You want to talk about head hauling? Yeah, son, like hauling that head out was all I wanted to do. You know, that was a single trip. Come I'm, back for a quarter and getting that quarter strapped onto my pack. That's all I could do. I remember you uh, posting animal. pictures. Yeah, I remember when uh, when the guide was breaking down. Uh, you know, the moose. Yeah. And as soon as he got that first quarter on, I grabbed it and started heading for the Argo. Yeah. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, do you really expect me to sit here and let you do all this work? Yeah. No. Well, yeah, that's how things normally on. I'm like, no, I don't operate that way. Yeah. Man, yeah, I know what you mean. You pick that, especially when you get to the hind, man, you pick that thing up and throw that. And You know, the front quarters are so, so tall, Mm -hmm. even though they're not as thick. 
I was surprised at how similar in weight the front was to the hindquarter yeah. on those animals. Really amazing. Yeah. Um, where can people find out more about Elk Calling Academy? So it's, it's Elk Calling Academy, and they can find us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, or just simply elkcallingacademy.com. Um, you know, elkcallingacademy.com is a paid membership site. to uh, can do either $15 a month or $150 annually. Uh, all kinds of tutorial videos and coaching videos and articles and yep. and, and i don't just cover the calling aspect i mean I, I get into elk biology a little bit you know and, and I, I think i did a whole series on what do elk eat yep and and you know i'm out there taking pictures and videos and um so it's it's the whole aspect of of elk hunting that really kind of walks them through at that elkcallingacademy.com. money well spent on improving your game go check it out thanks for your time sir you bet thank you you guys have kind you. of done like a, a beard reversal here. It's freaking yeah. me out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But yours can grow to that length it, like tomorrow. Yeah. It takes a while still. But yeah. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look oh. at that. Are we going right now? We're going or right we're... now. It's oh, happening. Okay. I actually have proof that Court can grow a beard better than any human <laughs> in planet Earth. So oh, we started... I started growing a beard about two months before court, and we were, had an Iceland trip going. Yeah. And I didn't see him for a little while, and then we showed up, and all of a sudden, court's beard was like twice as long as mine. I'm like, dude, I started a month or two before you, <laughs> and your beard is way longer than mine. How is that even possible? Like, are you rubbing goat's milk in there or something? Posi- positive attitude. Yeah. Yeah. No, it must be. Yeah. I, I, goat's milk is good for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the wide world of traveling anglers. Like, where, where have you been? Where are you going? What's new? Well, COVID did put a little <laughs> bit of a damper. As it will. Yeah. 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 We had Russia scheduled to go chase giant taman. We pretty much have had every trip canceled in the last couple of years. But before COVID ruined our lives and everybody else's, we went to the Seychelles and Dubai. Tell me about the Seychelles. Neat. Like that's, is that the trip of all trips? Uh, it's pretty freaking sweet. It's the best trip that I've done. Tell me about getting to the Seychelles. That's intimidating. It's a beast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you literally fly around the world. When we came back, we flew, or we flew there, and then we flew back the opposite way, so we did go all the way around the world. So what does it take to fly there, like from Salt Lake City to the Seychelles? Talk me through it. We did Salt Lake to Atlanta, Atlanta to Paris, Paris mm-hmm. to Dubai, Dubai to the Seychelles, Seychelles to the, the other Seychelles. We were, yeah. yeah. And then we were there. And, and where are they? They're off the coast of Madagascar. Yeah. They're and, way down there. And they're way out there, too. It's just nothing, you know, like and in it, the middle of the Indian Ocean. And it's some atolls, right, basically? Mm-hmm. Um, and those islands kind of show up and disappear every year. <laughs> uh, what, what were you targeting? Giant Trevally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. GTs. Are they as special as people talk about them? Oh, dude, they are more more yeah, so? they're just More so special. bad, dude. They're so crazy. What's like, crazy about them? I mean, they're big. They're ferocious. They chase stuff. They, like, everything that, for me, 
that I like in fishing is I just want a fish to like try to kill what I have, you know, like yeah. just if it sees it, it's going to freaking kill it. Yeah. And that's what they do. Less brown trout, more tiger sharks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They have a real bad attitude. Yeah. Like when you cast at them, they either want it or they don't. But when they want it, they come in so fast and they will swipe at it until they crush it. And then, I mean, you the, the fight is you have to break their spirit before they break you off. And you just have to lean back and put everything you have into them. And you've got a 130-pound leader on there. Holy cow. And if you don't, they will just take you into the rocks. Guy had the guide. I was stringing up my leader. And he goes, what do you got there? Is that 80-pound? And he, goes, he just started laughing. You fool. 80-pound? <laughs> ha! Like, no, no. no. You, you have to use this. I'm like, really? You have to use more than 80 pound he's like yeah you have to use 130 pound because if not it'll just slice you right off in the rocks so are you using crimps uh yeah and some special seychelles knots yeah 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 they've got they've got it dialed in pretty good down there just because you know they've had so many but dude still they'll they'll school you they find rocks they'll find anything to break you off all my biggest ones were broken off. I had one break my leader. Lots and of bent heart. hooks, you know, like yeah. six aught hooks that are just bent straight. Which like nuts, dude. I mean, how does a fish bend a six aught hook, right? With its face. With its face. <laughs> yeah. That's a right. bad fish, you know? <laughs> did you guys make a video out of it? We did. Yeah. Where can people it, see it? YouTube. YouTube. Where well, you got to be more specific. It's called Turbo Giants. Just search Turbo Giants okay. in YouTube, and you'll right. find it. Turbo Giants fly fishing, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Is it on the Blue Halo site? Yeah. It's yeah. on, yeah. Or, yeah, you can so, look on Blue Halo, and it'll be there, or just YouTube. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, guys. Yeah. It's so good seeing you again. So good to see you, oh. dude. Yeah. For real. We, can we do a reunion trip? Yeah. For reals? I'm ready. Okay, I'm, let's I'm packed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Motorcycles, guns, yes. fishing. Yes. Yeah, I'm in. Maybe some hunting. Yeah. Yes. Always some hunting. Yes. Okay. I'm converted to epic. the way. Good. Now, Courtney has yeah. brought me into the light, and hunting is the way now. Dude, Derek yeah. shot a great bull this year. Nice. You see his bull? No. It's freaking awesome. I shot a bull. A big I dog. became a man. <laughs> And then the beard. And like, it's beard. all part of a package. It, it actually, like, re- legit, my beard has come ever since the elk. Yeah. yeah. I shot an elk, and magically this beard just showed up on my face. I'm so proud of you. Oh, it's like I'm that so, show. Really? I've never truly been proud of myself, <laughs> except for when I got married to my wife, when I had a couple kids, and I shot an elk. Like, these, these are the highlight moments of my life. And and we're 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 joking, but we're not joking because I, I've I've said it a bunch of times before, shooting a big bull elk will change your life. Oh it, yeah, it, it just does, and and in inexplicable ways. It sort yeah. of ruins your life. Yeah, a little in bit in the best way. In the best of ways. Oh yeah, in, in the good way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, fellas. Oh, dude, thank Much you. Much love. All right, Frank. What's new with uh, Kifaru? What's up, James? Jimmy Nash. I don't know. 
What is new? A lot of things. Yeah. We got a lot of things we're uh, we're working on. I got just uh, got surprised by your offer to hop on this podcast, and I couldn't say no. Yeah. That would be rude. It would be rude, <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad that you're a polite person. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, that's cool. I appreciate the uh, the invite. Yeah. What do you want? What do you want to know? What's what's up, man? Um, you been killing any yotes? Man, uh, not a lot lately. I've been working on it though. It's the big project for the year for sure. Oh really? Um, yeah, yeah, big project. Nice. S- still a little bit secretive though. I, c- I can't talk about oh, it too much. Oh damn, damn industry um, secrets. Yeah, but it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be really interesting and um, and actually a terrific challenge. Um, coyote hunting where I live is tough. We don't have a lot of coyotes. We don't have uh, we don't where have you, any, any rabbits. Uh, we're in, I'm in Northeast Oregon. Oh. Um, so it's like prairie, canyon, mm-hmm. high mountain, and there's no jackrabbits, there's no sagebrush, and everybody's got a gun. So the coyotes are like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're well trained. Yeah. That's yeah, cool, man. man. Um, no, Kafaro, I want to know, uh, like, are there any new products that have come out recently that people need to know about? Um, you know, we actually have some cool things coming out here within probably the next, I would say one to three months we have um you know if you're not familiar with the company we offer uh backpacking backpack hunting gear geared towards your your blue collar diy guy you know the guy that's uh wants to invest a little bit of money into their gear it's 100 percent usa made gear um with made with usa made components but as far as new stuff we we do have some i might have to keep it a little hush hush yeah but we do have some some cool packs coming out i don't need to know about stuff that isn't out yet oh i got you yeah um but as far as anything that's that's already come out within the last year or so, yeah, I mean we've we've had a lot of uh, feedback and good good feedback and interaction with our uh, Striker XL pack. That pack is has been huge for um, guys that maybe might not not necessarily be uh, a backpack hunter, but they want to have a good quality backpack and frame. And and kind of the cool thing about that pack is it, it attaches to our frame. So if you're not super familiar with the company, the frame is kind of the foundation of the of the system and then you can attach different packs to it so that pack is a smaller pack day pack style and it has a, a really quick access load sling so i think okay. a lot of people love love their load slings yeah um so that pack's been super popular you know we have our 44 mag pack um the hoodlum pack those are more geared towards uh your backpack hunting style packs but yeah i mean we have a little bit of everything for everyone and um you know we we definitely take customer feedback um and in, into pretty big consideration and then the nice thing about um, having a USA made product and also doing a lot of our in-house production is when we get that feedback, we can either make an inline change to our current offerings or we can, uh, we can develop a product pretty quickly and get that to, to the, to the market within a couple of months. So I'm curious about your guys's development process. So if, if, you have an idea. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? Like, what has to occur between an idea and you guys making a video and putting it on your website so that people can buy it? Um, it's it's cool. I think uh, so. You know, we we have uh, one in-house designer. It's Eric Bender. He's been with the company for probably I don't know uh, about as long as I have, about eight years. And so basically, you know, somebody will come up with an idea, whether it be uh, Aaron or myself, or we get some feedback from a customer. We'll go talk to Eric. He'll sketch something up on on his notepad, basically, and and then we'll you know we'll tell him tweak this, tweak that, and he'll go and sew a prototype right away. So yeah. he, we have a full sewing setup along with some sewers in house, um, and he can he can whip something up within a couple of hours, and we'll go in and he'll make that. If we like the initial prototype, we'll 
we'll start field testing it. And that can take anywhere from a couple months to a whole season, right. depending on what it is. And then uh, we have our in-house sewing capabilities, and we do have um, outside sewing capabilities that are still domestic. And depending on what it is, if we use our in-house stuff, it, we can have it on market as quick as maybe, I'd say, three months. That's um, super fast. And if, it, if, we, if we go to our outside sewing, um, anywhere from, I'd say, about five to six months. So it, it is very quick. And your outside sewing is still in America? It's, it's all U.S. Yeah. Yep. Has there been anything, um, you know, during the life and times of COVID that you guys haven't been able to get a hold of? Have there been shortages on, like, buckles or thread or anything crazy like um, that? Not so much on the hardware side, but definitely on the foam side. So I think there was, there was a lot of shortages on foam just because I think they were using some of this stuff for, like, hospital beds okay. and various medical equipment. So. Some of these companies, they they do have ties to the medical field, so that was their priority during COVID. So I think COVID affected every every company, no matter what industry, in, in some way. That's really something that nobody would ever think of as like a foam shortage. Yeah, and right? we didn't think about it yeah. either. We didn't know we didn't necessarily know that these companies had ties to the medical side as well. And right. of course, that's going to take priority during a during a uh, I guess a pandemic, if that's what you want to call it. That's really interesting. <laughs> I'm I'm imagining like a like a big industrial building full of foam, like right. boxes of foam. Yeah. Like I don't even know what format foam comes in. Yeah. It comes in really big sheets on yeah. pallets. Yeah. But yeah, that, that was something that affected us. And then, you know, going forward, if you pump gas, you go to the, the grocery store, everything's becoming more expensive. So we're having to adapt, yeah. um, adapt our pricing and kind of stay competitive, but we don't want to price ourselves out of the market. So tough game. That's, one thing about especially like a, a made in the USA type type model, none of us are really getting rich doing this, yeah. but we believe in that's the way the company's been since uh, Patrick Smith started it back in 97. And that's the way we want to want to keep it. We want to stay USA made with USA made components. And, you know, we, we're not going to make huge margins on this stuff, but it's something that we believe in. So that's we're awesome. going to keep doing it. Good for you. People, uh, people that love you, love you. And, uh, <laughs> That doesn't always happen. You know, right. there, there's a lot of people that use stuff and they're kind of lukewarm about it. But the people that use Kafaro, like they're, they're ride or die Kafaro. Um, and that's an interesting thing about your brand. And the only way that you guys have done that is by being authentic to yourselves and, and honest with your customers. Something yeah. I appreciate about you. Oh, thank you, man. And, and that we've been talking about this recently, just kind of going over our goals and stuff. And we, we want to stay along those lines of being relatable to uh to your blue collar everyday guy diy guy stuff like that you know and we have we have customers from all walks of of life but i think kind of from where we come from is, is kind of that that blue collar style and we nice. want to be relatable to, to everyone you know and we do get some cool opportunities to go on some of these guided hunts but we're still just your everyday guys we put in for tags and hunt public land just like anybody else too yeah. so right yeah, on we want to we want to hopefully stick to that lifestyle and and uh, we're actually moving to Wyoming here pretty soon. That's a good call. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good call. Yeah. I think that's going to be a good move for you. Yep. All right, brother. Well, I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I yep. appreciate you as well. Cheers. How's things going at Wishes, bro? Man, things are incredible right now. Like, best they've ever been, honestly. What does that even mean? Like, tell, tell the me. The growth. The growth really? that we've had in the last year and a half. We We trimmed a lot of fat, got rid of a lot of things and people that didn't need to be involved yeah. and brought in the right team and i'm actually kind of frustrated that we didn't do this years ago and it, and it just is it has excelled us past our goals that we've wanted to be 
years ago. Yeah. And, it, I mean, one, I, I, God, I, it's just so frustrating kind of because if I would have known and listened to this knowledge, you know, you build your team, you got to water your roots, not the tree. Right. And we finally, I mean, it took me eight years, but better. <laughs> Better late than never. Wishes so. is, is a thing that's constantly evolving, though. 100%. Well, that's because the veteran community is constantly evolving. Right. And so I feel, um, you In know. In a lot of ways, we're aging. That's it. It, it is all age. Yeah. And so, you know, back in the day when we started Wishes, it was pulling guys out of the hospitals, pulling them out of basements, pulling them out of the dark spots. Well, these guys have gone through that healing process. And so... Now what? What's next? And so we've we've really shifted gears toward clinics, retreats, seminars, learning. Just education is so big from how to hunt 101 to breaking down an animal, packing it, deboning it. And then now we're doing whitewater rafting. We're doing um, snowboarding clinics. We got one here coming up in Jackson Hole. We're sending a bunch of guys to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Just, I mean, how awesome is that? We you're, got, you're focusing more on the spiritual side of things as well, we're too. Really, that's going to be our big push this year is more of the spiritual, which is a perfect way to put it. Um, there's, a there's a very large number of veterans that have gone through mental trauma. Right. Major, and, and in this field that I've been in for eight years now, well, the veterans or the charity side of things, the worst off vets that we've ever dealt with, hands down, had no physical scars. Right. It's all mental. And so we have a really good rep. His name's Mikey Krampitz. He's one of the greatest guys you'll ever meet. And he's one of those very in touch with his spiritual side and emotions. And, and he's he has dealt with some, some hard cards, right? Sure. Just overseas. And he can't talk about what he went through with most vets because it's that bad, his, right. his, his mental trauma. and But there's a whole network of veterans out there that have. So what we're trying, what we're really going to focus on is more of the spiritual, getting these guys into the mountains, disconnected. This isn't a hunt. This isn't a party. This isn't going out and having fun. This is for these guys to be able to sit down with like-minded individuals of other veterans, all branches, that have gone through this types of trauma or things that they need to talk and vent about to other veterans. But, like, no civilians involved. We're going to pull out. Like, everybody will be, you know, staying in separate. These guys will have their own one-on-one -on -one time with other vets that have gone through the trauma that they have and are able to connect on that level. Like, if it's cry therapy, like, just literally learning how to cry. Like, that was – not get, like, personal about myself, but – one of my biggest battles that I had to figure out is I would bottle all my emotions and it would come out in rage, breaking, complete breakdowns, meltdowns, destroying half my house, like taking out on my kid. Like I was a fucking asshole for a long time. And so when I learned and I know that I'm going to get flack for this and I don't care, but like when I learned how to cry, dude, it changed my life. Like now I'm, I'm letting all that energy out in a different way. And so it means a lot for me and I get it because I'm one of those guys. Like I'm not going to say I've gone through the trauma that these guys have, but like just even as a man, you don't even need to go through it. It's, it's, it's just a different approach or different um, angle to get rid of some emotions and things like that. Instead of bottling it, it's not healthy, you know, then, then we explode and we have these meltdowns and these guys are losing it. So we want to give these guys an opportunity to learn this kind of stuff and it could be anything. So we're really, I'm really excited and I'm glad you grabbed me um, to to really dig into this. We've teamed up with some incredible ranches that are going to allow us to just use their horses and get into the mountains and just let these men and women just be as free as they want, talk about whatever they want, and it'll be left on the mountain, and then they could build that camaraderie and a bond and come off that mountain with something that they've shared together, and hopefully it's going to be creating friends and friendships for life over 
being able to know what other guys have gone through because not that's not for everybody you get you know you got your hard vets that you know go the more comedy route or you have the vulgar and they want to be in silkies running around and slapping ass that's not for everybody not every vet can connect to that right and so we want to we see this whole entire demographic of guys that they want to write they like poetry they want to do more artistic style things they want to get more connected spiritually so we're gonna we're gonna really start pushing into that and i'm I'm honestly really excited. It's been a while since I've been really on fire to like launch a new program and to start and see the growth because there's so much work that comes with an organization. And so every time we launch a new program, it's like, oh god, it's gonna kill us, you know. Like, but now that we've got this team and these guys are now running these programs individually, they come to us. Hey, I got this scheduled. This is booked. I need to pay this, and we got these guys flying in this date. Boom! Like that just relieved all of that work for that program for us. And so. You know, it, we're doing really well. I'm really excited for the future. And now that we have these guys that are on board now, God, I wish I would have had them eight years ago. We would, I wouldn't even know where we'd be. I probably wouldn't want to be where, where, where we would be. But Well, the road that you took is the road that got you here. Absolutely. You know? So if you'd done something differently, you'd be in a different place, and it might not necessarily Always. be better. Um, how does being here at the Hunt Expo benefit you, benefit Wishes for Warriors? Um, I mean, it. It doesn't benefit us a lot. One, we've been coming here, I think this is our seventh year coming with Mueller Foundation, donates the booth, and we're very grateful for. Um, it's more of just a community awareness. We have a lot of ranchers, a lot of guides and outfitters, or, hey, you know, we'd love to do this and this. My approach to all this is is now we're able to spread the word. Yeah. And one, we, get, we bring these vets in that now they're not just a vet utilizing the program, right? Like we have vets right now. That one of them was just on a bison hunt in Montana and shot a bison on the side of a mountain was the most incredible thing I've, I've witnessed in a long time. And now he's running a booth and the guy's sweating because he hasn't sat down. And I'm like, Mike, like sit down, take a break. So now it's helping vets. They feel like they're giving back and like they want to be part of the program. And they've got a mission. And it's a mission. Like because how important is that? Like once you've had that in your life, um, and I don't think that most people get what that means. Like if somebody gives you as a Marine a mission, mm-hmm. like for me that meant, okay, I'm going to do this or I'm going to die trying. Yep. And, and, and that's 100% honest. Like that's the way you go into it. Uh, everything. And then once you get back to the civilian li- life, it's like, okay, hey, can you do this? It's like, is it like – is that a request or is it a mission? Like I, I, you feel kind of lost want, in it. When do you want this done? And How once fast? you have a purpose again and you mm-hmm. can like sink your teeth back into something, what a tremendous relief it is. And I think that's probably what he's going through. It, and it's awesome to watch that. Yeah. And so, you know, you, we got Dom in the booth. He's, he's our um, recreational program director now. Yep. So he's doing whitewater rafting, mountain bikes, snowboarding. He's, he was the second vet we've ever helped. Yeah. And now he's running his own programs. Mikey doing the bonfires and spiritual retreats. He was our third no i'm sorry mike was our second dom was our third vet we've ever helped wow so these are guys these are og veterans that are now running the programs um the new mike we're bringing on like he's actually he's a great person one of the most positive nobody on this planet dislikes this guy he just yeah. smile 24 7 doesn't matter if he is shoveling shit he's smiling and laughing singing a song acting like chris farley speaking of likable bro your dad oh my god if i gotta hear this one more time Dude, I love my your dad, dad is a star, I love your the star dad. of the, the everything. Yeah. I, everybody likes my dad way more than me. So yeah. I mean it's kind of it's kinda of humbling. I do. Yeah. He comes uh, so he comes back. <laughs> comes back. I don't I'm like, Dad, where have you been? Like, cause you know he's you so draw a picture for your audience. 
My dad, like, just got a smartphone. <laughs> he just traps, shoots birds, like, just retired, worked for the state his whole life. Like, yeah. just very simple. And then my parents are on an island. They go and they just, they live a very simple life. It's so, we were supposed to go on the snow goose hunt. It got canceled, weather, whatever. So I was like, Dad, you want to fly to the expo and just see my world for a little bit? He's like, yeah. I would love to. Man, he is like going to the Willy Wonka chocolate factory <laughs> here. He, like, he's, I got so many pictures on my phone of him standing in front of grizzlies and mouths. I'm going to put a whole collage together of <laughs> just him talking to random people, kids in cowboy hats. He's like, look at this kid with a mullet. Like, yeah. He's so blown away. But, um, yeah, man, it's just cool to see him here. And he's so much. So, anyways, he comes back. And I'm like, Dad, where have you been? He's like, you would not believe what I just did. And I'm like, what? He goes, I just I just did this thing called a podcast with, with, with Sig. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you did a podcast with, with James? He's like, yeah, that guy is great. I'm like, wait, wait, stop talking. You did a podcast with, with Sig and James before you did a podcast with your own son? And he's like, yeah, it's a podcast, right? Like, that's what it's called. I'm like, Yes, Dad. It's a it's an effing podcast. Like what? He's like, man, that guy's we talk trapping, and, and then you, of course, got to throw jabs at me. Huh? I'm like, what is going on? Everyone's over there dying. Like I did this thing called a podcast. It was yeah. sick. And I, he, I mean, he, dude, he feels like a freaking celebrity, right? Like he's he is he, he is. Yeah, I mean, he's everywhere great. we go, people yeah. are like, oh, I watch, you know. So it's it's cool, and he gets to see kind of you know my world of what I've done since leaving the East Coast and transitioning to the Western side of things. And, you know, it's a whole different world for him. I, I didn't grow up in this. Like, yeah. I, dude, I got thrown – I just jumped into this, yeah. you know, and just been running ever since. So, I ne- he was – he was we're avid. I mean, that guy's hardcore waterfowl. I mean, big <laughs> yeah. water. We froze this kid. You got wet as a kid. Guess what? You're sitting on this shoal in the middle of the freaking Lake Ontario and negative 19 degrees. Yeah, well, we got – birds are flying, boys. So – yeah, shut up or yep. you pick up a gun. And so that's how I grew up. A little bit of whitetail hunting here and there, but everything on the West Coast, I mean, I it, he's just, I would love, my goal is to get him an elk. And so we're going to try to do that this year. And uh, and so, you know, everything out here is so new for him. He's just so, like, just, it's just, he's just a sponge taking it all yeah. in. And I walk away and I'll sit and watch it. He's over there slinging gear at the Wishes booth, like telling our mission story. I'm like, damn, Dad, like, good for you, you know? That's like, awesome. So it's it's pretty cool. Like, well, I love this pretty show. Pretty soon it's going to be the girls in there, man. I hope not. Really? Yeah, I'm torn, man. I'm at a cross in the road. Well, um, I mean, it's it's up to them, really. And you, 100%, you, but I'm you not going to push with, it. with everything about them. And I, I hear what you're saying, but. Because this is on a. Go ahead. Well, I guess what I'm saying is I, I could see it because they're, they're good girls and, and they respect you and they respect what they're doing and I know that they care about it. And I guess all I'm saying is it wouldn't surprise me if, if they, they carry this torch too. But I know I'm that you don't, you don't need that from them. And I know a lot of people are like, how are you not pushing your kids? That's all they do is hunt with you. But like, I'd say social media probably sees – 10% of what I actually do with my daughters in the outdoors. And I like it, you know, I mean, they, they're they just incredible. And I, I like to keep most of it for me. But obviously working with SIG in great companies, like, that back me to be able to do some of these awesome hunts with Christy. I mean, dude, that's incredible. I mean, I couldn't do half of any of this stuff without the support of you guys. And so I'm very excited about that. But as far as, like, being here one day, if they are here one day, I hope they're on the paths of, like, the Jordan Buds, and like the real women of the industry yeah. that that are respected for what they've accomplished, not for who they've accomplished, right? Like right. that's so. I just it's a scary world when you're for any you know any hobby or health world. You know it could be any 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 
path they want to go on. Yeah. You're, you always have the good and bad, but like as long as they are representing who they are the way I think they will, like I'm I'm fine with it, but I'm not going to ever push them to be some like influencer. But it's so hard for me because they're such great kids. I they're going to be role models. You know, with just who they are, especially Christy. I mean, she's just such an incredible kid, and she can articulate, and she, you know, everything she's accomplished. I want them to be role models, but at the same time, when you're in that spotlight, God, man, it's a horrible world on social media, and it scares me so bad that like one day my kids will be on Instagram or TikTok or whatever platforms up when they're when they're old enough to. And so I don't shelter them. They know everything that goes on in the world, and they're current on everything. But if I can shield it as long as possible i want to but hey if they want to come to the show with me man I've, i'll walk these aisles my chin high in the air and let them tell their stories but uh this is a, definitely a world that i'm never going to push on them i want them to discover it themselves i'm gonna I'll, I'll lead them all the way i will i'll show them the path and if they want to walk it i'll walk it right with them so but yeah i mean i appreciate it that's what brit brit and i have a lot of back and forth conversations because she sees the evil in a lot of it not the evil, but like the bad. Yeah. You know, when you kill something, I mean, not everybody agrees with it. And you're a little girl and, you know, you're going to get hate. And so, yeah. but we, we put out these videos like this last, you know, Hershey hunt. Like I just, we're going to keep it 100% real and do everything we need to do to show their, the real side of hunting. That they're, it's not always perfect or there's, you don't have to be some hard, just, you know, callous man to go out and kill a bull. Like you can be a little girl to accomplish, you know, conquering a mountain and packing something off. And it doesn't need to be these crazy trip. You know, you can just have fun and just make it a, a, your time. And so that's all I'm trying to really do with them is just show them, show them all this before we don't have it anymore. So, uh, I hope that, that we continue to have it. And, yeah. uh, yeah, they're good kids. I like Thanks, those man. kids. I really appreciate it. Well, I think the show is about to close up. We, this is uh, day two, and uh, yeah, it starts at ten in the morning and goes until seven o'clock at night. Oh, I thought it was six. I thought we were okay. That makes sense. Yeah, ten minutes. Oof. So we need to lock these guns up and uh, gonna go to a party with the draw tonight. Yeah, I'll probably be there. I might see you. Cool. All right, thanks, brother. Later, buddy. All right, Rudy from Tacticam. What's new in your world? How you doing, James? Yeah, we're doing well. We're really excited that show season is back. You know, really love the synergy that we had with you guys during the Hunter Games. I thought that was one of the coolest events that we'd been a part of. It's one of the coolest events I've been a part of, for sure. Just to have that much talent under one tent. No kidding. And, and all those personalities that just mesh so well is a testament to our industry and the caliber of people that are in it. Yeah, and you could say our industry, um, but the only thing that everybody had in common was that they enjoyed shooting guns. That's right. Well, um, you're you, right, because you know, we, we, had we had people from, from all from over walks everywhere. of life. Yeah, everywhere. You know? so, when you can find that one common ground, though, Yeah. I mean, whether it's shooting or outdoorsing or, you know, whatever it is. And we all have that common ground. I feel right. like everybody agrees on at least 90%. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that the 10% isn't important, because it is, and that's why it's contentious. But like, pretty much we can all find something that we can agree on, and... Uh, I usually try to find that thing first. Right. And then we can talk about the 10%. That's but right. Sometimes it helps to have a little reminder like, hey, we're both human beings and we agree on quite a bit. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. But yeah. what's new for us? Um, man, we got some really cool stuff coming out this year. Can't let the cat out of the bag yet. Um, <laughs> we, we know you guys are, are always pushing the envelope. Really love what you guys are doing, um, bridging into the hunting world, I think 
just by necessity. People are already using your stuff, but I love your big push in the hunting world, the contributions you guys are doing to conservation, which we also do, working with like nonprofit organizations, NWTF, Mule Deer Foundation, RMEF. I mean, it, it, it's, it really is a testament to, you know, companies out there that kind of say they're about it and really, you know, put the uh, rubber where the road is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, being about it. I think that that comes from the, the military backbone of this company. Sure. Like, you don't get to, you don't get to be a talking show uh, in the military. Yeah. You got to be about it. And, and that carries through with everything that we do. And... You know, sometimes there's a there's a weird relationship between hunting and military. And when I got out of the Marines, it was the funniest thing in the world because people were obsessed with stuff being like mil spec. It's right. like, man, a lot of what I was using that was mil spec was terrible. That was like lowest bitter garbage. Isn't that funny that that's the meme now? Military grade is. Yeah, yeah, we know what it is though. Sure. You know, I was a airborne guy out of. Uh, North Carolina, and you, did you spend time at Lejeune? I did. Yeah, yeah. We probably yeah. crossed paths on the beach out there. Probably, I'm sure. <laughs> but you know, seeing the the quality of the gear that Sig is producing for the military is awesome. Like I, I wish I would have had that stuff, and I'm really yeah. glad that our troops have it now. And then taking that same eye and focusing it on hunting, and then finding experts within the hunting field right. to to come out and say, "This is what we need. This is how we need to develop it." It's pretty cool. And I know you guys carry a lot of that that same power with Tacticam, too. I have yet to break anything from Tacticam. And that alone is remarkable because I'm good at breaking stuff. The cool thing about our two companies is we have a lot of synergy. I mean, there's a lot of our client base, our customer base, who we're really grateful for are using SIG optics, whether it's the Oscar or, or the rifle scopes. Um, and everybody wants to film their hunt nowadays. Yeah. You know, and, and we build a very high-end camera, very easy-to-use camera, which we say you, it's not a rich man's game. You don't have to have a $4,000 optic on your rifle right. or on your tripod um, for it to be a good a good fit. But just SIG is good glass. So and you've got some opportunities to film through a scope. That's right. Um, so That's the FTS, that, film through scope system. Yeah, so with the FTS, you can attach this camera to your scope. You can see through the scope while you're shooting and be recording at the same time. Yes. That's pretty neat. You've got the camera that mounts to my spotting scope or my good. binos. That's right. What's it called? Spotter LR. The Spotter LR. Yep, and it's all 4K. That thing's fantastic. Easy to use. That we Four hunters by hunters. Four shooters by shooters. One touch operation. It starts recording. There's nothing else to think about. Yep. And one of the coolest things is I run a BDX. Yeah. I, I got to give it to you guys. I've used a lot of rangefinders in my day. Kilo is my favorite rangefinder that I've ever picked up. I use it. My wife uh, uses it. And um, with that BDX system, being able to see um, the dots yeah. and the holdovers. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just it's excellent content, excellent footage. Yeah. You know, and, and not only that, being able to, what I like to use it for is new, when I introduce new hunters to, to shooting or, yep. or new shooters to shooting or youth. Yeah. You know, I can take, I could take that great SIG glass, that great SIG technology. I could put that FTS on the back of it. Now I can watch what that shooter's doing real time while we're sit, while we're on the range yeah. or on that animal, yep. you know, and record it at the same time. So by the time we get back to the house, we're watching it while we're eating backstrap. It just makes a lot of sense. And some of these just truly incredible experiences that we have, you know, they only exist on our memories unless we're filming them. And I talked a lot with the Eastmans about 
how important it is to take a good quality photo at the end of your hunt. But if you can be filming what's going on during the hunt, that just expands your capability to, to tap back into that memory of those really awesome experiences that you're having out there with your buddies or with your, right. or with your family. It, it's amazing. So beyond those two cameras, uh, what else does Tacticam have going on? Yeah, I mean, we <clears throat> our, our flagship camera, which is our action-style camera that mount, uh, it's a 5.0. Yeah. Also a 4K camera mounts to your bow, your shotgun. Um, yeah, I did a bunch of stuff with Waterfowl with yeah. it this year. That was a hoot. I, I mean, that's it. You know, one camera, just a few different mounts, and we say one camera to rule them all because yeah. it's very... It's very customizable yeah. and, you know, um, interchangeable. Yeah. It just makes it easy for, for the, uh, the end user out there, and that's what we wanted to do is take the guesswork out of it. But, you know, not only just for a mem- from a memory or a nostalgic standpoint, but it's very functional. And learning. We have shooting schools yeah. that are using the fi- film-through-scope system as well as the spotting-scope system. Yeah. And that's it, just, just teaching wind calls. It's, it's something really hard to teach. So with that spotter LR, you can HDMI right to a large screen TV. And if you're in a classroom setting, now now you can have one instructor. It's kind of like a force multiplier for you. You know, something that I learned with, uh, with the 5.0, the first time I took it out to shoot ducks with it, I thought that I'd mounted the camera crooked. And I got back, looked at the, looked at the film, and I was at a pretty steep angle off to the side. And I went back to the camera and my gun, I was like, no, this is plumbed straight up and down with my shotgun. If I hadn't had that, I would never know how much I can't that shotgun. Right. And our shoulder pockets don't run straight up and down. Right. And uh, especially when you're, when you're shooting quickly in the field with a shotgun or something like that, you're going to do what your body is naturally wanting to do. And uh, that one thing, that one thing taught me a lot about the way I'm shooting a shotgun and taught me ways that I can improve shooting a shotgun. And uh, that's powerful. I wouldn't have had that with anything else. And you know, I I don't know if you knew it, but that, uh, that that camera has a red dot feature. Yeah. Yep. So when, you know, it, I don't know if you're out there missing, (laughs) do you miss, but um, you know, you can go back and you can watch that footage. Yeah. Am I shooting behind? Am I not following through? Sure. I mean, like I said, it's real functional. Yeah. Just, just like what you guys got. It's not luxury stuff. Yeah. You put this technology to use and it, like make it work for you. Right. Yeah. And become a better outdoorsman, a better shooter. So what, any other products we need to talk about? I mean, that are available for, right now for, for the big hunters out there. We have our reveal cellular trail cameras. Okay. Just, just launched a new XB, is, um, which is wh- a blackout. What's, what's interesting about that camera. There's so many cameras on the market, it's right? It's a flooded market, but for some reason we, we've, uh, we've made some big waves in it. I mean, really high end features with that low end price. I mean, entry level cameras coming in, coming in at 119. That's awesome. You know, our, our latest camera that we just dropped, you can, it pairs with either AT&T or Verizon. Okay. And it's like a dual SIM card, so you can kind of choose which one you want nice. when you set it up, rather than trying to pick one out in the yeah. store. So those are our, those are our main lines. And, and you, then, you don't need to use that feature if you don't want to, right? You don't have to use a cellular. Yeah. You only have to you know, once you once you set that camera up, you can run it just as a normal. So yeah. that's good for Montana guys, right? Sure. Where are you out of? I'm I'm in Oregon, but I hunt all over the place. There's some places where you can't use cellular. Yeah. It's still applicable. Yep. And there's some states like Arizona that just got rid of trail cameras for hunting altogether. And there's places that don't have cell service. Yeah, well, that's right. Right? So you, you buy this camera, and it's like, I don't know whether this ridge is going to have cell service on it or not. It yeah. um, doesn't matter. The thing's still functioning. 
regardless of, of whether it's in the technological shadow or not. I have to give a shameless plug, though. I mean, the antennas are pretty good. Yeah. There, I was, so I had a bull elk hunt last um, September in Utah archery. And basically all I did is I boxed up a couple of my reveals, sent them to my friend. He went and hung them. And I was sitting there in Arizona getting pictures real time. But it was a place where our cell phones didn't get service. Yeah. And luckily those antennas did. That's amazing. You know, so what a tool is that, yeah. you know. I didn't know that. That's yeah. cool. It, it really is really is a game changer. So Sweet. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate your time and uh, looking forward to continuing to work with you throughout this year. Same. We and love this, into the future. We love the synergy with Sig Sauer. Um, guys, you can, you can find us at Tacticam.com. we got big uh, social media presence. Um, keep an eye out for this summertime. There's going to be some, some new cool big boy toys coming out. So Nice. Yeah. I'm excited. Yep. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Tell me a wolf hunting story. Ooh, a wolf hunting story. I'll tell you about mine and my husband's first wolves. Yeah. Um, we're in Montana. It was our first wolf hunt. We really didn't know what we were doing. Uh, got out of the truck, first day of the hunt. My husband, 30 seconds in, puts up his binos. He's like, there's wolves on the lake right there. I'm like, you know, way you're liar. He's like, get dressed. There's wolves on the lake right there. And it was all frozen over middle winter. <laughs> um, you know, February, it was uh, 2018 when that big storm hit. Yeah. And um, that day it was negative 44 with the wind chill. Brutal. And so we ran down a quarter of a mile down the road and cut down to the other side of the lake and started howling because it was February mating season. Sure. Great time to hunt them. Um, across the lake up in the timber, uh, we hear an, a wolf just howling, getting mad. My husband, Justin, turned around uh, to say to our buddy Luke, hey, this wolf sounds pissed off behind me. And Luke and I look up. We're like, don't move. This wolf's coming in hot. Uh, this wolf charged us, got to 46 yards, just sprinting, barking and growling. My husband's back was turned to it. I didn't have a shot because my husband was right there. And Luke says to my husband, when I say now, pick up your rifle, turn and aim for 200. And about 10 seconds later, he says now, my husband picks up and turns and that wolf was right about 50 yards and he just pulled the trigger and dropped it but it was pretty crazy to see a wolf come in like that that's amazing and it, it was good i was really glad my husband's a good shot because otherwise we'd be dead <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's an intense experience you're here with the foundation for wildlife management which is a really interesting organization that more people need to know about and i feel like what you're doing is the citizen version of the north american model for wildlife management Yes. In a really cool way. So tell me more about it. So the Foundation for Wildlife Management is a nonprofit organization. It was started in Idaho in 2011 um, by a group of guys that were elk hunters, and they just started noticing, hey, we have no more elk to hunt because the wolves have been decimating them. Yep. So they started this um, nonprofit, and it's what we do is if you come to Idaho, and we're now in Montana as well and hoping to be in Wyoming by the end of the year, um, if you come to Idaho or Montana and you legally shoot a wolf, whether you trapped it or hunted it, and you check it in with Fish and Game because that's mandatory, they'll yep. give you a mortality report. You send that mortality report to us along with receipts, whether it's gas, ammo, 
gun, your tag and license. Um, we've had people send us in receipts for a truck they bought in the 80s. Um, and we'll reimburse you up to $1,000 depending on that unit. And you get to keep the wolf pelt and the skull um, where it's just our way of helping manage the wolves and bring back our ungulate population. And wolf hunting is an expensive endeavor. Wolf trapping is an expensive endeavor. Absolutely. So if you're a member of Foundation for Wildlife Management, um, that's where the money is coming from that then goes back out to the people who are successful at harvesting wolves? Yes, we are the only organization where your membership money and the donations you make and money we raise at our fundraising banquets go directly back to hunters and trappers. So it's pretty cool. And I want to be clear, this isn't like a like go shoot wolves to make money thing. This is a, hey, we recognize that going out and hunting wolves and trapping wolves is expensive. There's a benefit to wildlife for you doing that, and we want to compensate you for some of that cost. Absolutely. These guys, I mean, what we're reimbursing doesn't even cover their costs, but they're doing it because they really care about the ungulate population. I know I got involved because we have two little kids, and I want them to be able to hunt when they're older. Yeah. And I want them to have something to hunt. Yeah. And so that's why it's so important to me. It's critical. It's critical. And we talk about elk a lot because we've seen these massive numbers of elk really diminish in a lot of places. And, you know, we're talking about places like the North Yellowstone herd that went from 27,000 to 3,000 in just a few years. And it's not just wolves. I get it. It's bears. It's habitat. It's a large number of things. And I continue to talk about this. It's never just one thing. But wolves are a big part of the picture. One of the things that concerns me the most with wolves right now is moose. So moose are looking at being completely extirpated from Idaho in the next decade. Moose are looking at being completely extirpated from Oregon in the next couple years. And that is due to wolf predation, period. And I'm actually from Oregon. And so that's also, you know... We're not allowed to hunt wolves in Oregon, right. and we absolutely have them. And so seeing what that did in Oregon, at least Idaho is now trying to manage. And Fish and Game has actually been great. They gave us a grant last year, and we were able to increase our reimbursements in certain units um, up to $2,500 per wolf. And they're, we're expecting them to do that again this year. And so they're... They're doing their best to help us manage them. And That's fantastic. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Is there any talk about expanding this to include um, other predators like coyotes or, or bears? As of now, no, just because we, we struggle with our funding right now. And so if, if we tried to do every predator, I just don't think we'd have the funds at the moment, which is why it's so vital to get the word out there about our foundation, because it would be wonderful if we could do that. Okay. So I'm going to throw this out there. How much is uh, how much is a membership? $40 annually. $40 annually. So if you ever plan on hunting in a state that Foundation for Wildlife Management is supporting, that $40 is a really solid investment in ensuring that you'll have something to hunt if you're ever thinking about going to Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, and then as... As we expand the places that we can hunt wolves, I'm sure Foundation for Wildlife Management will expand with that. Absolutely. Yep. That's awesome. Um, any big hunt plans for this year for you? Uh, we've got, it's wolf season right now. And it's so the right, it's, right it's now. It's like, right now. Everybody thinks on. about September's for the bulls. <laughs> like February's for the wolves. February's like, for yeah. the wolves. And we, 
you know, we had an experience last weekend where we've been on two packs consistently and uh, we ran into a buddy of ours that's a guide and he had a hunter with him. And so we didn't want to step on each other's toes and blow a shot for either of us. So we said, hey, let's combine forces, go together and glass. Um, and this guy was from New York. He'd been out four times, never heard a wolf howl. And we said, hey, if we see one, it's yours. I will regret that decision till the day I die because, um, you know, we saw what we're glassing. One howls a thousand yards away, wide open. You never get that scenario. He's sitting there howling. My husband and I are on him. We take long range shots all the time. Miss um, Hunter, you're, you get excited. It's your first wolf. I mean, who wouldn't? Oh, man. You know, you're panicking. Unfortunately, he missed and wolf got away. The, my only issue with missing a wolf is they're so intelligent. That wolf is educated and you'll never get a shot on that wolf again. Yeah. Well, maybe never. Um, but <laughs> never <yeah>. say never. <laughs> De- definitely just gave him a, a master's degree in, yeah. in, uh, in avoiding humans. But that's a good thing. And, uh, you know, we, we often think about that like, oh, we just educated that coyote. We just educated that wolf. Now they're going to be harder to hunt. But they're also learning that they need to be avoiding people. And that's one of the biggest benefits to hunting these predators is getting them away from the places that people are and pushing them back into the, the depths of the wilderness. And that really limits the, the real conflict that, that wolves and, and people have, especially with livestock, pets, and just the, the health and human safety aspect I, of things. I mean, you look at grizzly bears in Montana, you know. Great example. The uh, gunshots at dinner bell because they don't know to be scared. Yep. And people are, are paying the price. Yeah. L- with their lives. Yeah. With their lives. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a tough scene. Well, Kate, thank you so much for what you're doing. And uh, where can people find out more about about Foundation for Wildlife Management? You can go to foundationforwildlifemanagement.org, F4WM.org. Cool. And you can sign up, become a member, donate. Um, if you're hunting any ungulate, you might as well help out with the predator management as well. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's $40 well spent. Yeah. Thank you for your thank time. Thank you so much. All right, Donnie, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. I'm here, good company, a lot of product that I like to look at. So, anything got you excited? Um, just talking to everybody. Yeah, everybody's hearing all the stories from last year, and then hearing everybody's anticipation for what tag they may or may not get this year, and the outlook for 2022 has a lot of people. Looking forward to get out elk hunting. Yeah. Are you going to do any wolf hunting this winter? I'd love to try. Yeah. I'm building some horse fencing right now, though. Are so you? Yeah. <laughs> i got to keep the horses uh, contained in the yard. Tell me about your Alaska hunt last year. Alaska hunt. That's a uh, sore subject. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's there's some lessons to be learned for people there, though. There is. Yeah, so we went to a uh, little island off the coast of Alaska on an elk hunt. Not very many people can draw the tag. There's only 25 tags, but a lot of people find out what it's like, and only, I think on average, only 11 people actually go out and participate in the hunt. Yeah. 
But we got there and uh, beautiful day, 50, 52 degrees. Flew in, got dropped off at the lake. Hiked up to the top about 1,500 vertical feet and half a mile. Set up, watched sunset, and listened to some elk bugle that night before, so we were all excited for that. Then uh, went out on our hunt on opening day. Found some elk about five miles away from our little camp. In the evening, Corey shot an elk. So we processed it, and it got to be about 11 o'clock at night. And, and what did you have with you? What did we have with us? Yeah. We had our water bottles and a few snacks. Not much food. <laughs> tents, sleeping bags? No tents, no sleeping bags, just our day pack full of gear and knives. Any bears in this area? Um, there is, I think it is twice as many Alaska brown bear on the island as there are elk. <laughs> <laughs> so we did have two pistols, and I had a can of bear spray yeah. at least. Yeah. We wound up sleeping right there at the elk, and about midnight, it started a downpour of rain that did not stop for five days. While we were there, those five days, it rained 11 inches of rain. And I got sick about 3 o'clock that morning and started having really bad cramps and just did not feel right. So we hiked back to the tents to rearrange, get some food, to be able to pack the elk down to the lake. And uh, I barely made it back to the tent feeling sick. Once I got there, I just went straight in my tent. It was 10 o'clock in the morning, and I didn't wake up. I was awake, but I didn't get up until 8 o'clock the next morning. And we had an elk that we needed to get packed out, and I, I couldn't hardly move. So Corey and John left me it in my tent, and they went back and packed the elk out for the next three days. I stayed in my tent. On the uh, third day, peed blood for a few hours, and I passed three kidney stones. Oh, my goodness. And then after that, I felt a little bit better, but it was still raining, and Corey and John had just finished. They were making their way back to me. There was a little bit of a break in the sky. We were able to make contact with the... Uh, pilot and he said we needed to be down at the lake in 45 minutes or he would not be able to pick us up for another three days because of the storm yeah it took us an hour and a half to make our pack up to where we were and we made it down to the lake's edge just the pilot had landed and we were 500 yards from the edge wow and he, we got 400 yards, fired up the plane, started taxiing across the lake. We thought he was leaving. Yeah. And what it was is he had spotted the meat hanging on the opposite side of the lake where Corey and John had packed it down to. He went over and picked up the meat. And by the time he got back to us, we were all thankful that... Uh, 
<laughs> we were going to be able to get off that island. That sounds scary. It was scary. I, uh, I think I, in reach, texted my wife a uh, final goodbye. Really? Because I was, I literally thought I was going to die up there. It was uh, tense, and I got to know the inside of a tent very well. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Uh, I, uh, I was nervous. And, and you were back, and you were feeling better by the time I, I found out about this, but it still made me nervous for you. Like, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't worse. There's it, a lot of ways that could have gotten it, worse. I don't know that. I mean, the storm was bad. I mean, 11 inches in four days. Sure. And the winds were 30 to 40 miles an hour. And if I had hit my rescue button, I don't know that they would have been able to come and sure. pick me off. It would have been Coast Guard to come, but I don't think that they would have been able to yeah. do it. Yeah. So, thankfully, got out of there. and You're a tough dude. Not looking forward to going back. So, what's the lesson learned? Lesson learned? Go. Oh, drink less soda for me. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd, I would drink about a soda a day. Yeah. And I think... I, I had a kidney stone like 10 years ago, but never had any issues with them. Stuff can happen unexpectedly, and you don't know what it is. I mean, if anything, any major internal thing that happened to somebody and you don't know what's going on, it could be a life-or-death situation. I mean, you can you can deal with a broken leg or a broken arm, things like that, but when you don't know what's wrong is when there's areas for concern yeah oh man um would you uh would you bring a little bit more kit with you um we actually had a pretty good stock kit for our emergency kits and i don't know but for the night you spent out with the elk in in bear country yeah definitely we need to have a little more food in our packs more food more food and uh maybe a uh, survival blanket survival blanket we wound up there was a tent that we had found up there okay that was shredded we were able to kind of make a lean-to shelter but it was mesh yeah so it we still got wet the thing about that island and that amount of rain none of our fire preparedness would have done anything without a fuel right we we're cutting two and a half, three inch logs in half, and the inside of those logs were water soaked. Wow. So there was no creating a fire. And thankfully, that day that we were there, it stuff had dried out because it was sunny. And uh, we were able to get some mahogany branches and stuff like that before the rain hit and made a little cache. So we did have a fire going for a little bit. But after. When Corey and John were packing the elk, there was no fire. They couldn't keep anything running. So you could get a little burst with your, you know, pyro putty or your Vaseline uh, cotton balls to take a little edge off. But there's, you can't rely on having a heat source. Wow. Stuff that people need to think about. Yes. Yep. Need to think about. That elk hunt doesn't appeal to me at all. No, it's not. 
It's nice looking back on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that uh, we're going to be planning another one anytime soon. Yeah. Like that. The weather in Alaska just beats you. It's it merciless. Does. It definitely does. And there's no getting out of it. Yeah. I mean, you just have to learn to be soaking wet inside yeah. your sleep bag, soaking wet. Yeah. Everything. Your base layers are soaked. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Well, it's an amazing story, man. Uh, was there a video made from that hunt? There will be a video. I think it'll be coming out the end of March, part of our Destination Elk series. Where can people find that? At uh, Elk 101 on YouTube. Okay. So that's kind of the uh, story of our elk, elk hunt this year, not just that elk hunt, but yeah. all of our elk hunt. So. What are you looking forward to the most about this year? Um getting back out yeah just getting back out getting out of the hustle of everyday life and escaping yeah injury free this year <laughs> amen <laughs> looking forward to that great well thank you for your time sir yeah, and thanks for the story to you. we got ben winter from tier one kinetics what's going on in your world Mr. Nash, it's just a highlight of my day to come over here and say hi to you it's here good at the Sig Sauer booth. It's good to see you. It is. We need to set aside some more time to go on an adventure one of these days. Yeah. We missed out on the, the bear hunt jet yeah. boat deal. I still, we, we still need to do that. I, uh, I'm hopeful to draw that tag this year. I applied a couple days ago. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, you're, you got some pretty good track record going on over there in Oregon these days, right? Pretty good. <laughs> I mean, killed three bears last year. I'm okay. on a heater right now. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. What's uh, what's the best thing to kill a bear with? Is it a 6.5 Creedmoor? A 6.5 is honestly a decent bear option, um, but of the options available for the cross rifle, the 308 is a better deal. And I'm fortunate because I've got one of the 277 Furies, um, which isn't available to everybody yet, but that's a... Uh, that's that's kind of my go-to, but the 308 is a good option too. I killed a bear in Idaho with it uh, a couple of years ago. Nice, worked great. Yeah. yeah, they are pretty looking. I still need to get myself one of those. We've got a couple new ones over there. Um, so yeah, there's the the PRS Cross. It's 15.4 pounds, and then the Born and Raised mm. Edition, which has a little bit longer barrel. Oh yeah, I remember when they sent you that uh, prototype a while back. And we, yeah, just the yeah. four end. Yeah, yeah, um, yep. yep, but. I haven't got to shoot that gun yet. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, cool. What is Tier 1 Kinetics? Man, we're a firearms manufacturer, 07, 02, and then uh, do some merch. Working on doing some training opportunities as well as some experiences that um, basically start out at the uh, elementary level and pushing it all the way to um, involving helicopters dropped off into some sort of a remote location and then uh, sort of learning how to uh, self-sustain and navigate uh, back to a, a, a way of, um, I don't know, safety and modern convenience, I guess you could say. So that's almost like adventure training. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. That's so neat. We've uh, done a lot of adventures in our lives. I think uh, like between me and the two other guys, uh, Nick and Dagan, I think we have like over 50 deployments between the, 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 the three of us. So 50 deployments? 50, yeah. Good grief. It's a little bit nuts, yeah. That's uh, I'd go so far as to say too many. Uh, yeah, I mean, probably we all got. <laughs> yeah, you know, like it definitely comes with its own dose of sacrifice. I mean, you're yeah. always trading something, Peter for Paul. You know, right? So. Um, what kind of firearms are you manufacturing? 
Man, uh, we kind of just specialize in a build, build the suit, um, but we also have a website, um, just tier1kinetics.com, which uh, you can go to either the ready room um, or you can go to our new tier line, which is uh, kind of under development with uh, Dagan and then another one of our uh, former Iraq uh, deployment partners, Cat. Uh, uh, Catherine Hodge, and so she's going to be kind of spearheading the f the the female line, and then Dagan is going to be uh, developing the, the the men's division, if you will. So. Okay. So if you're looking at doing some type of build, uh, you would almost be like a concierge service to walk somebody through that, and yeah, pretty much. So we can build uh, everything from your proof research uh, custom, you know, PRS gun, uh, all the way down to your ultra compact. Uh, truck 300 blackout with uh, you know a variety of different optic selections. So uh, basically, we just sort of consult with our customers on a personal basis. So we sort of uh, you know build the suit rather than um, you know just going ahead and pointing them right into a direction of, of something that's already off the shelf. Which there's some great options out there. Don't get me wrong, but you know instead of uh, just going with that uh, one size fits all approach, we just sort of go more with the uh, the, the personal approach to talking to uh, people one on one and. I feel like uh, people get more out of that experience uh, than they do for just heading into a store and then uh, picking something off the shelf that does the job but maybe doesn't have absolutely everything that they want. Right, and then they get a, a product that's bespoke, that it's it's built exactly for their mission purpose, which is honestly going to be different for just about everybody. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool, man. And you're based out of uh, Salt Lake City area? Yeah. Just uh, 20 miles west of here, man. So yeah. it's a nice, easy commute to come over here and see you. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> For right now. Well, I'm looking forward to our next adventure. I think it's going to be a fun one. Yep. It always is. Always is. But, yeah, um, after you get to wander around the show a little bit, I hope you can swing back by and tell me more about what you're seeing because I've been uh, riding the booth here the whole time and haven't really got the opportunity to see all the good stuff that's out here, and I know there's a pile of it. Okay. Yeah, man. No, I'll definitely uh, be looking around and seeing what's out there because, um, yeah, I didn't really get to do much of that at SHOT Show either. It's kind of a, a little bit of a cluster this year. So, Tier1Kinetics.com? Yes, sir. Awesome. Thanks, brother. All right. See you. <laughs> Bro, your leg fell off. What's going on here? Yeah. Uh, Did that just dude, keep, keep These happening? high chairs. <laughs> it's the high chairs, and my foot doesn't go to the bar. Yeah. So it just hangs there, and it drives my – it just – hurts after a while so i'm like yeah it'll just take it off how does your prosthetic attach does it go into the bone yeah so it's called osseo integration okay um we did I, I was part of a 10 person trial study yeah uh at the va here in salt lake gotcha and i pretty much begged them to do it yeah so when i got hurt i'm missing like all this up here yeah and the, like the whole inner part of my thigh and prosthetic fits were horrible yeah and uh, socket fits. Sure. And, I mean, I was, my prosthetist was great. Yeah. But it was, like, every week I was in there trying to figure something else out because it just hurt. Yeah. Um, and then I found out about this and just kind of fell in my lap and I jumped on the opportunity. So I was the second person in the U.S. to have this done, approved by the FDA. Has it worked for you okay? Phenomenal. Good. Like, my opinion, it is going to absolutely change the amputee world. Because one of the things that I hear from amputees all the time it, that have 
you know, something that fits over the top of their stump. It's like if they have some beers and a pizza the night before, then they swell up. Now it's too tight. Now the next day it's too small. Yeah. It's a huge problem. Like I, I was having to take my prosthetic all the way off, the sleeve and everything. Yeah. Because uh, I started golfing with physical therapy. Yep. And uh, it really helped with balance and stuff like that. Sure. And... I was taking it off every two holes if I was lucky, sometimes every other hole. And I'd have to take the whole thing off, dry it out, yeah. put it back on, pray that I had it on the exact right way. It was it was crazy. Yeah. And now I don't have to worry about any of that. I just put this screw in it, and that's it. Do you have any maintenance that you have to do on the actual leg? On my prosthetic? On the prosthetic part? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it my comp- it's, it's all computerized. Okay. Um, so it doesn't do anything for you, but it knows what you're doing. Okay. Um, so the computer system, once it once it needs service, it tells you. Okay. That's cool. So it, is it charged? Yeah. So I, I have to charge it every night. Wow. So it's got a battery back there. and That's sweet. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. They've come really far with prosthetics. So you're down here with Hunts for the Brave. Yes, sir. Tell me more about that. So I'll just... A little bit about myself. I, you know, when when I was injured, I spent two years at Walter Reed back in Washington D.C. Yeah, and when I got home, I was lost. Sure. And like at the end of the day, I was just trying to drink myself to death. Yeah. Really, that's what it was. Yeah. And and probably mixing that with some meds, right? Yeah. And a buddy of mine, um, Nick Orchowski, was he he hit me up one day and was like, "Come on this cow elk hunt." okay, why not, you know? Yeah. And he's like, there's no drinking. I'm like, well, okay, like, I, I'm going to do it. And from that moment, I, I, I didn't grow up hunting. Yeah. I fell in love with hunting. Okay. And responsible hunters don't, you know, drink while they're hunting, right? Like, no. I, I'm a to each their own person, so I'm not, you know, complaining about anybody. But, you know, to me, I took that to heart. And hunting and my wife got me out of this dark place that I was in. And I, I'm local to Utah, so I was trying to find, you know, somewhere that I could help out with. And, and I found Hunts for the Brave. They took me on a deer hunt. And with Hunts for the Brave, you're not a number. You're, a, you're, you're part of the family, right? Yeah. So we check in on each other. We, you know, it's not a one and done uh, type thing. Um, so after I hunted with them, I, I, I wanted to do whatever I could. So I started doing a golf tournament for them, um, just to try and raise money and, and help the next guy. Cause you know, as veterans, we, we, most of us don't want things to end with us. Right. So if we have an opportunity that we're not taking advantage of people, right. We're taking advantage of opportunity. That's what we have to get through to these veterans because so many veterans are like, oh, no, 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 no. Let, the, let this guy do it. And we're like, you know what? You deserve it too. But if you're in that mindset, you should also be in that mindset of, I don't want it to stop with me. So what can I do to help the next veteran out? And for me, it was, I want to do a golf tournament for Hunts for the Brave. Just to give back, make sure that 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 hunt didn't stop with me yeah and after committing to volunteering with them um 
doing my golf tournament stuff like that they asked me to sit on their board yeah and to me like that that's an honor right uh, you know going from where i was you know 12 years ago 10 years ago something like that to where i'm where i am now where i get just as much joy watching somebody else pull the trigger than i do so what does that sense of purpose do for you you know so so i talked about being lost when i got home right yeah well i i i personally think that that's a lot of the disconnect that veterans get with with society with integrating back into air quotes normal life right um because we we are lost we have to figure out what to do next there's not a nco or officer telling us oh we need to be up at zero six today you have to figure that out on your own now right so that sense of purpose comes from there it comes from what do i need to do next and for me personally that's what i try to focus on is you know i want to help you get out of your dark place in life and i will do anything i can to do that but after you do that you start finding things you start finding hobbies you start finding uh, you know these smaller purposes right you start finding shooting again you start finding um you know it could be golf it could be anything and these little purposes they add up at the end they add up to something bigger than what you started and you know your mind starts saying you know what i don't need to sit in my apartment by myself every night and drink i can help whatever it is whatever charity whatever you know every everybody has something near and dear to them right it doesn't matter if it's veteran related cancer related alzheimer's related anything like that and if you can if you can get past yourself and help others you start finding that sense of purpose and that's how it was for me that's awesome and hunting was the catalyst for all that it really was amazing what is it about hunting because that this happens with a lot of guys and whether they grew up hunting or didn't grow up hunting doesn't seem to matter and i, I say guys guys gals whatever yeah of course. um what what do you think it is about hunting that that does this for people you know for me it was number one i love utah i grew up you know loving the outdoors and for me it was hard because for the first 10 years after injury i had my right leg i walked around with a cane i had to plan out what i was doing for the next week because there was days where I wasn't going to do anything because of how painful it was. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, and then going from there and amputating and, um, so, uh, you know, speaking from a nonprofit organization, um, I didn't know how. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, I was a 20 something year old kid walking around with a cane 24 seven, and the realization in my head was the outdoors are done for you. You're not going to go hike to, to do anything. Yeah. You're not getting back on a snowboard. You're not doing any of this. And then all of a sudden somebody says, 
Why? Why can't you? And then you're thinking, well, okay, maybe I can, but how? Sure. And so you get these these people, you know, from an amazing hunting community, right, that are saying, I don't know how either, but let's figure it out together. Yeah. And then you start getting that sense of, we'll say brotherhood again, because, you know, you're not hunting by yourself. There is a community element to it. It's extremely important and always has been. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. My wife won't let me go hunt by myself, which I get, you know, no big deal. But, you know, you're the the peacefulness from being quiet, the the, you know, holding a weapon in your hands again, the um, the adrenaline. That is the biggest thing for veterans is adrenaline, right, is. You know, you have all these lows and then high, and you're like, okay, how do I get back to that high? What do I need to do to push my adrenaline to get back up there? And and for me, it's hunting. And for me, it's it's more than that. It's, it's like I said, getting that next veteran out and helping them realize that, that, you know, they can find a passion again through hunting and through being with others and figuring out what your next step is in life. I feel like there's two different types of people that we're talking to right now. One is to veterans who are out there struggling that could benefit from being part of Hunts for the Brave. And the other is people who want to support you in helping them. Of course. So for either of those, how do they get a hold of you? Huntsforthebrave.org You can can I give my email address out? Of course. So my personal email address is jaco135 at msn.com. Feel free to reach out to me with any questions. Um, if you're struggling in life, whatever I can do to help, I'm willing. Um, and if I can't help you, I will help you figure out how to help yourself. Awesome. Um, and like I said, that's what Hunts for the Brave is all about. It's, it's all about a family and that brotherhood again. Um, and you're not a number. You're not a one and done. So, Well, I think there's a lot of folks out there that would look at a guy like you who has sacrificed so much, so much for your country and, and for your fellow troops, everybody else, and they would think it's so amazing that you would continue to want to try to give. And... For those people who are surprised by that, you need to think about what your understanding of, of what a veteran is. Because while you are extraordinary, in so many ways you're also common. Like this this is what this is who, who we are as a community. There's nobody who's like, Yeah, I've given enough and and I'm done with that. Of course. And uh, yeah. But hats off to you, man. Oh, thank you. Yeah, good on you. And I appreciate you coming down here and taking the time. And if you're in Utah and you golf, shoot me an email. (laughs) We're looking for teams, sponsors, donations, whatever you got. So nice. let me know. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. How's retirement treating you? I'm more busy now than when I was playing (laughs) hockey, to be totally honest with you. It's like, I'm like, wait a second. I think I might go back, but. Um, I've been good. Been really good. Is the thing that you miss the most the boys or the ice? Uh, competition. 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 Okay. 
Yeah. So do you feel Don't like? Don't get me wrong. I miss the guys. Sure. Yeah, but like I, I think I miss the comp. Like I like to competing. Yeah. Is like what I miss. So do you feel like that? Like that's something that's missing from your life now, or are you finding a, a replacement for it? H- hunting has become that. Yeah. Um, in a small way, it's yeah. not the same. Um, it's different, but I'm like, I think I'm learning to, cause it's so new. I mean, last time I talked to you, it was like, I was about as green as it gets for hunting. Sure. And it's like, I'm still that, like, I'm just still kind of, f- I'm so behind, but I'm yeah. figuring things out and like, and so, um, preparation and then like the, the, you know, it's hard, like where you're bow hunting or rifle hunting or whatever it may be. So it's just become like a little bit different. I think I'm also going to have to find something else to scratch that itch. Yeah. More of like a physical competition, yeah. some, some sort, but kind of still figuring that out how's your body it's getting better healing knees feeling better um you know still got some stuff i need to work out but i i kind of committed to a full year to try and get my body to work correctly again after and i'm you know about eight eight or nine months now so yeah um but we're we're building a home and i'm gc in it and it's like my dad's a general contractor so he's kind of helped me and so it's what a project oh my god i'm doing that right now are you in the middle of it yeah, it's like DQ permits. That's where I'm at. Oh man, you're I ordered just, windows yesterday. There you go. Ugh. What's the wait? Sixteen weeks? Uh, weeks. Actually, we're looking at twelve weeks on windows. Okay. Um, but so you're ahead of the game then. The the price the price was going up at noon on Friday. So that morning we're like, all right, we're just gonna buy the. We got to do it. Yeah, you got to. Yeah. It's crazy. I don't even have a septic permit yet, but it's like <laughs> I'm gonna do. It. I've heard this like eight months on garage doors. Seriously, like it's ridiculous. What's going it on? Was nine, I don't know how to uh, do this. Some of like uh, like refrigerators and like uh, appliances were nine months. Yeah, um, nine months. It's wild. It's crazy. It's totally wild. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know, but. Home's not going to build itself. No. I've done harder things before. Yeah. I can figure it out. What the crazy thing is, like, the day-to-day thing feels like it's taking forever. Yeah. But then you blink, and it's like, hey, four months have gone by. I was going through my photos the other day, and I'm like, hey, in September, the foundation was going in. Yeah. And now here we are, and there's, yeah. like, walls and roof, and things are on. So, like. That's exciting. In, in hindsight, I'm complaining about things that really I shouldn't complain about. Well, I mean, everybody's struggle is their own, right? Yeah. It's all perspective. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So what's, like, your one, like, luxury item in the house, the thing that you're the most excited about when it's when it's completed? Archery range. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being totally honest you with you. You have an archery range in your uh, house? Well, so it's not, it's, it's going to, it'll be, it's not like a legit one where yeah. you'd see the actual thing, but, like, I have a little office, uh-huh. and I'm putting, like, a little stand that comes off the wall where I can hang my bow, <laughs> and I'll open my office door, and right out there at 15 yards will be an archery range. Nice. Like a little thing. So I am, I'm stoked. Like, You're through the winter, I'm good to go. Nice. I can just shoot whenever I want, and, like, it's kind of closed off. It's under the basement area. Like, I'm fired up for that. Cool. Yeah. Any big hunts for this year? Got some cool stuff lined up. Okay. Um, can we talk about it? Absolutely. Um, first one that I um, – so we're taking Pat and Tom from SIG yep. to our outfit in Newfoundland awesome. for a moose. Cool. I have a caribou tag and a moose tag up there. Oh, gosh. Um, Those caribou are beautiful. Oh, my God. I, I – so I've never even seen one. Yeah. I don't know what I'm getting into. Yeah. Marshy's kind of filled me in, like, yeah. hey, and it's going to be, with a rifle, it's like shooting a cow. You know what yeah. I mean? But, like, with a bow, it'll be, because they're going to, it'll be fun. So I'm going to go try and bow hunt one. Cool. So I'm, I'm stoked for that. We're going to do our uh, veteran hunt in, in May or June. We're going to go, we just got a, a bear outfit in New Brunswick. Awesome. We're going to take guys up there, trying to 
trying to twist Bam's arm to join us again. Nice. So you guys uh, had fun on your. Oh, we had a great time. He's and a like, good dude. He's awesome. So yeah. and uh, and then yo, we're we're uh, we got invited to go to the Hunter Games, Sig Hunter Games. So Brad and I are joining that. You know what? Are you going? Yeah, are I you get going? to compete this year. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, that's awesome! <laughs> Hell yeah! So we'll see you there. Uh, yeah. We're just we're stoked for that. Um, and I I don't know. I'm 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 I'm, I'm twisting Bam's arm to do maybe because we don't have an organization for it. We just bring a veteran. Let's yeah. just go hunt and have yeah. fun. So we're maybe we're gonna twist him to do the Wish for Warriors to to kind of do that and then. Dude, and that's do the it. move. That, that's what I found in my outfitting business is like, I was at a at a point where I either needed to become a nonprofit or just find the right one to partner exactly. with. Exactly. And for me, that's been BAM. And I've worked with a lot of different ones. Yeah. But Wishes for Warriors is like light years ahead of everyone else. Yeah. And they're just dialed in. And not only do they, do they make it sort of easier on me, but the guys that they're sending are, are the guys that, that need the help the most. Exactly. And I appreciate every aspect of exactly. that. Exactly. So, and that's what we... We were going, like, literally the guys, before, the, the two guys that we brought before, Anthony was, like, through a friend. He knew him, and he's like, oh, he's, you know, Air Force guy, bring him in. Sweet. And then, like, the last guy we just went to Mexico with was a very close friend of mine. Yeah. And so, it's which is great, uh, but at the same time, like, I think it'd be really cool to maybe get, bring in some guys we don't know. Yeah. That, that BAM has already vetted or gone through, and, like, this would be sweet. So, yeah. I think we're just going to, I just talk, literally just talk to him about it. I'm hoping to basically just turn the keys over for that. Like, hey, man. Brad and I are going to come. You bring the guy. We're going to our outfit. Yeah. We'll shoot some bears, and we'll have a great time. Sounds amazing. So yeah, I'm jealous. Uh, <laughs> you can come, yeah. too. Heck, oh, be sounds awesome. good. <laughs> I'm, I'm packed. I'm packed. Let's, I'm packed. let's do it. So, yeah, that's, it should be a good year. I'm, I'm excited. And, uh, you know, Marshy's going to come out. we got a couple of elk tags in, uh, in Utah here. Cool. Uh, early season. He's going to come out, and then I'm going to probably take a mule deer hunting on my property up here. So cool. I'm only 30 minutes up the mountain. Nice. So, yeah, we'll just – I got to get Jeff Phil to Oregon Freezer. one of these days. Yeah, to Oregon. Yeah. Okay. So, long story short, but building a home. Yep. I ordered timbers. Yeah. For my house. Okay. They were eight weeks out here. Yeah. My dad's like, "Hey, order them down here in California. They're two weeks." Yeah. So I was like, "All right, cool." So I'll fly down there. I'll rent this truck and I'll drive them back, and then I'll drive the truck back, fly back. All right. Well, long story short, uh, they got delayed. They got delayed. They got delayed. Well, the timbers were I ordered were from Oregon. No kidding. Like. Yeah. West of Portland. Yeah. At some way west of Portland. Yeah. And the guy's like, all right, well, you can come pick them up here. So I just got back. Okay. This morning. Okay. I drove from Salt Lake to Oregon in a 26-foot flatbed, picked up my timbers, drove back, and then drove to California yesterday and flew in this morning. Wow. So I've you're, never been through that, that eastern side of Oregon. It's awesome. Unbelievable. Yeah. I called my wife in the middle of the drive, and I'm like, we need to get a cabin or something. Here. This place is incredible. <laughs> yeah, come visit me. Well, is that where you are? Where are you? Yeah, northeast Oregon. So you're north. You're the northeast corner. Yeah. So I came through Boise on 84. Yeah. And then came up through there, and then basically drove the Washington border into Portland and yeah. down. So you're you're you would be the northeast side of 84. Yep. Sweet. It's awesome. Oh my gosh. It's so much prettier than the part that you saw. Really? Yeah. It's really great. How hard is it to elk hunt there to get a tag there? We'll, Years? we'll, t- we'll talk. Years. We'll we'll, t- we'll talk. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. is an unbelievable country. I don't need to tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Takes 15 years, guys. Don't even try. Yeah, yeah. Not worth your <laughs> oh, time. That's funny. Okay. Yeah, but I was blown away. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I've never yeah. been on that side. I've been to Portland, but I've never been east of that. Yeah. Come on up. We'll catch a fish. Shoot you at something. Oh, my gosh. Good. Eat that a place steak. Is sweet. Yeah. 
I feel like there's a lot of places like that that I just haven't explored yet. I just haven't like. Dude, we have it so good in America. We really do. Yeah, like, really do. Yeah, those all these un- like I'm driving through and I'm looking. I'm like, I've never been to this. I've never even heard of it. Yeah, and like I would move here in a heartbeat. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a great place. Great place. Yeah. It's all here. We got it all. It really is. We got it. It all. really. And you know what? This is. I was. This is my first expo ever. Yeah. I didn't realize there was this many hunters. <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah, this is only one show. I know, this is crazy. Yeah, it's a big community. Good people. Oh, it's awesome. I love the people here. Well, it's people from everywhere, too, like yeah. doing their whole thing. And then, like, it's just, it's cool. This guy loves it. Hey. Yeah, <laughs> you're into it. You're into it. <laughs> All right, brother. Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. Thank appreciate you. it, man. Mr. Brad, does anybody call you Bradley? My mom does um so when i'm in trouble so <laughs> there get hit with a middle name too <laughs> yeah oh yeah for that's sure. big trouble adam it was like bradley adam oh, and if man. i ever heard that it was like this to this day <laughs> i find this like shooting terror i think that's the purpose of a middle name yeah oh yeah i barely remember my kid's middle name but when they're in trouble like right away yeah it's it's an escalation of force and what comes after that i don't know because i never dared no yeah. I immediately, if I hear that, uh, I just immediately just stop doing what I'm doing, curl up into a fetal position, and apologize. And I don't even know what for half the time. Yeah. Well, you've caught me under one of the strangest of my own personal circumstances, being that I don't have your knife wrapped around my neck. Oh. Because I didn't check any luggage, so I've been knifeless for the last few days, and it sucks. Well, uh, do they even let you bring knives in this place? I don't know. They would. They would. They wouldn't know. They wouldn't know. Uh, They're not yeah. knife checking you. At do you the feel door. naked without it? I do. Okay. Yeah, I reach for it all the time, and it's okay. not there, and it's awkward. <laughs> yeah. Um, Brad Brooks from a, from Argali, and you are the maker of my favorite knife, and more recently, you are the maker of some new shelters. Yes. True. And that's what the people want to hear about. Um, or are we calling them teepees? Are we calling them shelters? What are we calling them? Uh, I call them tents. Tents? Yep. Okay. Uh, we, yeah, so we just launched our two tents, uh, okay. two person and a four person. Um, a four person is the uh, Abzerok of 4P, and the two person is the Rincon 2P. Okay. Um, both named after uh, places that we kind of tested these tents during our prototyping. Nice. Phase. Where's so, Rincon? Uh, it's just east of Tucson, the Rincon Wilderness. Okay. I took uh first prototype I had, I took on a backpack uh, archery coos hunt down there. Yeah. It's gorgeous country. Yeah. Very pokey. Yeah. Uh, all the pokies. All the pokies. Uh, yeah. Lots of sharp things down yeah. there. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So that's, yeah. Shelters, tents. They're not really teepee style. So both of them, they're kind of, I call them like modified rectangular shape. So, um, and all of our uh, shelters sort of have that similar shape, and there's a simple reason for that. It's geometry. Yeah. Um, so if you think about, like, a person laying down, you form a line, right? Yeah. And lines and uh, other le- lines tend to um, fit well with other straight lines. Sure. So in terms of, like, efficiency of space, when you think about that, that factors into, like, the fit, how much fabric you need for a tent, yeah. which affects the weight. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to like efficiency of space and weight and and uh, the geometry of that tent, tent matters quite a bit. So and just cost, like you don't yeah. want to be spending more on material. You don't want your customer spending more on material yeah. that's not being utilized. Yeah. So that's an efficiency gain. How did you arrive upon sil poly as a fabric? So um, I uh, anytime we make something, I go 
like just hard in the paint on on the details of everything. And so when it came to fabric, um, you know, I don't have a textile background, um, but I wanted to like just learn for myself sort of, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of things about different fabrics over the years. I've used a lot of fabrics, but I've never done like detailed research on like pros and cons of various fabrics. Um, I wanted a shelter that solved some of the problems that I've encountered. Yeah. One of those problems is having a shelter um, that sags a lot. So anybody who's ever used like a nylon fabric shelter, which is a really common fabric, it's a great fabric in many ways. The, one of the downsides to it is it sags a lot. So if you get heavy condensation, rain, snow, you just have that like tent collapsing feel, the tent just sort of the walls caving in. Um, that's a product of the fabric absorbing water, even though it has uh, waterproof coatings on either side. Yeah. Water vapor can still get through silicone sure. and get to the fabric. Okay. So still poly <clears throat> has, it doesn't sag, it's naturally hydrophobic. Um, but there, you know, it's not a real common fabric in the lightweight shelter world. There's a lot of reasons for that that we can talk about, a lot of them based on misperceptions around that specific fabric. Um, so yeah, anyways, that's a long-winded answer for why we're using Sil Poly. I mean, it's long-winded, but a lot of times we run across something like we're using XX material and people aren't familiar with what that even means yeah. or, or why, why we are using that. And, you know, I, I run across it all the time in every aspect of, of gear and people who have done all of the research and are so close to it will talk about this stuff like it's a household name. Mm -hmm. and, and it is in their household, but it's not for everybody else. So I think it's worthwhile to talk about what it is and then why you picked that. Uh, the, the tent's also visually appealing. Something that really bothers me about a lot of tents is they're, is they're bright and, and sort of obnoxious and, I guess, in a sense, offensive to the environment that you put them in. And I appreciate the the colors that you picked and the shape of it. It's it's an eye appealing design. Thanks, man. Yeah, we. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because, on the one hand, you know we were doing looking at like colors. It seems like such a simple thing, um, and also something that it's easy to say or, uh, for as a hunter. You're like, ah, I don't really care about that, um, but I do personally. Yeah. Um, I care for two reasons. One is you talked about. You brought up an interesting point, which is it's not like obstructive to the environment you're in. Like nobody wants, there are other people when you go out hunting, typically you're going to see other people. You might see other camps, but when you have a tent that mostly blends in, it makes you feel, you're getting an experience that makes you feel like you're, you're not uh, in like a tent city with other people. And if you have a bunch of like bright orange tents just dotted throughout the landscape, it does have an effect on your experience as a hunter. Yeah. Um, at the same time, we put some like orange highlights in there that do allow it to be more visible. Sure, um, and some reflective qualities so yep. that you're not tripping over the thing in the middle of the night. Which I do a lot. Yeah, all the sure. time. It's it's an easy <laughs> thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, another really interesting. If you want to really go down a rabbit hole of like esoteric uh, topics we can debate, one is is how waterproof is waterproof enough for sure. a fabric? Sure. Um, you know, there. One of the things that we spent I spent a lot of time researching is like you can the, the possibilities for coatings and how much coating you want to put on a fabric are literally limitless. Yeah. You can do whatever you want because the fabrics are made to our spec. Like we, we order it and it's made exactly to our design spec, right? Um, but as a, uh, tent companies, they make, they, they're all over the board in terms of it, like what coatings they use and how much of it they use. And because of some of, I'd say, the, the marketing of different companies, they will say, like, our tents are more waterproof or less, you know, our tents are more waterproof. And it's like, well, how much is enough? Right. How much is enough? And as a consumer, 
you don't really care. All you, you just don't want your tent to leak. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to like wade through the, uh, I would, you know, some of the, the noise about like ours is better because it's more waterproof. Well, it's like, well, do you really need more? Because more waterproofing, it adds more weight and it might be unnecessary weight. Um, you need it to be waterproof enough to keep yeah. you and your stuff dry. That's it. That's it. That's the bottom line. And yeah. does your fabric do that? Uh, yes, sir, it does. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and in that same vein, I have spent in the past over a thousand of my very hard-earned dollars on shelters that once I got it, they sent little tubes of stuff that I was supposed to waterproof my tent with, like all the seams. And there were a lot of seams. I was furious. Like, what exactly did I pay for? Like, you didn't finish the job. Yeah, it's not a dumb product. And and that yeah. is, that's not just one company. That's multiple companies that take that approach. And it drives me absolutely crazy. I would never, ever do that to somebody. I would yeah. never give somebody a product that they bought from me and be like, hey, you have to finish this. It's like, yeah, like sending somebody a gun, but being like, I'm just going to give you the parts. Yeah. You got to figure out how to get it together. Not cool. Not cool. So <laughs> we share that pet peeve. But uh, I think consumers of single wall shelters have been like the expectation. We've all been programmed to think that that is like the expectation that you should just like be willing to do that. I hate it too, man. I've been out in the 100 degree heat in the sun inside my tent like in August, early August, like seam taping my seams, getting ready for the hunting season, sweating profusely, you know, cursing at nobody, um, but just like annoyed that I have to do it. Uh, what yeah. if you get your tent during October and it's cold outside and you can't even do this stuff properly and you want to use it? Right. Like it's unacceptable. <laughs> so your tent, you don't have to do that. You're, you you're, you're going to do that job for me. Thank you. I'm going to finish the tent for you, James. Thank you. I like you, so I'm going to do that for you. Yeah. We use a, so the problem with, so let me, let me geek out a little bit. So silicone is a great waterproof material for tents because it doesn't, you can put uh, a lot less of it on a fabric to achieve a certain amount of waterproofness. Yeah. So we use it, a coating on both sides of our fabric, silicone on the inside, silicone on the outside. The downside to silicone, and it is a significant one, is you cannot seam tape your seams, right? Yeah. So that's why some of the high-end backpack tent companies, they send you a bottle of seam sealer with your tent and say, finish the, the seams on this. Um, so I wanted to use silicone, uh, but I didn't want our customers to have to seam seal their own tents, which is why we use basically the, the way in which we sew our seams. Yeah. Um, and we use a silicone-coated thread. Yeah. And it basically plugs the holes that the needle creates in the fabric. Um, now, in, like, extreme environments, like, could it possibly leak? Like, there is a probability that you could get a couple drops of water to come through. But, like, for 99.9% .9 of the population, you're never going to notice a difference. And any time that you're in that environment, water is going to be part of your life. I don't care if you're living inside of a <laughs> rubber glove. Yes. Like, water is just going to be part of your life. That's a good way to describe in, it. Yeah. In, in that environment. I was talking with, uh, with Butch from Cryptek about this with his shoulder fabrics. And uh, I was like, well, how waterproof is this? And he goes, well, there's versions of waterproof, right? So if you want it to have breathability, then it's going to have some permeability that goes both directions. And that's mm -hmm. just the reality of it. So if you want absolute waterproof, then you're looking at like a Gruden's rubberized something or other that you're going to be sweating to death on the inside of and you're going to be wet. So right. like permeability and waterproofing 
it, it's all part of a continuous spectrum. And yeah, yeah. I, I like the product that that I'm seeing over there. I'm excited to use it. And honestly, it's it's better than anything that I have right now. And what I have right now costs more than that. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, we don't make things to hit a certain price point ever. We always make something to be the best damn thing that we can. And we make it the product, the ideal product that we can. And the price is what it is. And we try very hard to like make it what we consider to be a fair price point um, with the customer. With our tents, we were able to put it at, I think, a very like fair price point. And I've heard that <clears throat> a lot. And I appreciate that um, because the last thing you want is for people to feel like you're taken to the cleaners. Yeah. I don't like that feeling as a consumer. And I would never want our customers to feel that way. So, um, so yeah, I think we, we tried very hard to do that. Awesome. So, If people have questions that, uh, that I didn't have the foresight to ask for them and yeah. they want to learn more, where can they do that? They can, they can uh, look us up on Argali Official on Instagram or on our website at argalioutdoors.com and ask for Bradley Adam. Okay. <laughs> what, what is an Argali? Uh, it is a species of sheep. Okay. That lives uh, overseas. It's a species of sheep that I hope to hunt one day. Yeah. Um, they're expensive, though. It's yeah. not cheap. Sure. Yeah. You'll get there. Someday. I'm confident. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, I can't wait for your, your and Kevin's hunt in Hawaii. You guys are going to have so much fun. <laughs> I'm excited for the both of you. We'll do a podcast afterwards about that. Okay. Sounds good. All, All right. right. Thanks, Thanks, brother. When did you go into the Army? Uh, I went in 2010. Okay. So uh, in the spring, went through basic. I had a, so I shot through college uh, for Ohio State. Okay. And then got an offer to go shoot for the Army Marksmanship Unit. So went through, I did infantry. It was kind of the quickest thing. Yeah. Uh, my grandpa was airborne. So I was like, ah, I'm going to you know, infantry all the way. And I went through and then uh, went straight to the Army Marksmanship Unit, uh, shooting international pistol for them. What is international pistol? So the Olympic style stuff, so anything you see in the Summer Olympics, uh, in college they shoot uh, three events, air pistol, free pistol, and standard pistol. Standard pistol is kind of the closest to what you would consider normal, like bullseye. You have a slow time fire, slow fire, and a rapid fire. And then um, the other two are kind of precision events, so you take a two-hour long time limit, 60 shots, very slow, one-handed, precision, and then... Uh, in the uh, marksmanship unit, I shot rapid fire, international rapid fire. Okay. Um, Olympic air pistol is the hardest shooting I've ever tried to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's it's <laughs> so unbelievably hard. Yeah. Yeah. you got about a dime-sized target at 33 feet that you're trying to hit. And to be competitive, you have to hit that about 45 to 50 times out of 60. You know, depending on how many, if you shoot some nine, you know, you know, if you're outside the nine ring, but yeah. It's with a, one hand. With one hand and all the pressure and plenty of time to think about what you should or shouldn't be doing. <laughs> the other super hard shooting event um, is I shot a, an air rifle um, Nordic biathlon. Okay. And uh, gosh, that was tough. Right. And that was about a quarter size target. Um, and yeah. every time you miss, you have to ski a penalty lap. Right. And that gets in your head right now. Oh, yeah. And your heart rate's up. Like, those guys are, it's incredible. Like, I, I started actually shooting precision air pist- or air rifle and small bore rifle, and I didn't have enough training. A lot of the kids have been doing it for 6, 8, 10 years, and it's such a technical sport yeah. that you have to build it all up. So I was like, well, pistol's easy. You just wear whatever you're wearing and go for it. And so it was better. But I know some of the guys that have tried biathlon, and your heart rate's super, super high. Yeah. 
It's like, man, you guys are something else. And you, you need your heart rate to stay high. And there's all of these misnomers, especially right now during Winter Olympics, and people talk about it. They're like, they're slowing their heart rate down. Uh, you actually need your heart rate to stay up because if your heart rate starts to slow down, it's beating really big as you're recovering, and that moves your gun a lot. So you have to breathe less while your heart rate's high, and your body doesn't like doing that. it's like, that. we need oxygen. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, hurry up. <laughs> Boom. Clink. You miss. It's like, oh, penalty lap. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> mentally, yeah, really, really challenging. Um, what about all that you've learned throughout your shooting and your competition at such a high level? Do you feel like transfers into hunting? Um. Well, I think the the mindset, right? I was just reading something about uh, archery where they were talking about you either control your shot or you let your shot control you kind yeah. of thing. It's like if you're hoping to succeed, you may or may not succeed. If you're planning to succeed, you have a much better ch- chance of, of doing that. So having a shot process in a high-stress environment, and basically what you learn is I have a simplify it. So you don't want a 14-step process. You want right. a three-step process or less if you can help it. And then you have kind of a, an initial first step that you take the first step. And then a lot of times that first step's not enough to get you into your flow to where you'll finish your steps, two, three, four, whatever. Can you give me an example? So, for instance, if uh, – and I do this like coyote hunting all the time because I miss coyotes still. And I've shot a lot, right? So when they're coming in, I'm just thinking squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. Like remember to squeeze because as soon as I think that and I establish pressure and I start the process of squeezing the trigger, everything else falls into alignment for me. Because I've shot, you know, enough that that's sort of, if that's happening, my brain is thinking correctly. And, but there's a lot of other things, um, like for archery, for instance, if you got an elk coming in, it's like line your sights up. It's kind of the same thing like back tension or pick a spot. And, you know, people will pick something like that. And if that's the process that you use when you're training, so pick a spot and then you do steps two through four. But you're always consciously picking and choosing to do that first thing and then following it on consciously with your follow-on steps. By picking that first step. It gets your brain and your body into a, a comfortable, more comfortable zone, and then you'll flow through generally your next steps. When do you know that you need to abort and start over? Um, well, if it's hunting, it's usually after you miss and the animal's running away. Yeah, that, um, that's a real, that's <laughs> a real problem. I I feel like when hunters start to commit to a process and and the wheels start to fall off the bus, they just keep going. Right and. Uh, and even especially with a with uh, with archery, letting a bow down is a lot harder than just firing an arrow. And and people tend to feel that it's starting to go wrong, and they just shoot to get it over with. And that builds some really bad <laughs> habits Absolutely. pretty quickly that are really understandable as well. Like I I get why people do that, and I'm guilty of it too. So when do you know? Okay, I need to abort this and start over. Well, when in shooting, basically anything outside of your process that kicks in, you abort. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, um, for international shooting, you have two hours, an hour and 45 minutes to shoot. So you've got plenty of time, if you're managing it correctly, to abort. You know, and in a normal match of 60 shots, I might abort between 20 and 40 times, depending on your, your process. If you're in the flow, it might be less, but that's sort of a general. You get up. You set your process, you start running through it. If you get a thought in there that's screwing with it or you think of something outside of your process, you abort because that discipline to, to execute correctly is super important. And I think in terms of hunting, that has something you have to train before that critical moment arrives. 
you know, put yourself in high stress situations, you know, shoot for money, shoot for beer, shoot for, against your buddies for whatever, and have a bunch of people watch you shoot. Um, pick a small target, make it so if you miss it, there's a, you know, you break your arrow. I mean, there's a lot of ways of inducing stress. Put a timer on. Yeah. You've got 10 seconds if you do got to shoot before the beep. Like, that'll get in your head super, super quick. Um, we used to train train people that, you know, there's three things that affect your ability, size of the target, distance of the target, and the shooter's ability. And so you can adjust those things essentially using time. So time's an, a stressor. So right. if I've got an hour to shoot a perfect arrow, I mean, hey, no big deal. If I've got 30 seconds to shoot a perfect arrow, now all of a sudden I'm thinking about something besides my process. Right. So train it then so when it kicks in, you've got that mental fortitude, like, all right, I know how to execute. And I think that's why your example of a coyote is really important because a coyote tends to not stop for very long. No. You've and, and if you're calling a coyote in and it stops – Chances are it did so because it just detected something. and you chan- got a second to three seconds, probably. Right. Um, and if you let that time get in your head and you think, I don't have time to do my process, I'm just going to pull the trigger, it doesn't take longer to do it right. It's not more work to do it right, but that stress can convince you to do it wrong. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, it's uh, we interesting. <laughs> Show show me a guy who hasn't missed coyotes, and I'll show you somebody who doesn't shoot at coyotes. <laughs> it's uh, I forget there was something uh, I was uh, I don't know if it was a meme or a saying, and it's like it's a it's a I don't remember a physical oddity or something about how much air surrounds a coyote. <laughs> it defies the laws of physics, you know. I yeah. was like, well, that feels that way sometimes, especially in the winter. They look a lot bigger than what they are. They're pretty poofy. Well, that's true too. You can shoot through a lot of hair and miss the coyote too. Yeah. So. Yeah, they're about as big around as a grapefruit when you get them skinned out. And, and not all of that is vital zone either. Yep. So if you can't hit a grapefruit that's running at 25 <laughs> miles an hour, not well, a, a string along Because you've got, yeah. you know, you got a little bit more to work with there. But. Sure, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, less than a grapefruit would be a coyote kill zone. So Absolutely. If people feel bad that they missed a coyote that's 400 yards away, like, don't feel bad. But. <laughs> oh, I've missed them a lot closer than that. <laughs> yeah, I've missed them at all of the ranges. It's like, oh, man. It's, yeah. you, it's almost, I think, when you get out, it's almost easier. I mean, it goes back to that mental thing. It's like, I need to focus. This is a tough yeah. shot. I need to take my time versus like, oh, it's 100 yards like or 75 yards. I don't get me. Chip shot. Yeah. <laughs> Miss, you know. It's Yeah. What I've noticed about the best shooters in the world and, and talking with them versus people who are good shots is – People who are good shots talk about techniques, tactics, skills. Uh, the guys that are the best in the world talk about mental management. Right. Yeah. And we know that this is a mental game. Absolutely. We, we all know that, but we don't spend our time strengthening our mental game. And I, I think that that's a big mistake. Yeah. No, absolutely. Knowing what it's going to – I mean, putting yourself mentally in the situation. And that crosses over – even into, you know, concealed carry type stuff, self-protection. It's the same thing. Um, we used to teach a lot of that. Even after getting out uh, of the military, I would work with different groups doing concealed carry or carbine pistol classes. And that was the first thing we talked about was the mental side of it. Yeah. And it's like you have to be prepared to put yourself in a situation. It's like if you're carrying a gun for protection, and that could be grizzly bears too. It might not even be a person. Um, you have to be in the mindset of, this is what the situation potentially looks like. These are the consequences of what actions I might take. And so if you're not there mentally, I'm drawing a gun to kill somebody or something to protect myself. 
Like you better have that set in your head that these are the parameters that I will act in this manner. If you can't do that or you're not comfortable with it, you probably shouldn't be carrying a firearm. Yeah. And, you know, that's maybe anti or contra to a lot of the, like, everyone has a gun that makes you safer. But it's like you've, you've got to it's, – it's irresponsible to not do that if you're carrying a firearm. I agree. Um, so when you're shooting at – was it Ohio State? Yep. The Ohio State? Yeah, I guess, you know, the Ohio State University yeah. and all that. How much better would you have had to have been in college um, to go shoot for the Marine Corps versus the Army? <laughs> well, they didn't offer me, so I guess I wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a it's a funny difference because the Army um, recruits guys who are already really good shooters, and then they go to the Army marksmanship unit and get the best training in the world. And the Marine Corps just, like, snatches out Barry from tracks and was like, "Hey, you're gonna go shoot for us for a little while," and uh, it uh, it doesn't really seem fair. But you guys do extraordinary things. It's amazing to me how many people from the AMU actually end up going to the Olympic level. And sure. you got to do some of that as well. Tell me about that story. Yep. So I uh, I joined the the AMU um, 2010 and 2012 was the Olympic year um, in London. So looking forward to that, I was essentially training up. I started shooting international rapid fire when I, when I joined the unit, so I didn't have a lot of time. I mean, a year is a short time to train for the Olympics, essentially. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I made the final, so it's a six-person final. I made the final, didn't make the team for the top two. They took the top two slots, got Olympic slots. And then 2016 would have been the next quad. And so for my last couple well a year and whatever in the unit that I had uh I kind of made the decision that it'd be cool to win a medal and my coach was like you know like you're never guaranteed to get a slot I mean something could go wrong you could make a mistake um it's not like training you will be an Olympian it's like training you have a good chance of being an Olympian but to me it just wasn't I knew I didn't want to live in Georgia the rest of my life I'm a Montana boy you know born and raised and so it made more sense for me to tr kind of transition to the Army side. Yeah. So I tried to do things that I couldn't do outside of the Army. Um, did a deployment to Afghanistan and went to some cool schools and uh, got a chance to kind of be the play the Army game a little bit, which was really good, um, and then worked more as an instructor. So we worked uh, across the big Army, worked to develop a lot of training um, protocols, regimens, programs to try and kind of take what we knew. Uh, we had a lot of, being at Benning, we had a lot of 3rd Ranger Battalion guys that came over that had spent a lot of time overseas um, in combat. So to kind of marry up guys like me um, that had done a lot of competitive shooting, you had sort of a different mindset. And then transferring that and sort of melding that with the, the high combat time guys and coming up with a product, like how do you train soldiers to be more effective mark in marksmanship right we did very limited tactics um you know sort of sound tactical principles but we didn't get into like the sops because everyone does things differently um it was definitely very mindset heavy um how to think about it and then getting into it uh and then executing specific marksmanship principles that you could apply through high stress situations and then we got to work with the special operations in a lot of different areas which was really cool they're very professional yeah they would approach training it's not i mean obviously they know more about a lot of things than i knew but we knew more about marksmanship than most of those guys did sure and so they're like and even if we didn't it's like even if a guy i could beat him nine times out of ten he could still teach me something he still has a better way of probably doing something than i do so you know being humble enough to to try and cross train those guys were great about that 
because they're like, I just need one thing that I don't know that makes me better. Right. Even if I could beat you shooting, it's like you're still, you spend a lot of time doing this. And when you're talking about beating them shooting, that means beating them shooting at a competition. If that competition is you guys shooting at each other, <laughs> that might be a radically different thing because shooting in combat and shooting on a range are wildly different, although the skills from both um, can definitely complement each other and make everybody better. Absolutely. Well, yeah. and we got that a lot. You know, we'd be overseas um, and people like, oh, you're a marksmanship unit. Well, it's different if the bullets are flying at you. And it's like, well... It is, but it isn't because the mindset's the same. Being able to execute under high stress is executing under high stress. And whether that's a bullet flying at you or you're standing on the line with four years of training at, your, at an Olympic dream, the mind, your brain is doing the same thing. The adrenaline dumps, like everything's the same physiologically or similar physiologically. I won't say it's the same. So being able to apply those principles, and it's like you get on the line, I'm like, all right, beer's on the line. You know, you against me, let's see who can hit that target. Or if you put speed on the line, who can shoot better, faster? Yeah, um, that stuff all sort of applies, you know. And obviously, there's nuances, but it's that cross cross training, cross pollination that makes both sides better. Yeah, I t I totally agree, totally yep. agree. So, what are you up to now? Um, well, that's a good question. Uh, so, I got out of the military a few years ago. Um, came back to Montana, got involved in the legislature, um, in politics. Mm -hmm. So, uh. I wanted to be involved. I realized how important politics were to shaping policy. I had experienced that in the Army of Mubritsky. You're the recipient of whatever policies are above you. Yep. And then getting out, and uh, I'd lived in Ohio and then Georgia and Alabama. And I'd, I'd traveled you know, around the world, a bunch of different countries and every state. And so I kind of had a, a good idea of what the world was like. And I knew what, where I grew up was an important place. And I want to kind of keep it that way or at least have a say in what it becomes. So oh, I got involved in politics a little bit more than I intended and ended up running for the legislature. So um, I'm in my last term. I served uh, four terms in the state house and uh, was able to, this last term, pass some significant firearms legislation, firearms freedom. So Montana now has permitless carry, um, concealed, uh, they call it constitutional carry in most states um, to allow uh, carry in a lot of different uh, establishments. Um, we're currently, actually yesterday, I was working with a lawyer to file an amicus brief on behalf of part of the bill was campus carry, allowed carry on college campuses. Yep. That was overturned by a district court judge in Montana and some really, I thought, very bad reasoning um, for why that was accessible. And basically he said the Board of Regents, who has control of the, the university yep. system, threw it out because they have full control over management. And so even though you have the Second Amendment, they can essentially, they're a stand-apart entity, which, so it's like they're above the rest of the Constitution. Like, that doesn't seem right. So part of, uh, I was involved in filing in a, a brief yesterday about basically saying, well, you follow these other 139 different laws, but not this one. So when are you, why do you get to pick and choose? So that's been a big part of it. Um, I started a company with a buddy called Shield Arms. A few years ago um, in the firearms industry so we uh basically in the ar polymer pistol market yeah. we do extensions magazines um we patented technology for a folding ar lower so an integral folding system we have a patent on that and then now currently since we're sitting at the the hunt expo um i'm part of another uh company called norden where we do knives and outdoor gear so like uh, we have a modular vinyl harness that we launched at the show um different pouches and then we have a custom knife line that's well. awesome. So yeah, kind of going everywhere. <laughs> that's that's very much how how my life was uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps too. So I can 
I can sympathize with you a little bit. <laughs> and uh, that's cool knife. I like that knife. Well, thanks. Yeah. 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 Well, that's awesome. Where can people find out more about you and kind of follow along with, with your wild world of things that you're up to? Um, well, I've, uh, I've got a limited, more limited, uh, involvement on the politics side since I'm termed out. So I'm kind of transitioning out into business, but, uh, in terms of the business side, shieldarms.com, we've got all of our stuff listed, uh, any of our, uh, social media, we're still on Instagram for now. We'll see what happens, uh, shield arms. Uh, and then the Northern side, we have Northern knives, which is sort of a separate, uh, website, northernknives.com, And then, uh, Northern outdoors has all of our outdoor gear on it. Anything for you personally? I mean, you're an interesting guy. Well, who knows where the needle's going to point you next? Well, I don't know. It's like I'm actually getting married in a few months, so uh, the end of May. So uh, that's okay. going to be a big life change, cool. I think. Uh, I've kind of been the uh, known as the gypsy. People would call me and say, well, so what state are you in right now? Yeah. And uh, so settling down a little bit, which the next season of life. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that, honestly. Awesome. To uh, be more settled in uh, northwestern Montana. So Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for everything you've done for the state of Montana. That's it's really great, much needed, and uh, that is not an easy thing to do. Um, yeah, <laughs> right? It's that nobody is uh, is in the state legislature like for themselves. Yeah. Like, well, they. Uh, I think we make like twelve bucks an hour, and yeah. that's for an eight-hour day. And usually, we're up there. I mean, I'll show up at six and work till ten some days. So yeah. It's a, you're there four months. We only serve four months every two years, basically yep. a 90 working day. And so it's a blast, boom, go through, you have no life, and then you're out. And it's, it's sort of like getting back from a deployment. You're like back into normal life, but four months went by. Yeah. So, yeah. No, it's needed. I, I think people need to get involved and just, you know, be part of the solution. You know, if, if you want something to be different, then play some part in making it different. It doesn't matter how big or how small it is. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much. You got it. What is new in the world of Baku? Oh my goodness, a lot. We've got a lot of cool new products that have come out, state-of-the-art stuff that we we just rolled out here in the in the recent few months at the shows that we've been at. Scooters, got a lot of new cool scooters. So I was in North Carolina coyote hunting in December, and my buddy had Mad Max the scooter together, and I thought it was a joke, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, I'm a grown-ass man. <laughs> yeah, Kind dude. of a big one at that. I was like, I don't know about riding a scooter to go hunting. Bro. We've got some big ones, like 24, 26-inch fat tire scooters. They're amazing. Yeah. And there's a lot of real-world application for that. So easy to get on and off of. Yeah, to pull it out of the truck, super simple. Whitetail, turkey hunting. Um, out west, it's a little bit tougher with the big hills and stuff. But yeah. coyote hunting on the plains, dude, going in stealth, it'd be game, game over, game Absolutely changing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, so we're rolling in completely blacked out like kind of tactical looking like helmets <laughs> and goggles and all this stuff that's awesome with thermals and we're on these scooters i was like there's something here yeah. there's something to this we've got them dude yeah you gotta yeah. come check them out at our booth okay i need to get down yeah. there yeah I, yeah oh my gosh big I'm batteries big motors um yeah it's we were down at shot show range day with these things and we've got a full suspension scooter yes you can climb hills dude it's it's just awesome okay what else We've got a new full suspension bike. It's got a um, most bikes are mid drive e bikes, and they're yep. not all created equal. So, all of our mid drives have the steel gearing. So it's a big high end, top number one mid drive motor in the industry. We've got on this specific bike, we call it the Storm Jaeger. It's got a rear roll off hub. Okay. So it's a 14 gear internal system, which means no derailleur. Okay. No nine speed cassette. 
You're not busting chains. Great. Super clean on the back end. Probably quieter. Quieter. You're, yeah. I mean, low-end torque, so you're able to climb anything, everything awesome. with the power that you can keep traction on. Yeah. It's And then the batteries, too. We just rolled out the largest battery on the market. Most batteries on e-bikes, so you guys know, anywhere from an 11-amp hour to maybe a 17-amp hour. Okay. Our entry-level battery now is a 17.5, and we have one as big as a 25. That's awesome. Which means a lot of distance. Yeah. You're going to go as far as you want to go. That's amazing. Yep. Baku is an interesting story because there are some other bikes that kind of hit the market harder first, and then you guys just came along and did it better. Yeah, we uh, we we sat back and watched it for a while. We did two years of research and development. So we, when the when the other bikes were coming out, we were looking at them as well. Yeah, we didn't want to come to market yet, specifically for the reason that we wanted to make sure we had very high end components. Anybody can get an e bike, right? Right. So, our owners, Brian and Dave, they're, they're brother-in-laws. One of them's a doctor. One of them owned his own business. The one that's a doctor also has won some major bike races in the industry, so he knows bike components sure. like the back of his hand. It's very important. Every minute detail on a bike will change the way that you can get further and and safer and to not have any major issues. So And bike racers know about reliability. Yeah. Like, they cannot have a component fail, otherwise they're out of it. Exactly. Like fixing it, there's no time for that. Yeah, you're toast. So. Yeah. Again, that's why we waited a couple of years. And when we came to market, we really um, we care deeply about our relationships and our partners and everybody that we work with. We care deeply about our consumers and, and about the product, and we stand behind it. If there are issues, we'll take care of you. The, the biggest difference is we've got a team that you'll call, and we're, you know, you're talking to any of us, and, and it's not a third-party yeah. operation company. Our, our Google reviews are all public. Yeah. Um, our dealers that we have, they sell a Baku a day compared to other brands, maybe one a month. Um, yeah. And it's really because of the product and because of our customer service and who we care about. Well, your, your product sells itself. And I say that Thank because you. the first time that I've seen anybody get on one, very much including myself, it's all smiles, man. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's uncontrollable, like smiling because riding bikes is fun. It is. It is. Everybody has that experience. Like riding bikes is fun, and right. then you get a little bit older, and you're like, actually, it's fun, but it's also super hard. Like, I <laughs> yeah, wish it wasn't dude. so hard. And then yeah. Baku comes along. It's like, how about I make it easier with uh, electricity? Yeah. Oh, Elect- when we went to your guys' event that you had last summer up at R&K in Wyoming, it was the coolest thing to see everybody just jacked up. And, yeah. And it, everyone says the same thing. This is a game changer. Yeah. And it is. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree pretty fun yeah thank you for your time where can people find out more about you yeah go to baku.com b-a-k-c-o-u.com instagram at baku life youtube baku we do a lot of how-to videos and product review videos and uh yeah check us out sweet thank you thank you how's the move (sighs) busy um wife couldn't be here because of it that was unfortunate right I, i love when she's here with me to share this Oh. I'm secretly glad. You want to know why? Huh. I promised that I'd bring her jerky. And you forgot? I ate it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, baby. I'll bring you jerky home. Um, so it, it's going good. She's dealing with the uh, house sale right now. Yeah. When I got off the plane, we were I was signing papers as I was running to the Uber. Yeah. Um, so it's crazy, man. It's a little bit busy. It's exciting. It's scary. Yeah. First year, next Friday, first time in 25 years, I'm unemployed. Yeah. And it's... Uh, it's invigorating, it's scary, it's exhilarating, all in one. Yeah, unemployed. You're self-employed. 
a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we get we get used to we get used to a thing, right? And we're and we're programmed to believe as men this is what it should be. Yeah, right. And I'm I'm learning that I have to lay that down to chase what I want to chase. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting, bro. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing, but I'm, I'm happy for it. It feels really good. Sounds like the road to humility. A little bit, yeah. yeah. I, I, a lot of it is self, it's, it's very introspective. Yeah. Right? And I have, to, I have to look at myself and lay down some of my self-belief and what my self-worth has been monetarily. Yeah. Right? And, and that's an interesting thing. I never thought I would have to battle with that. Yeah. And uh, it's fun. It's scary. I'm not going to BS you, right? As, as a man, I'm supposed to provide. I'm supposed to have this, that, the other. And uh, the uncertainty of knowing where this, that, and the other could be coming from in six months is interesting. But I'm welcoming it. You'll be okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm not worried about okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a fun journey. Yeah. Right? It's, it's literally, you can move in your city and stay at the same job, right? And we, and we tend to say, you know, I'm, I'm, we're writing the new chapter. But you never really write the new chapter until you ixnay everything that you're used to, literally turn the page and start writing anew, you know? So that, it, it's scary. Do you consider yourself a main character in your own story? It's an interesting conversation, an interesting question. Um, to a point, yes. But being asked that question... My main character is my wife more than me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right? So I, I don't think I've ever, it's hard for me to put myself in front of her. Yeah. You know, so it's an interesting question. That's going to take me, I'm going to call you this week. I'll ponder it for two or three <laughs> days, and then I may have a better answer than that, um, if there's a better answer than that. But it's always, it's always family in front of you know in front of me right yeah. and and that feels good um and there's detriment to it and i'm realizing that as we turn the new page to write that new chapter when i put in uh put a notice at work there was like a weight lifted off of my shoulders which was kind of odd right because you're like i don't have a job right the uncertainty of finding one in that area it definitely isn't going to be the same pay that i'm used to but man what a relief what a relief. And then I don't have to step on, step over man turds on the sidewalk. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's just, it's a new chapter, dude. I've noticed that downtown Salt Lake, it's very clean. Very clean city down here. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. You know, the... the I mean, com compared to other downtowns yeah. in, in the state of the country right now. Yeah. It, it, Salt Lake is scary. Utah is scary, right? They're, they're, this is one of the states we looked at moving. And, and the reason... Part of the reason that we decided not to is that they are projecting a 50% growth in the population in the next 20 to 30 years. Wow. And that's a, that's a very, very scary prospect. That'll change a lot. Yeah. And, and, you know, from where we come from and what that means, I know what that means. Yeah. And that is, it's, I feel sorry for the good folks of Utah if they don't figure out how to control that growth. If that growth is unchecked. It, it can get ugly really fast. Yeah. You know, it, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate to see that uh, rear its head here. You've been having a bunch of interesting conversations uh, through your own podcast during the show. Uh, when, when is that going to come out for you? When can people check back in with Western Contours and, and get your take on Hunt Expo? 
Um, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just go crazy. I'm gonna punch these episodes out. I'm thinking one a day. Yeah. Uh, until they're gone, if if I have to, it'll be two a day. Yeah. Depending on what you know, what the recording schedule finalizes as. Uh, right now, I'm pushing. I think I'm pushing over 20 episodes at this point. Um, so I, I want to. There's some Hunt Expo relevance that I want to hit, but I've had so many really good conversations with people. Uh, a couple that I don't want to hold back at all, right? And, and a lot of this is, you know, how we release our content. And for me, a lot of that, I, I don't want to not share it right away because I, I believe it, they, it can be so impactful and it needs to be, show, you know, shared and shown right now. You know, you know something interesting happened today. They had uh, all the raffle tags um, where... You know, this used to be a really great opportunity for somebody to to get a really limited and special tag. And there were so many people that went into that room today that the fire marshal stopped people at the door and said no more. Oh, wow. And I think they actually might have shut it down and, like, had to, like, figure some stuff out and, and get some people out of there. Uh, so if, if there was a question about whether the the new to the game hunters over the last couple of years like if that was a flash in the pan and if it's over with i think that it's partly answered by the fact that there are so many people going into that room that the fire marshal had to say no more yeah. um today has been busy man there's a lot of people here tomorrow super bowl sunday sunday in utah probably not going to be quite as busy i'm going home tomorrow morning and looking forward to the peace and quiet of being at home and I'll, I'm going straight out of the woods to change out a bunch of game cameras and that'll be really nice but it has been so good to catch up with folks here yes sir. so good yep it's I mean been. not all of them like obviously we got we got this guy right here um no it's been good it's been amazing to to see how many people you know Thursday right that the first day of the show is usually really really slow and it's a few people here and there after they get off work. And I was impressed, man. It was kind of the telltale for me. I was like, wow, if this is Thursday, Friday and Saturday are going to be just insane busy. Yep. And, and I'm in the back, <laughs> you know. You're in a great spot. It is uh, to see that back there and to see. And this one, the thing I love about this show is you have all these like-minded people in the same place at the same time. We don't, even at archery shoots, we don't get to share that, right? We're clumped into groups of six or eight, and you don't get to literally rub elbows with people like you do here. Yeah. And it's just phenomenal, man. I didn't realize how much I missed that year off until I walked through the doors on Thursday. I think a lot of people are feeling that. Yeah. I walked yeah. in, dude, and I had my headphones on because I walked up from the hotel, and I walked in here, and I looked around, and yes, right? We're back. We yeah. are back doing it, you know? Yeah. So much, so much good stuff. Yeah. What about you, man? How, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing good. Good. I'm doing good. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not used to being around this many people. And I get a lot of uh, culture shock when I get around folks again. Mm -hmm. So, like, getting off the, the plane in Salt Lake and everything is just like a, a river of people. Yeah. Just a river of, of humans. Um, more people in that building than there are within a hundred miles of me when I'm at home. Uh, that's, that's wild, but I'm adaptable. I just, I adjust pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been good. It's been really good. You know, it's funny that, that you say that, right? And since we recorded for, uh, your podcast, 
man, I've done, thank you for that, by the way, right? It, I didn't know how much I needed that, right? And Thank I, you for saying that. Yeah, I didn't know how much I needed to have that conversation and to share that. And it's, it, honestly, it's allowed me to be, not to say that I'm dishonest, but it's allowed me to open up and be even more honest in my journey and my introspective thought, right? And, and really how I view all this and why I view it this way. So, yeah, thank you, man. I didn't, I didn't expect it to be so profound. And it's funny because now everything that I see, I think about our contrast, yeah. right? And we literally, as you say, all the people here, right? We are literally on the 180 right. of, of how two guys could be in upbringing. Totally. But yet we're sitting at the same table having, having a conversation, you know, hoping to have the same impact on, on our community. And, uh, yeah, man, I, I, I didn't know it. And, and things, I'm not really, things happen for a reason when they should happen. I'll just say it like that, right? Yeah. And that was, that timing was excellent. Man, I've got a lot of love at this show that I was not expecting. There's been so many people that have come up and, and told me that, you know, they appreciated the show and, and stuff like that. I, I never expected, yeah. I never expected that. And uh, to, to those folks who did that, like, thank you. Yep. Because this is a lot of work. And, and to get some reinforcement that, um, that is making a difference for folks, man, that, that's a great a feeling. Deal. That's a great feeling because yeah. I'm not doing this for me. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, it's the same thing, right? I had folks, and for me, and I'm sure you're the same, it's, it, it's not about celebrity, yeah. right? That, that's kind of this unintended, unintended consequence, yeah. right, of it. And it's a little bit, I don't want to say it's off-putting, but it is, it's welcome but it's a little uncomfortable, yeah. right? Because I don't expect that I'm doing something because I see the value in doing it. And that's my sole reason for doing it as, you know, I'm sure it's yours, right? It's just to, it's just to spread a good message. Um, but when you have those people come up, just like you're saying, it, it, it almost solidifies why you're doing it. It absolutely solidifies why you're doing it. And you know that that energy isn't worth, you know, it isn't wasted. And I find myself at times questioning whether it, it's even worth the time and effort that it takes, yeah. you know? But having those folks come up and it's like, you know, them, right. People giving you a hug and you're like, ah, OK, that's who they are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hey, I'm sorry. What's your Instagram handle? <laughs> yeah. It's, what it's what it's a time to be alive. Yeah. It's something else, man. Where can people check out the shows that you've recorded here? Uh, so just, you know, westerncontours.com uh, on the Waypoint Podcast Network, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple iTunes is uh, my biggest um, Instagram, the links there for uh, Western Contours. So yeah, yeah. Has man. anybody got a Western Contours tattoo yet? Uh, haven't seen one yet, bro. Okay, I'm I, hoping. I I, I I had a guy uh, message me and clarify what logo I was talking about, and I told him he's like, "Done, I'm on it." But I'm yeah, seeing it. Yeah, let's see it. I've seen it. If we see that man, uh, I might have to come up and film that uh, fishing trip. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right, brother. Take care. Thank you, man. So I found this old ad, and there's like dudes dressed up like construction workers and a guy's got a jackhammer and there's a crane and you know they're moving all these big steel beams and stuff Aladdin Stanley Thermos Stanley the tough all steel thermos bottle that's completely dependable they're showing this thermos like falling off this building and hitting all this other construction stuff and built to take a bounding year after year <laughs> get the top. Oh, lands in a wheelbarrow. Guy grabs it out of the wheelbarrow. 
Now he's gonna pour himself a cup of coffee. I love these cheesy old ads. And most of the time, like, they're lying to us, right? That's most of what marketing used to be, was just, like, telling a lie, or, or at least telling a version of a lie that, that made you think that you needed this thing. But I'll tell you what, when it's cold out like it is right now, the only way to keep liquid liquid and not freezing in your pack is by putting it in something that's insulated. So packing a thermos in the wintertime is really smart, whether it's for a hot beverage like coffee or if you just want to bring some water with you, which is a really important thing if you're going to be out adventuring around in this uh, in this snow that we've got all over the country. And I think you should be because it's a great time of year to get out and about. You know, this is both a comfort and a safety thing. If you want to get something from Stanley, which I encourage you to do, you can use the discount code 6RANCH. That's the number 6 in the word ranch. And that'll get you 25% off of just about anything on their website. Encourage you to do that. They're great supporters of the show and uh, great supporters of this audience. And I love you guys. So stay warm out there. Have a nice warm drink and uh, make sure you're drinking it out of a Stanley product. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.